There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listen to? Um... <laughs> Chart music. <laughs> Chart music. Youngsters, and welcome to the latest episode of Chart Music, the podcast that puts the trainers to the anus of a random episode of Top of the Pops. With me today is the psychopathic thinker Neil Kulkarne. Hello there. And the man who's like, now you see me, now you don't, Simon Price. <laughs> Am I? <laughs> What's all that about? I'm your host who sits back and watch you play yourself and all that and see you there and know you lying. And I take you to court after that. I'll need them. And once again, we form like Voltron and Bummer Dog. Happens to be the head. <laughs> so I've, I've been watching that Wu Tang documentary series. All oh, right, okay. Yeah, I just yeah. thought you had some kind of breakdown, yeah, but, uh, <laughs> but it's okay, you know. Boys, pop things, interesting things. Tell me all about them. Well, I mean, it's summer, isn't it? And it's a time it when when music gets out and about, and you're in constant danger. Of, of hearing an acoustic guitar or a cajon or, yes. or a legendary festival appearance or something. So for the discerning pop fan, I'd say it's all about pop avoidance in this period. I've avoided mm. Glastonbury completely. Well I've played. had the telly off all weekend. Miraculously, I managed to avoid Godiva Festival just down the road from me. Oh, well played. Who was on this year? The, the levelers. Oh, no! And uh, feeder, yeah. It's almost like they design it to piss me off. But I managed to <laughs> not hear a single note from the festival, which was great. Because you're not far from it, are you? I'm not far from it at all. They could have come round your house. They could have. They could. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I was even sat out in the garden and genuinely could not hear a lick. The wind must have just been blowing favourably that day. So I didn't even hear a note of There's Only One Way of Life. Or no. I can't even name a fucking feeder song, but I know I don't like them. <laughs> um, so, yeah, managed to avoid all of that. And, miraculously, I finally joined you people, i.e. the human race, i.e. this century. Yeah. And I've got a smartphone to replace my drug dealer's burner wow. that I had. Um, so I'm happy now to be ruled and surveyed and become a zombie like all you sheep. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Simon, what you've been up to? Something pop and interesting, no doubt. Oh, you know what's really funny here and Neil mentioning acoustic guitars in public because um as you can imagine living in brighton as i do it's fucking rife yeah. around here um just the other day uh, janie the other half and i were walking through the center of town and uh, there was uh, you know there's there's loads of cafes with kind of uh, outside dining and there was a couple sat outside this cafe and um the guy had a Spanish guitar, you know, plastic oh. plastic strings and all that. And he sat there and he's sort of plucking away at it with his kind of meaningful, sexy face on. You know, <laughs> like like he's oh. lost in this kind of reverie, lost in music, caught in a track. But mm. sat opposite him, um, his date, 
this this girl was just sat there looking, just sort of prodding her chips with a fork, looking incredibly bored. And it was yeah. just like we were just thinking, fucking, mate, grab that guitar off him, smash it over his head, shove it up his ass. You know, this is not, yeah. you know, this is not a relationship you want to be staying in. This is just awful. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I I can I can see. Um, I I know the hazards of of which Neil speaks. Coventry of. actually had an, a busking festival recently. Oh no, in oh. town, um, which warned me off just by dint of it being a busking festival but also warmed me off by the fact it had three stages one was called the selector tent one was called the specials tent and and the third one was called um the enemy tent no, no. <laughs> oh, fuck off yeah someone at all cov's legends there fuck's sake there should be you know the the kokani porter cabin or something at Too least fucking yes. right. yeah. <laughs> so as you know, Paul Crazy Young says we're currently running a little mini series at where I let the rest of Team Chart Music do my job and pick out an episode. And that burden has fallen this time upon our Neil. Let me tell you right now, he is stuck in his thumb and he's pulled out a plum. <laughs> I mean, you Neil, without too many spoilers... Tell us why you picked this one. I chose this episode because, as Eric Morgan might have said, it satisfies a long-felt want. Um, about, I mean, it, it gives me the opportunity to talk about a couple of artists that I've been gagging to talk about and that miraculously mm. haven't popped up, for me anyway, in chart music podcasts. And also an artist um, that kind of uniquely occupies both my dreams and my nightmares, but we'll come to him not, to, not not too many spoilers but yeah gives me a chance to talk about both things that i love but also things that i'm i'm afraid of as well lovely 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 but before we get our hands right up this particular episode we need to sh- sh- shake that ass for the pop craze youngsters who have stepped up to the pay window and made it rain for us on patreon this month and in the five dollar section those people are oliver gibson Trinity Calway, Sam Barton, James Rook, MSG, Lynn Robb, Jordan Anderson, Jay Burnell, Dave Morris, and Wayne Azarati. Lovely people. We love you. Each and every one. Just got to drop in here. Mike Melia. You bumped up your donation even more, didn't you, you lovely, lovely man? You can do that, you know. Mm. We say $5, you can go, no, 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 have more chart music. (laughs) And in the $3 section this month, we have Pie Museum, Jonathan Riley, (laughs) Circuit 3, Sean Foster, Dave Nichols, Ben Coleman... And Riley Briggs. They're lovely as well, aren't they? An intriguing set of names there, particularly Pie Museum. So, if you are not one of those people who are dropping over a little bit of dollar into our Patreon G-string, what the fuck is wrong with you? We are an artisan, bespoke, handcrafted, mouth-spoken podcast. And you may notice that we advertise nothing but our love to you, the pop-crazed youngsters. We don't do adverts. We don't do that, Pop Crazy Youngsters. I'm not sitting here now and telling you to subscribe to this service where you get all your ingredients of your food ordered. No, fuck that. You go to Lidl <laughs> or Tesco while, and you can buy the fucking ingredients while you're listening to chart music. Do you want Neil to prostitute his talent and ability to shill some <laughs> podcast that we shit on on a great height? 
Conrad Knight socks. Exactly, Simon. Conrad exactly. Knight socks. Truth be told, though, I'm not averse to sponsorship offers from uh, Bobby's Crisps mm. and K-Fresh Crisps. I just want no, to put that No, they'd be allowed. They'd be allowed. But would you want, say, David Stubbs to sit here and advertise a service where you can order in razors specifically designed to shave your bollocks <laughs> and your pubes? That's the latest thing going around, this company. Yeah, yeah. Special razors to shave your bits. What's special about them? Are they, they've got a special handle? I, I don't know. I honestly don't know. But I'm, uh, actually, come to think of it, I would love David Stubbs to advertise something like that. It'd be perfect, wouldn't it? Just tell him that's what we're doing now. He won't know any different. You know. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah we'll it, find yeah. out if he actually listens yeah, to yeah. podcasts that he's not on. <laughs> He'll have to call himself David Stubbleless. <laughs> But anyway, Paul Crazy Young says, if you really, really, really love chart music like you say you do, and I've got my hands on my hips and being all sassy here while I'm saying that, <laughs> you know exactly what to do. See that G-string, yank that waistband, grab that dollar and shove it down. <laughs> and of course, all our Patreon subscribers have the honour of picking out the latest chart music top ten. Oh, are you ready to jump on your bike, Simon, and cycle back to school? Oh, God, yeah, here we go, right, come on. Hit the <laughs> fucking music. Down from number five to number ten, the Granny Claps. A re-entry at number nine, it's the return of Clit Richard. <laughs> Last week's number ten, this week's number eight, Serving Suggestion. A former number one down four places to number seven, Chicken Steven. Back up three places to number six, here comes Jism. Yes, get in. Another re-entry all the way up to number five, Bergerac meets Rockers Uptown. This week's second highest new entry, straight in at number four, Soul Rail Replacement Service. Into the top three and it's down one place for Bummer Dog. Last week's number one, down one place, Sarah B and Rakim, which means... Britain's number one. This week's highest new entry, straight in at number one, Man to Man meets Al Needham. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, what a chart that is. What a chart. And great to see... Here comes Jism making a re-entry, yeah. as it were. Oh, yeah, they just... It, it bobs about, doesn't Jism it? Jism bobs about, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> so if you want to get involved in that, you know what to do. www.patreon.com slash chartmusic. As Chris Needham would say, sermon over at last. <laughs> well, hang on, right? This... Uh, Sorry, Hal, but like, the, we've got to comment on the number one there, surely. Yeah, I, you know. I was a male stripper in a bingo hall. I think the song's I wasn't called. sure if this is the episode when you're finally going to start telling us your stories or is that going to be held oh, for another time? No, 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 time? no, no, okay, no, no, right, no, right, no, right. no, no, I, I try and tailor my stories for the year. In <laughs> okay, right, right, got right. To, we're, we're looking at 98, 99 okay. for that. You know, by the time this this episode came out, I'd have been 13, so no, 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 no. No, no, no. Not, not even, <laughs> not not even in Bill Wyman's world is that okay, yeah. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> but we're going to come on to that. So, this episode, Pop Craze Youngsters... Takes us all the way back. Neil, you can say it. It's your choice. Where are we going to, Neil? We're going to 1981. 
August the 27th, mm. 1981. And yes, we know we're back in the chart music comfort zone, but my God, we cannot keep away from it, can we? <laughs> it's addictive. It's toothsome, 1981. There's just so much great stuff. It really is. Um, for, for good and for bad. You know, Simon, you've laid out a very convincing case over the months of about 1981 being the year for pop music. Yeah. Do you think that a factor in your choice is something to do with the fact that 1981 absolutely stank of unwashed cock in every other sphere <laughs> and the only thing good about it was the music? I mean, that might be something to do with it. Um, it's funny, I'm actually mm. wavering in my belief slightly um, of late. <gasps> uh, it, it might partly be because... Um, at Spellbound, my, my uh, 80s night that I do in Brighton, uh, we recently had mm. a 1979 special. Aventis night. Yeah, yeah. well, exactly. I've, I've, <laughs> I've been living in 1979 world um, for a while uh, lately. Um, and yeah, we did have a 1981 special uh, a couple of years ago. But mm. when uh, we're doing any of these kind of special things, I get really, really into it. And I get so lost in that world that I've started mm. sort of wondering whether 79 slightly edges 81. I had a sort of interesting uh, discussion on, I think it was on Neil's Facebook, actually, just to, um, sorry to, to, to completely lock out the, the uh, pop-crazed youngsters in our little cliquey world of social media. But oh, in, our, in our salon-like environment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, I, I, I think, you know, I sort of came to the conclusion that maybe 1981 is more intensely rich for the stuff that I'm into. Yeah. You know, and which which is usually mm. the kind of weirdo pop, st- you know, stuff that, that, that gets into the charts, but it's made by absolute freaks and lunatics mm. and, you know, uh, but isn't just on the fringes and gets right up there in the top five. That's what 1981 was all about. But I just think 1979 maybe had a greater breadth, of, you know, because there's all the all amazing disco stuff as well. Yeah. So I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm torn like Natalie Imbruglia. So why is, why is 1980 completely out of the picture then, Simon? Well, what's wrong with that? I mean, it, it was a sort of, a, I'm not going to say a dip, but like may, maybe caught between two stools. The, the, the neuromantic thing hadn't really mm. taken off yeah. yet. I guess two-tone was kind of in its pomp, mm. which I absolutely loved. But um, I think there was a lot of absolute crap around, a lot of sort of... Um, Radio 2 country music getting into the, yeah. into the charts and stuff like that. Maybe I'm sort of... Bad number um, ones. Bad number ones. Um, maybe I'm being overly sentimental about the quality of 81 because as we'll see in this episode, oh, yeah. it's not all gold, is it? Oh, no. Um, no. There, there, mm-hmm. there are some, no, not, there are some very high-ranking records, shall we say, in this uh, episode which don't fit the pattern. No. <laughs> but um, <laughs> on the whole, uh, as, as Sinatra would say, I say, I would say it was a very good year. Mm. In the news this week, well, the President and Prime Minister of Iran are killed by a bomb in the latter's office. North Korea fires a missile at an American jet in South Korean airspace, but it misses. The Rolling Stones announced their first tour in four years, 21 dates in America, a guaranteed million dollars for each gig. Moira Stewart becomes the BBC's first black newsreader. Atomic Rooster, Vardis, Wishbone Ash, Nine Below Zero, Gillen and the Kinks are about to play the Reading Festival. Wow. Rita Webb has just died at the age of 77. 200 mods invade Brighton on bank holiday weekend and throw petrol bombs at a miniature railway. (laughs) 
Bloody but hell. the big news this week <laughs> is that Mark Chapman has been jailed for 20 years to life for the murder of John Lennon and making Simon Price cry. Shut up! <laughs> Did you punch a fist in the air when that verdict came out, Simon? <laughs> As you well know, Al, I was quite indifferent to the whole subject of John mm. Lennon's death. It didn't. Mm. It, it meant less to me than Vienna did to Midjur. Um, but <laughs> but um, a, a cruel myth went around the school that I was yes. heartbroken, and yes. I never, I never quite lived it down. On the cover of the Enemy this week, Blue Rondo a la Turk. Wow. On the cover of Smash Hits, Annabella of Bow Wow Wow. The number one LP in the UK is Time by ELO. It's just not the official BBC album of the Royal Wedding off the number one spot. Over in America, the number one is Endless Love by Diana Ross and Lionel Richer. And the number one LP is Four by Foreigner. So, me dear boys, what were we doing in August of 1981? Well, um, we've covered 1981 <laughs> quite, um, quite, uh, quite a bit. Yeah, but, so... but the summer holiday, summer holiday of 1981. Well, increasingly driven indoors by nasty incidents outside. And indoors, oh, my kid, my, uh, my my sister was no longer a playmate, really. She was more of an antagonist by, by that age. Yeah. Um, crucially, um, ITV had shown The Omen. Um, uh, and yes. I'd, become, I'd become singularly obsessed with that film. Um, that and an episode of Hammer House of Horror, which also dealt with Ooh. similar kind of <laughs> obsessions with the number 666. So I was kind of increasingly driven inside. And, and you know how back then, obviously, pre-everything, all you had was the books that were hanging around the house yeah. that weren't really for kids. But I remember just reading anything that would come my way, including the Pears Cyclopedia, which was a big blue thing from the Reader's Digest. Um, And I've still got this book in my house because all of these books stay. And I was flicking through it the other day and and just as testament to my omen obsession, um, when I got to the entry for Satan... I've written Daddy next to it. I was obsessed <laughs> with that fucking film. <laughs> I was obsessed with that. And, and uh, another thing that I was obsessed with reading, and I just used to read it repeatedly because it excited me, but it just proves how bored you could get, um, was uh, Dr. DJ Hessian's Vegetable Expert book, um, which was a gardening right. book, um, which I read obsessively only because there was a small entry in the section about potatoes, mm-hmm. um, which had a bit about what to do with certain illnesses that you saw in your potatoes, certain blights that you saw, saw in your potatoes. And there was right. one little thing that I, I, I found it the other day again, and, and I'd actually drawn a circle around it because it was so thrilling, um, <laughs> that if you got black potato blight... Um, the recommendation wasn't just to spray it with some insecticide or anything. The recommendation was destroy all tubers immediately Ooh. and notify Ministry of Agriculture of outbreak, which yeah. was just Whoa. thrilling yeah. uh, for an eight or nine year old to read that. That's like seeing the posters in the uh, post offices of the Colorado Beagle, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like, totally. oh, if you see one of them, you get some money for crisps and sweets. <laughs> So yeah, just I reading... used to spend so much time looking for fucking Colorado beetles as a kid. <laughs> yeah, me too, man. It was Co- Colorado beetles, Dutch elm disease, and Humphreys were the three big yeah. scares of the seventies. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So just scouring, yeah, boring literature for for exciting bits like that, and yeah, becoming increasingly obsessed with the Omen. When I played by myself, it wasn't really War or British Bulldog because obviously you can't play them by yourself. No. It was it was a little game I had to myself, which was kind of based on the Omen. 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> about me, you know, having access to secret knowledge of who the Antichrist was. So yeah, yeah, I was a weird little kid. Right. <laughs> who was it? Um, Mark it didn't Sutherland. matter. It might have been. <laughs> But yeah, um, uh, becoming an increasingly weird, obsessive, lonely little kid, but but happy, you know, not yeah. miserable, just but just obsessively reading and and perhaps I think dipping into music a bit more, listening to albums a bit more than just singles. You know, yeah. I'm just blown away by this daddy thing next to the entry for Satan because like <laughs> oh no, oh, I mean oh, no. like let's assume that um, maybe your parents <laughs> didn't watch The Omen with you, so they didn't, and and they happened to flick through the encyclopedia and just oh, see no. that. Oh my I mean, god, I oh know. Imagine they they'd have they've been sort of contacting child psychologists and all sorts. Jeez. I know, but but back then parents <laughs> had the right idea and just left you to your own devices and couldn't yes. really give a f- couldn't really give a fuck about what you were interested in or what you were maniacally obsessed about. Uh, as long so, as you yeah, were interested true. in something that didn't involve neither in them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Simon. Well, again, yeah, we've done 1981 before, but I was 13 years old. Um, yeah, so I was going around head to toe in Burgundy. Um, but, um, I, yeah, I was still... Burgundy the whole was route. big as my school as well. As, as mentioned before, this was the year that our school was allowed to vote on the colours of the school uniform. Oh, wow. And, yeah, wow. Burgundy won by a mile. Well, the other colour scheme I associate with that time is this particular shade of pale grey with um, sort of very thin red and white diagonal stripes on it, which was a design you you saw in sort of teenagers' wallpaper and duvet covers and all that kind of stuff. It's just funny how sometimes, um, you know, the the, the whole Proustian thing about taste or or smell, sometimes it's just colour schemes like that can can be the thing that sum up a year for you. Um, That summer, I was still very much in my rude boy phase. even though two-tone was kind of falling apart, um, specials, uh, as we will see, are, are in. They, yeah. You know, they're they're in the top thirty. Um, yeah. Although not, uh, you know, it's single. kind of their valedictory single. Um, mm. But madness was still going strong, and uh, uh, I, I guess I was sort of getting into a few um, unrelated things like like the Human League and, and stuff like that. But but mainly, uh, you know, it was it was full steam ahead with the whole scar thing for me. I I, I refused yeah. to even contemplate for a second that the wheels were coming off and mm. um i suppose my summer would have mostly involved uh, a lot of playing football just going up the local park chicken woods yeah. where there was a sort of concrete football court i suppose we used to just like spend all day up there until you know our mums came and shouted at us that it was tea time um mm. and uh, breaking in to the um local tennis courts uh, at six in the morning and um breaking into the hole in the fence and playing for three hours uh, for free until the parky turned up Ooh, playing what and um uh, just playing tennis yeah oh uh, but i know i know on our estate we had tennis courts in the school only ever be used for tennis in wimbledon fortnight right and everyone would dash off to martin's the local news agent and buy these I, I don't think they were even aluminium. These these really cheapo rackets. And if you couldn't get a tennis ball, you'd, you'd rely on the dog ball again. Yeah, so after yeah. two weeks, you, your racket would be bent at a right angle. Yeah, yeah. And then as soon as Wimbledon finished, uh, fuck tennis, play football again. Yeah, I suppose there's an element of that. I, I had a sort of a, a quite nice but um, very old-fashioned wooden Dunlop racket. With, oh, did you uh, with, know? Yeah, which nice. it had quite quite a small head. It wasn't like these, you know. The I, I kind of looked at uh, with envy at the aluminium ones with those massive sort of like yeah. fishing nets, you know, shaped heads that you you know yeah. you could the basically. The Roscoe Tanner jobs. Yeah, yeah, they they looked amazing to me. But no, I I had some kind of old fashioned nineteen forties type thing. Um, 
so there was that. And then I suppose uh, if I had a bit of pocket money, uh, then me and my uh, best mate next door neighbour Andrew, who was a metaler, uh, would go into Cardiff and just go record shopping, and that was kind yeah. of my life—just going around. And not only the you know record shops like you know Virgin and Spillers and HMV, but you know Boots and BHS, yeah. WH Smith, um, yeah. just department stores. Like that all sold records. All, didn't yeah, they? and and because yeah. because nobody went there to buy their records, they would have everything on discount. So this is how yeah. I was just hoovering up the charts at this point. I, you know, stuff that I didn't even, you know, I, just stuff that I quite liked. If it was forty nine p, I was having it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, mm. yeah, that that was it. I was I fairly happy, I think, you know, and uh, yeah. doing okay. Nineteen eighty one to me was the last summer of Sabutio. Oh yeah. My mum and dad were both working, so I'd usually spend the six week holidays at, at, at my nonna and grandpa's. I'd just get up in the morning. I'd lay out all the Sabutio stuff. And uh, I think this was the year that I redid the 1970 World Cup. <laughs> I had the uh, Topical Times book of football for 1970 from a jumble sale. And it had all the stats in it, all the fixtures for that for that World Cup. So I played that. So you kind of rigged the results so they matched the real results? No, 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 no. I replayed it. I can't remember right. who won. Yeah. I think it might have been Israel or someone like that. I was banging to Sabuto myself, actually. and yeah. I Yeah, I had my own league. I had, I had an, um, a fictional country. That I invented. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it, cool. it stuck. Uh, the country is called Oxenania. Why? Uh, and uh, it was a uh, um, theoretically it was an island in the Baltic, uh, and, and uh, um, a, a nation state with a sort of Nordic nation with a sort of you know a cross shaped flag like all those other Nordic nations. Um, mm-hmm. And um, what colours? Uh, green and white. Yeah, and and it started off with action men and other action figures when I was a little bit younger, you know, kind of like Star Trek figures and Six Million Dollar Man and all that, mm-hmm. um, with ping pong balls playing against each other. Um, what? I was, an only, I, I was an only child, as you know. Yeah, I used, to, I used yeah. to do that. So I used to do that as well with ping pong balls and action yeah, yeah. figures. Definitely, I used to do that with rolled up fag paper for a football and um, and uh, football cards. Right. Yeah. Well, there we go. You'd lay them out on the carpet and you'd get some goals up. Yeah. And. Um, Whoever was nearest to the ball got got it, and you you kind of like pick the card up and you you flicked the corner, so it it kicked the ball. Oh, nice! And then you had a goalkeeper, <laughs> like rested against the uh, the crossbar at an angle. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, we didn't Actually, we didn't need no stinking tablets in those no, days. <laughs> so I, I I had a whole league. Uh, you know, I had a, you know the country had a map and it had towns and cities and it had wow. a league. Um, Billy liar, sorry. I know. I mean, the main um, uh, back in the seventies and the Action Man days, the the uh, uh, preeminent team were Gug City Slaggers. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a Clash single. Yeah, yeah. Gug City Slaggers were the the main team. Um, it was supposedly because there were loads of slag heaps there. It's like a really industrial town, Gug mm. City, um, and they would compete against my next door neighbour Andrew's team, who were called Gubby Brothers Fish Food City. Um, <laughs> and uh, s- sometimes we we play against um, Suzanne down the road, whose team was called Giggleswick, and um, uh, her her brother had a team called Loudy Forgan. I remember that. Um, oh. But yeah, yeah, and and then you know when when it moved into the um, Sabutio age, um, another team kind of usurped Gug City Slaggers, and that was Wellston Rovers, and uh, right. their main player was um, uh, was was Juan Torres, who was uh, back in the Action Man days, he was Robin out of Batman. 
Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. So he was this kind of uh, exciting masked um, striker. But um, of course, when it comes to Sabutio, you couldn't really replicate that without a very fine uh, paintbrush. So he just played without without the mask on. So yeah, um, as, as you can see, I was very much an only child. Yeah. <laughs> that was my world. I spent way too long in my bedroom listening to Dexy's records and playing Sabutio. <laughs> when it was raining and we couldn't go and break into the tennis court well indoors you could have you could lead a fantasy football life that you couldn't actually replicate when you were playing with your mates I mean I started realising as a goalie which is my sort of ordained position that though I was fine in the playground with the airflow ball I weren't that good when having a proper football kicked at my face yes so you know being inside and just having this fantasy football life was much better Anyway, pop music. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, no, I want to carry on with this Sabutio thing because by the end, I mean, this was the, the last proper full year uh, I, I played Sabutio because if I was not in my non-Oz living room playing Sabutio and watching the Ashes or listening to the radio, a lot of radio listening in the summer, of mm. course, you know, I got, I got to taste Simon Bates. <laughs> oh dear! <laughs> but um, I'd, I'd I'd started going into town, and because uh, they 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 were only uh, like two minute bus ride into town yeah. from where they lived, and there was a shop called Vista Video on Friar Lane, just across the road from the castle, and they had, and I think I was the only child in Nottingham who knew this. They had an Atari set up. Oh my word! And I would go in there in the morning and play on it all day and basically got adopted by the uh, by the staff there so i played missile command all fucking day oh, man. just thinking i was i was the king of nottingham which in a sense i was did it have defender i think defender hadn't come out yet ah uh, yeah you might be right but i was but, quite yeah. lo-fi i i only had um, pong on like a binotone rip off on the telly i didn't have any of these fancy atari and you played things. that on your own <laughs> yeah yeah i did yeah i i used to i used to set it which up which was so- really hard because it was the, the control thing. You had to hold it in one hand and twizzle the knob at the top, didn't you? So you had to put it. You had to wedge it between your legs and <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 fiddle yeah. away. I would often try and get it locked into a pattern where um, the ball was just hitting the same corner over and over again and hitting the bat. So you get this yeah. kind of like repetitive tune. <laughs> over and over again and I'd just sit and I'd be so pleased with myself that I got a kind of rhythm going you know it's the sort of thing David Stubbs would have written a whole chapter about that in one of his fucking (laughs) books yeah Uh, yeah, I mean music wise I mean uh, Simon I've got got to go back to this got to go back to your um, your your current rude boyness because I've always wondered when you you started to turn and, and pivot towards the ways of the blouse wearer <laughs> that was more uh, I guess it was about 90 sorry not 83 about 83 83 because I carried on with the rude boy th- thing through 82 although I was you know I was into a lot of other stuff like Dexies and uh, Culture Club and, and the Human League and ABC and various yeah. other things but um, 83 um, I went very style council I went yeah. full on style council and that was a kind of gateway. That, yeah, that was it, wasn't it, Simon? It was the cover of Walls Come Tumbling Down that that, that turned you on to the new romantic ethos. A little bit. And I, I don't know. It Way was, too late in the day. Yeah, what? Well, no, it was, it was do more. Do you regret that? Huh? Do you, do, you, do you regret not being on that straight away? No, I don't because I love being into yeah. two tone and, and it wasn't, you couldn't really go halfway. You couldn't merge 
rude boy with being blitz. You know, it was, no. I, you know, I, I think I've said before that in my town, girls were into neuromantic stuff, boys were into two-tone or the jam. Um, and that's just how mm. it was. Um, yeah. And I don't really regret that. I suppose I was going through that phase that all teenagers go through. It sometimes only lasts about 18 months to two years where you desperately want to fit in. Um, and then you, yes. then you then you come out the other side of it, and suddenly you want to be different in every possible way. But there yes. there is there is that window where you just want to fit in, and um, the rude boy thing dovetailed nicely and fulfilled that role for me. Um, although mm. that wasn't my primary motive, I just absolutely fucking loved it. But um, yeah. I, I was sort of semi secretly also digging things like Soft Cell and and the Human League. Um, mm. and, and ABC at the same time. But I think the Star Council yeah. gave me permission to sort of um, take a bit more care in the sort of tailoring of my clothing, just wear nice things, wear, yes. wear things that weren't just, you know, what you sort of kick about up, up the alleyway, writing graffiti on the walls and stuff like that. Yeah. Just that actually kind yeah. of quite nice clothes, like, you know, um, black and white loafers with tassels on them and stuff like that. Yes. And, you know, just, 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 just nice stuff. And, and I sort of moved on from that into... I started wearing like ribbons in my hair and stuff like that and having, having a bit more of a kind of romantic idea about who I was. And uh, mm. then I think um, just one uh, one house party, I turned up with a bit of eyeliner on uh, and <gasps> my hair a bit Robert Smith and, you know, uh, and, and a, a, a frizzy uh, mohair jumper that my mum had knitted for me because uh, I just wanted to try out that look. So that was, you know, so probably around 84, I was starting to go into that kind of... Uh, New romantic thing, but I but I was also yeah. a Smiths boy by then. But this we're, we're getting way ahead of ourselves. But yeah, basically, well, um, summer of '81, I was you know I I could not imagine a time where I wouldn't be wearing Dr. Martin shoes, braces, Fred Perry's, and all of that. We're a couple of weeks away from going back to school. Yeah, and of course, you know, summer holidays is a time when you get to be a teenager to to retool your look a little bit and burst out of your chrysalis well did you because i mean no no i'm the slightest i wore the same jacket. no because i mean i didn't have any money mm. um the only the only real chance i had to get any new things was my birthday my birthday's in september yeah. so you know um, no basically summer i was wearing the same old shit i'd had for uh, almost a year yeah. you know to my surprise and and disgust when i got back to school because you know I'd le- I, I was on the other side of town from everyone else so i didn't know what was going on when i got back all these people i know who used to be mods or rude boys had suddenly become futurists or grebs <laughs> they've just gone like that and it's like no no how, no how'd you do that that's like that's like coming in and saying oh i don't support forest anymore i support newcastle no Jeez. you don't do that so is grebs the same as in the late 80s people talk about grebos yeah. so it's like like long long dirty greasy hair and yeah, heavy metal. yeah just get a heavy metal right, okay, yeah right. they were known yeah, they yeah. were known as grebos and grebs in, yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in Nottingham in the early 80s, yeah. And there were fucking loads of them. <laughs> and they were all, to a person, from the posh estate on the other side of the school. Right. So they had neatly ironed denim jackets <laughs> and rainbow patches. Yeah. When you say rainbow, do you mean the band? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. oh, a there. <laughs> oh, that would have been... Roger the <laughs> I would have gone for Bungle, yeah. I think it was because... Yeah. And uh, spoiler alert, Pop Craze Youngsters, there's no heavy metal on this episode, so... You know, we can talk about this now. I think it was because of the yeah. patches. Because I was always envious of the massive patches Greb bands had. Yeah. And those metal badges. 
You know, because it's all about the accessories, isn't it? When you when you're that age, and you know, I'd I'd got me patches and I got me badges, and I even had me madness comb holder as mentioned before. But then all of a sudden, you know, all these massive, massive patches turn up, and they just fit a denim jacket real nice. It's like, oh, if only them bands were really good, and I like them, I could wear that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then, oh, that's the weird thing that completely still goes on. My youngest is a massive metalhead, and and her her priority because music, you know, you can just get it on your tablet. Yeah. That's not her priority. Her priority is patches. Yeah. So my, my recent life has basically been a succession of patches arriving in the mail for shit 80s metal oh, bands. Like, he- like Halloween. And oh, shit no. Like that. <laughs> uh, oh, yes. She's full on. She could have been, she basically looks like she could have been airlifted in from about 1983. Good luck. And, and, and it's me sewing them on. Oh, man. Incessantly <laughs> on a denim jacket. And she's actually also got a denim, I don't know, would you call it a vest or a jersey? or something one of those uh, sleeveless jobs Westcott, yeah. which is yeah. now yeah which is now getting populated by patches as well so it's nice to know that this basically is still Vivian from the young ones right yeah basically very metal wow. and um, even though poster place the shop where you could get all these things from Cov doesn't exist anymore um Strange people in China are more than willing to oh, send yes. them to you via airmail. So, yeah, oh, yes. that's my life at the moment. Good Lord. Wow. Oh, what she becomes an Hell's Angel, though, man? You'd have to sew the, the bottom rocker on. Oh, seriously, no. man, she's on about it. Every time we see a motorbike out and about, she, like, cannot take her eyes off it. She's obsessed with motorbikes. She's obsessed with metal. She wants to become a Hell's Angel, and she wants a van, and she's turning my garage into she's actually put a sign above it that says metalheads and thrashers welcome no normies and all this so <laughs> you must be very worried about this neil i mean head banging head banging absolutely and and she she she's waiting basically she's only 13 so she can't really go to gigs much no. but she's waiting to yeah to mosh to be in a mosh pit um, Good lord! And so, yeah, does, does this she's... mean you, you score maximum points for your career of, in, of interviewing people like Marilyn Manson Slightly. and Corn and stuff like that? <laughs> Slightly, but uh, you know, obviously, I'm not going to just like accept all of her taste. No, because some of it's some of it's horrible. Yeah, <laughs> like, I will never like Kiss. I'm sorry. No, no, I'll, shit. I'll never I'll, I'll, kiss a shit. We and, can all agree I'll, on that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And I'll never like some of the shit she's into. So there's still that friction, which is nice. But yeah, it's nice to be able to coast on things like the fact that I've interviewed Ozzy Osbourne and things like yeah, that. Yeah. And it's also gratifying. I'm a little bit of a metalhead, obviously. Yeah. So um, headbanging with her to Black Sabbath is, is a lovely shared oh, experience. Bless. <laughs> That's amazing. When she gets married, Neil, you've got to you've got to headbang your way down the aisle when you give her away. <laughs> It'll be like the Guns N' Roses November yeah, Rain November video. Rain. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. My flaxen locks, well, they've long gone. But um, no, she's got long, long curly hair. Precisely because she wants to look like fucking Robert Plant or something, or or Gillen. (laughs) This isn't a a thing whereby she's into like new metal or anything like that. She's absolutely assiduously into eighties metal. Um, I haven't shown her Chris Needham yet. Oh my god. Um, uh, I will do though because the self recognition there will, you know, <laughs> just be immense. Yeah, and, and it's funny, Chris you know. Obviously, I've got a warning, warning from, from history. history. <laughs> <laughs> obviously, obviously, I've got guitars in the house, and she likes plugging in the guitar and, and having a, having a, a wang on it, as it were. Um, but you know, I, I didn't even attempt to teach her a chord. No, because all she wants to do is just whittle her hands about on the fretboard, yes. shredding, as she calls it. Seriously, she's fucking talking about Ying Wei J Malsteam and stuff. No. She's, uh, she's absolutely um, airlifted in from eighty three. Um, 
Which is great, because in contrast to the boy bands with guitars who currently grace the covers of Kerrang, I'd rather she was into that old horrible shit than the new horrible shit, yes. to be honest with you. Yes. You know when we do come across a band like that when you're on it, Neil? She's got to make a guest appearance. Oh, oh, I'll get her on. Yeah. She'll have an opinion without a doubt. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> so, what else was on telly today? Well, BBC One kicks off at 6.30 with a double bill of programmes about international aid and halogens and noble gases in the Open University. Then reopens at 9.50 with the Wombles, Jack and Ore, Champion the Wonder Horse! <laughs> Take heart... <laughs> Then it's over to the Oval for the first session of day one of the sixth test in the Ashes. England have already won. It's a dead rubber. After regional news in your area, the midday news in Chigler is back to the Oval. Then it's the second in the series, the skill of lip reading. Regional news in your area, play school, Scooby-Doo, news round, the swish of the curtain, the evening news and regional news in your area once again. At 6.20, it's now Get Out of That, the Oxbridge Takeshi's Castle, presented by Bernard Falk, and they've just finished Looking Good, Feeling Fit, where we learn about Patty Boulay's beauty secrets and get the chance to see Richard Stilgo leading 600 women in an aerobic session in the Royal Albert Hall. BBC Two starts at 6.40 with more Red Hot Open University action. Then it's play school. Then they close down for four and a half hours before picking up the final session of that day's cricket. Then it's half an hour of the Open University. And then FACS, which stands for Football Association Coaching Tactics Skills. Featuring Ron Greenwood, Jeff Hurst, Charles Hughes, Keggy Keagle, Ray Wilkins and Vince Hilaire and they're now halfway through 100 Great Paintings where they look at a self-portrait of Van Gogh. I remember that football thing. Yeah? Yeah, I just met because you watch anything football related, yes. wouldn't you? Mm, Even if it mm. was quite, quite dry and quite sort of oh, yeah. scholastic, as something like that was. And this was. This was extremely so. It was just them lot just standing about while they're being sp- Shouted at by Charles Hughes. Yeah. ITV begins at 9.30 with Larry the Lamb in Toy Town, then the Lost Islands, Animal Locomotion, Laurel and Harder, Sesame Street, The Ark Stories, Get Up and Go, The Sullivans, News at One, Regional News in Your Area, Emmerdale Farm in its rightful place, not getting in the way of fucking Top of the Pops, <laughs> Music from the Flags, here today, the documentary in evidence, the bomb. This is this this is school holiday time. This is what they've given to us. <laughs> Here is your future, children. <laughs> the drama series, no fence for Baron. Little house on the prairie. The news at five forty-five. Regional news in your area. Crossroads, a short Disney cartoon, and they've just started the 1978 TV movie, Ski Lift to Death. (laughs) Out of all those listings, the thing that jumped out at me was uh, um, the skills of lip reading. Yes. I mean, what the fuck? Mm. I don't think, I mean, I don't remember that. That didn't, that can't have made it to Wales, because if it did, I would have watched it. Apart from anything else, it's episode two, episode two of a series on it. What what leaps out to me at that listing and what you've mentioned, the, the omnipresence of cricket, the test match being on all the time, because my dad always used to have it on. Yeah. And, you know, that's why names like 
like Joel Garner and Viv Richards yes. and Malcolm mm. Marshall and Richard Adley and Capel Dev and all these people and Dennis mm. Lilly in particular are all in my head because of boring long summer holidays stumbling across test matches and yes. watching yeah. the cricket. And, yeah. and can, since Sky took that away from us, just like they have with our, well, the whole of our national sport in life in a sense, they've left us bereft, haven't they? I don't think kids really yeah. watch it anymore. No. No, I mean, I caught the end of the... Um, you know the World Cup final recently. Yeah. So I, was, I was in someone else's house, and uh, and it was super exciting. But I just thought, imagine how you know how how many more people could have enjoyed that if it was on terrestrial. It would have been absolutely amazing. Well, it was on terrestrial. That, yeah, that was just it? The, it just but, the yeah. final. Was it? I mean, just yeah, right, just the final. Yeah. But I suppose yeah, we were meant to feel... that, Oh, oddly, anyone's watching this. Right, right. right. And this is it. We but were yeah, meant I mean, to feel kind um, of grateful to Sky, I think, for putting allowing it yeah. on on a terrestrial. But but imagine people watching that last bit and thinking, "Fucking hell, is this what cricket's like all the fucking time?" Yeah, yeah. Watch this. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but um, Neil's right. You you just watch any old crap, any sport, any sport. Yeah, 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 you'd yeah. watch it. All you the know, balls. Yeah, yeah, you watch anything. So, you know, I, I found myself sort of hero-worshipping Graham Gooch um, just because, you know, um, I, I, I saw a, I saw an Essex game once and he seemed pretty good, you know. And, yeah, yeah. And so, someone asked me recently for to venture some opinion on the England cricket team and I just had to stop them and say, look, right, if it doesn't, <laughs> if it doesn't involve Graham Gooch, Ian Botham, Bob Willis, Alan Knott, John Embury, uh, Mike Brearley, Basil yeah. Oliveira or something like that. Oh, um, yeah. You know, I, I can't help you, mate. You know, because yeah. that, as, as Neil says, that you know, the, that was kind of the the era, and that was the cut-off point, really, for when I even knew what was going on. In the summer holidays, mm. if I'd have been knocking about with my mates, we would have played cricket. Yeah, because that's what you did. Yeah, and this was just at the tail end of the period where you know, when Roy the Rovers, when the season was over, oh Roy, you'd have a go at cricket because <laughs> <laughs> that's what you did because you were British. Yeah. We're going right off on tangents here, aren't we? Imagine that. <laughs> All right, then, pop craze youngsters. It is time to go way back to August of 1981. Always remember, we may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget they've been on top of the pops more than we have. <laughs> the 907th episode of Top of the Pops and we're almost two months into the Yellow Pearl era instigated by Michael Hurl who took over in mid-1980 and is continuing to hone the programme in his image. Chaps, we've not really discussed the uh, the impact that Mr Hurl had upon Top of the Pops. It was very severe, wasn't it? In, in both positive and negative forms. Um, yeah, definitely. I mean... There are good there are good aspects to what he did. Um yeah. and there are there are bad aspects. Um you know, he scraps the Top of the Pops orchestra. That's a yes. good thing, I think. Um yeah, yeah. although you do sort of miss at our age anyway, I miss the kind of pissed up lumbering bad versions of things that they used <laughs> yes. to play. Oh, can yeah. you imagine what they could have done with some of the stuff going on? <laughs> oh in my this god, era? yeah. Well no, this is it. But but at the time, I don't think I would have noticed that, that it had been done. But it, it, I think yeah. it improved the show away from a kind of light entertainment show into mm. being something more big and starry and, and poppy. The yeah. most noticeable change as a kid, I think, would have been that the rundown is obviously yes. moved from the start of the show and, and put in the yes. middle of the show. I think that's a, that's a really good idea as well. Yes, it builds definitely. attention, builds the build of the show. Yes. Um, Tells a story. 
Yeah, and they they um, invariably stop the rundown at a song that they're going to play. Yes. So it's, it's yeah. Quite lo- it's, yeah, it gives it certain logic. I like yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Also, with regards to the rundown and with regards to the records that are featured, I think he started focusing the playlist, random though it was, purely on things that were in the chart. So you don't get sudden appearances by bands for no good reason. Yes. Playing a song that isn't even in the charts. Again, yeah, that's, that's good. a good yeah. thing. That's a yeah, good yeah. thing. That's going to happen not too long from now with right. the, with the Jonathan King section, of course. Oh, Christ. But <laughs> Light Entertainment, that's funny you should say that, Neil, because I, w- I was having a nose over his track record and he's definitely from that uh, department. So, um, yeah, he he started his career in 1963 with the BBC when he did a section on Christmas with the Stars, which was the thing that was on uh, all night on Christmas night on BBC. You know, all the big sitcoms at the time would do a little skit. And then in 1965, he did And So To Ted, the BBC One late night comedy show starring Ted Rogers. (laughs) He did the pop show Gadzooks, It's All Happening. (laughs) <laughs> well, I'd love to see one of them. Ah. Uh, the Ken Dodd Show. In 1967, he did the Illustrated Weekly Hood with Roy Hood. In 1968, he doubled up on the Wakey Wakey Show with Billy Cotton. And he did 55 episodes of Scylla. Poor fella. In 1969, he did the Roy Castle Show and the Cliff Richard Show. In 1971, look, Mike Yarwood! Exclamation mark. 1972, he did Sasha's in Town. Sasha Distel, obviously. 1973, he did The Young Generation, The Dance Troupe. And in 1974, Clunk Click with Jimmy Savile. In 1975, he did All This and Corbett 2. In 1978, he did the first series of The Little and Large Show. In 1979, he starts pivoting towards pop a little bit because he did ABBA in Switzerland and Disco in the Snow which was a one-off show uh, hosted by Boney M and the Old Sailor. And he also he also sw- switched over, he crossed the floor to LWT to do the first series of Cannon and Ball, and he's joined Top of the Pops from Crackerjack. Yeah, he... Uh, I read Crackerjack. I, <laughs> I read a quote from him about Cannon and Ball where he worked on all their series but hated them. And, and really? he, he basically said he felt they were as funny as a cow's crotch. That was his exact <laughs> phrase. Um, so, yeah, that light entertainment thing's really important because, because mm. it enabled him as well, I think, to make things like the crop of the flops to Ronnie's sketch, where yes. you know, he could he could use the actual top of the pop set. Um, yes. set. And if you, if you do seek that out, by the way, yes. have a look at the photo of celluloid yes. birth. Yes. Because at the back, I do believe that's Jonathan Ross, isn't it? Um yeah, um, as, as, as the tall fella, but um, you know he, he he did a lot of good things for the show. Getting shot of Savile in '83, good. Yeah. yeah, you know it's but but there are problems with some of the things that he that he introduced. I I think introducing like co-hosts and having those little guest chats now and then. Yes, um, they usually didn't work. I, yeah. I'm a oh, bit come on, then about- you know if you rule that out, we'd be denied Roger Daltrey uh, telling <laughs> yeah, people to mind yes. their backs, or you know yeah. true Kevin not. Keegan's amazing performance and all yeah. that. So. True enough, true enough. But I mean, he also got a shot of Flip Colby, didn't he? And yes, I'm, he I'm presuming yeah. he's responsible for for Zoo. I mean, not personally responsible, mm. but for bringing them in, which was was definitely. Definitely yeah. a bad thing. So it's yeah. a mix, isn't it? This episode Zoo hasn't happened yet, yeah. uh, but it, it's very clearly heading that way, isn't it? 
You know what mm. though? I I don't think his light entertainment background counts against him necessarily. I mean, if you look no, at not at all. Uh, you know, Robin Nash uh, had a background in sort of very cozy BBC uh, variety in sitcoms, and you yeah. know some of the, some of the pioneering uh, music programs like like Jack Good. You know, launched Six mm. Five Special and Oh Boy. Um, yeah. He, you know, he wasn't a rock and roll kid. He was too old for that. But he understood yeah. what was needed for television to make it seem exciting. Same with yeah. Al Canal, and he did Ready Steady Go. You know, yes. Um, mm. These they weren't cool young people, the people running the shows, but they just got what was needed. So yeah. you know, and I, I think you know, as, as Neil said, um, interjecting there a few times, I think some of the innovations were were were, were good ones. And um, and even you know with just right at the top of the show the the title sequence, yes. F- for me, you know the um, the coloured picture discs exploding and, and the yellow pearl. Oh, that's yes. kind of that that is um, canonical to me. That that in fact that is you know top of the shop. That is what top of the pops is to me. Yeah. The um, mm. the old whole lot of love in its uh, various versions is more of a kind of heritage thing. It's more you know I it's it's ancestral. It's it's where the show was rooted and where it came from. But in terms yeah. of you know, my actual life of thinking, this is my world now. I can switch on yeah. to see my music. I associate yeah. it fully with the Yellow Pearl era. Yellow Pearl for me all the way. Uh, although I did notice, one of the things I would have noticed in 81, sad omen obsessed freak that I was, um, <laughs> the, num- the numbers that come flying down. Oh my God, where's this going? <laughs> well, well, the first one's six, right? And then and then the second one's nine. Yeah. Uh, what happens if you turn nine upside down? Ooh. Yeah, think about it. And then 23, a magical number with a K in it. Um, you know, two times three, what's that? Six, yes, it's all heading in that direction. Fuck. <laughs> Hang on, hell. presumably you, you didn't have a video recorder at the time, so you were just watching this live oh, yeah. at the time, and like you you were, you were like really sort of trying to take in the numbers really quickly, and then, look, it's a six, it was kind of an upside down six, and all that, oh my God. It's, it's like that scene in The Omen when the, the vicar comes out of the church and a massive orange single falls from the sky. <laughs> Goes through his neck. Yeah, it's like it's, it's a squeeze picture disc or something. Yeah. Yes. Do, you, do you remember the whole Procter and Gamble scare? Oh God, yeah. Yeah, people were looking for satanic signs anywhere. There was this whole um, uh, rumor going around that Procter and Gamble, are sort of, um, what, what do they make? Sort of like household cleaning products and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, toothpaste and things. Yeah, like yeah, that. yeah. That yeah. Um, that they were some kind of satanic cult, and this was all based on they had a logo tucked away on most of their packaging that was some kind of weird man in the moon type um, image and mm, people thought mm, that there were hidden mm. uh, symbols in that that were to do with you know to satan or or, or daddy as neil would call it um, so yeah it's a bit like that and it's, it's like that whole thing oh you know if you turn a packet of marlboro on its sides and flick it around three times kkk yes. ku klux klan so so you you were watching top of the pops and presumably right neil you were watching top of the pops and not thinking Oh man, this is awful. Satan's um, influencing us via Top of the Pops. You're like, bring it on, Father, come to me. <laughs> Daddy's coming home. Yeah. <laughs> we never had any of that Satan-y shit round our way. The only symbolism we um, went looking for was the Queen's fanner. <laughs> did you? Do you have that? I don't, no. Is it ten pound note or five, five pound note? Yeah, yeah. If, if you got a five pound note, you'd turn around to your mate and go, "Do you want to see the Queen's fanner?" <laughs> And you fold it in such a way that the the kind of like mm. crease under a chin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I don't know if you could do that now with a note. We can't even fold a focus. This is now. why you know this is why they ruined everything by bringing in the plastic notes. Yeah, yeah, but but also you know their chins got a bit baggier as well. Well, you know, perhaps uh, no. Let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, 
it's the programme that brings you the cream of the crop of British pop. And we're going to start off with a bit of Star Trek's Club Disco, just like this. This episode of Top of the Pops is hosted by Richard Skinner. He's currently holding down the 8 to 10 in the evening slot after Mike Reed was promoted to the breakfast show in late 1980. And tonight he'll be taking over from Paul Gambaccini's hour-long appreciation of Dusty Springfield before handing off to John Peel, of course. He's also become Tommy Vance's understudy for the Saturday evening show Rock On. And in October, he becomes the new host of Round Table, where him and a collection of pop sorts pick over the latest new releases. I bet you're two listened to Roundtable, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. Oh well I listen, yeah. I listen to anything on Radio mm. One. Just pretty yeah. much had it on all day long. Yeah. But Roundtable was really good because yeah. you, you could hear people slagging off other people's mm-hmm. records. Yeah, yeah. After Kid Jensen left the BBC to become a newsreader for Ted Turner's WTBS Superstation in Atlanta, Skinner made his Top of the Pops debut on September the 11th, 1980, as Jimmy Savile's YTS lad. This is his sixth Top of the Pops performance this year, and a year later, he became one of the rotating presenters of the revamped Old Grey Whistle Test. But he was part of the cast of Top of the Pops right through to 1985, so, you know, he's actually a key figure for the good half of the 80s, isn't he? For t- Top of the Pops and, and pop music, radio and television. He is, but oh God, he's so fucking boring, isn't he? I mean, it, it's it's weird because as a kid, um, a kindly face can be enough, I think. <laughs> mm. He's like, he's just the most got the most bland voice imaginable. There's no edges. There's nothing of interest about him. He never threatens to be interesting. I guess that's what... They wanted. He's kind of like Bernard from Yes Minister or something. Um, but as a t- <laughs> as a teen um, later on in the eighties, that mm. wasn't enough for Kindly Face. And I'll never forget. You know, they used to do a chart rundown on the Old Grey Whistle Test. Um, they used to talk about the new right. entries, and I'll never forget him calling Cameo worthless. No, and that they shouldn't be in the chart. Oh yes, and that they shouldn't be what in the charts band. when running down the chart on our Grow Whistle Test. So fuck him. I've gone off him now. Yeah, Jesus. and the fact that he worked closely with that embearded poltroon Richard Branson on the launch and programming policy of Virgin 1215 mm-hmm. means that he's indirectly responsible for the rise of Chris Evans. So yeah. So, oh, fuck, him, so fuck him in the ear, fuck him in the other ear of the rat bastard. And <laughs> he does actually look like some kind of rodent, the human equivalent of Roland mm. Rat. Um but John yeah, he, he's so he's just dull as fuck, isn't he, Skinner? Yeah. I was going to say he's hard to hate until I heard all yeah. that. I'm, <laughs> I'm finding it easier. I'm finding it easier. Um, I mean, we've we've done Skinner before, and you know he is very much you know an empty taxi pulled up and Richard Skinner got out. <laughs> and uh, um, and yeah, um, I, I remember on a previous episode describing Simon Bates as being you know as looking like a. Um, a maths teacher on a Friday afternoon who sort of unbuttoned his top collar and just sort of letting his hair yeah. down a little bit, but, you know. Um, and, and and Skinner's got that as yes. well, right down to the fact that the shirt he's wearing in this episode looks like it's made out of graph. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Which just puts you, it puts you in mind that you're at school. Yeah. Oh, I bet you wanted to fill in every other square, didn't you, Simon, at that time? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Right, of course I did. Madness, <laughs> madness. 
<laughs> Madness modness, yeah, totally. Um, Neil mentions a kindly face. I think Skinner kind of does have a kindly face, and his, his presence on the show isn't as egregiously kind of um, teacher-esque as Bates. Yeah. You know, yeah. He, he, he doesn't have that aggressively parental, stern, disapproving thing going on. Mm. Um, you, you can tell he's not really into the music that's being played, but he does enough of a professional job. Yeah. Just to sort of a bit, a bit like um, Gary Davis did in the sort of uh, in the early nineties uh, episode we did recently. Yes. He's just there to sort of move things along. Mm. Although, as we will see, he does kind of overstep the mark in some pretty weird ways in this episode. <laughs> he does, yes. I mean, we, we talk we talk about the the, the dullness of Richard Skinner, but um, the last episode we watched yeah. from nineteen eighty one, we had Travis trying to outweird mm, mm. the axe. And there was no need for that in 1981. Yeah, there yeah. was enough weirdness going on that you did need a, a calming influence in between. Yeah. And Skinner fulfills that role for me in this. T- tell you a weird thing, though, because, um, again, let, letting uh, daylight in upon magic and tugging away the wizard's curtain just a little bit. But um, on Facebook the other day, Al, you, you shared with us... Um, uh, a, a sound clip of some old uh, Richard Skinner yes. uh, sort of jingles yeah. from Radio 1. I mean... Do you, do you want to talk about it? Or I mean, oh well, yeah. It's um, it just just basically yeah, any old band who wants to get played on Radio One, they've got to you know there's a price to pay, isn't there? They've got to they've got to shell the DJs. Some of them are really out of character. There's there's one thing, and I don't know who it was, but some kind of very geezerish voice threatening headbutts and stuff. If you don't listen, oh, that was John Otway. Was it right? Okay, and yeah. then you had Splodgeness Abounds doing a sort yes. of two pints of lager and a packet of crisp based thing. Um, again, yeah. which is like really not—that's not his persona at all. And then there's there's no. landscape do United Stein mm. go go. Yes. Maybe, you know, I don't know, but it's very very odd. I mean, was were, were people that desperate to get played on his show that they do that? Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I you know, so. eight to ten slot. You know, that's yeah. uh, that's their, their natural habitat, isn't it? I guess so. It's just, yeah. It's yeah. just it just just does. the the idea of can you imagine him down the front at a splodge gig? Is all I'm saying. You know. <laughs> no, I can imagine him being the person. Getting served while Max Splodge is waiting for his two pints of lager and a pint yeah, of yeah, yeah. He's like those people who go out on New Year's Eve for their one drink of the mm. year, just clogging up the bar and wasting time deciding what they want. And he's getting around it and he asks for the Guinness last. Yeah. So, Skinner, in an open neck white shirt with a graph paper pattern and powder blue slacks, stands in the middle of the studio with the ladies of the early 80s clustered around him as well as a greb lad with very lank hair and Mike Reed glasses. He promises the cream of the crop of British pop and introduces <laughs> Star Trek's Club Disco by Star Trek. Formed in London in 1981, Star Trek's was the brainchild of the British producer Bruce Baxter, who began his career as the songwriter for the Swedish beat group The Soul Reps under the pseudonym Seamus O'Toole, <laughs> before writing for Miriam McCabe, The Spotniks and the Swedish rock and roll singer Little Gerhardt. After moving into production for Pickwick International in 1970, knocking off cover versions of Hare and Tommy, he oversaw the production of over 50 compilation LPs for Hallmark Records from 1971 to 1978 under the title Top of the Pops, after they discovered that the BBC hadn't trademarked the name. 
After Baxter backed away from the project at the end of 1978, he acted as a conductor for the orchestral sections of Barbara Dixon's LP Sweet Oasis and did the score for the Dutch TV series Jewel in the Depth in 1979 and has just finished his latest gig as the music arranger of the Anglo-Dutch cartoon series Dr. Snuggles. <laughs> In the meantime, Yap Egermont, the former drummer of the rock band Golden Earring and the current overseer of Star Sounds, has been in the top ten for six weeks with Stars on 45, a Beatles medley which got to number two in May of this year, and Stars on 45 Volume 2, an ABBA medley which also got to number two only last month. Both singles kicked off a medley infestation in the charts and Baxter, noticing that the Bee Gees hadn't been bagsied yet, has weighed in with a seven-part cut-and-shut tribute to the Isle of Man's greatest band. After entering the charts at number 47, it's been on a four-week pull up the lower reaches of the top 40 and it's up this week from number 21 to number 18. Well, you know, one thing I've noticed about Skinner... Um, when he knows he's talking bollocks, <laughs> as my mum used to say when I was playing Atari, he's not holding his mouth right. <laughs> he does this very Jonathan King-like half-snarl as he lies to the pop-crazed youngsters about this being the cream of the crop of British pop, <laughs> when we all know it's actually the chaff of the spaff. <laughs> this is 1981, isn't it, Simon, for a lot of people? Yeah, dum, i I kind dum, of forgotten. Dum, dum. I Sorry, mean, I was going to do that to <laughs> carry out the whole just, conversation. Yeah, do it through the whole episode if you want. Yes. Um, I mean, yeah, you mentioned Stars on 45, um, who I guess that, that was the big one. But um, yeah. I, I actually, without sort of giving too much away, I, I counted how many of these medleys yeah. are so in, in the top 30. There are five of the fuckers, which yes. means one in six records in the top 30 is a medley. So you've got Star Trek's. You've got Enigma, yes. which I don't actually remember. It's not the Gregorian chant guys from the 90s. It's no. uh, somebody doing a disco mega mix. Uh, it's, got... it's a Philly soul uh, medley. I yeah. love music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At number 25. Um, you've got uh, Louis Clark, Royal Philharmonic, which is, you know, a huge hit. Yeah. Um, doing number three. classics, yeah. Lobo, the Caribbean disco show. Yeah, number and, eight. And Tight Fit with one of their Back to the 60s records, I guess, mm. right? Yeah. Number nine. Yeah, which... It's it's mental uh, that you know one in six records in top thirty is one of these, and yeah. what does it Don't say about Beach DJing? Boy Gold by oh, Gideon Park? Oh, is that still in there? Yeah, number oh, thirteen. Oh, it's, right, so it's one in five records then. Yeah, and Don't outside of the top forty, I think around in the early seventies, the Beach Boys have done their own They've Beach done their Boys own. medley. Right. Yeah, this may well be this week may well be the high watermark of the medley record. And what does it tell you about the state of DJing at the time? Oh, yeah. I mean, club DJ. Oh. You know, the, I mean, do you think when people like, you know, Cool Herc and Grandmaster Flash were pioneering the form, that they <laughs> yeah. thought that it would end up like this? Some yeah. fucking cunt of Butlins can just stick on uh, six minutes of, of, of the Beach Boys uh, or, or the Bee Gees or ABBA mm. or whoever it may be and just go yeah. off and have a pint. Jesus. <laughs> well, I was thinking, who, who bought these fucking things? Because... Yeah. You know, yeah, and then I thought, yeah, DJs must have bought them, but that doesn't account for that many records in the top 30. No, true. Uh, so people are buying them, listening to them at home. Why would you do that? Why? Why would you? Well, I guess it's because greatest hits albums were quite hard to come by at that time, you know. Yeah. Um, a, lo- a lot of these bands didn't have a greatest hits out. Um, so, you know, if, if, if you only had, 
you know, 99p or whatever mm. to spend on it. You could get the whole lot. But I'm not justifying it. I never bought any of them. No. But I, I suppose no. that, that was the, the marketability of them. Mm. I actually don't remember this one. Um, and I when when yeah. he said Star Trek's and first of all, you see the audience all dancing like crazy. I thought, yes. well, that's I thought that's With two balloons each. <laughs> yeah. And I, I thought they flipped the show almost. I thought they'd sort of done the sort of crowd dancing bit that's normally at the end first. Mm. And I was cut because that's what it looks like. And then gradually the camera zooms in, and you realise there's an actual band that, yeah, in amongst yeah. there. And like fr- from a distance, they they look like old folkies or something. Like like yeah, ri- they like, look ri- well dinner dance, don't they? <laughs> or like 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 the Straubs or the Spinners or something mm-hmm. like that. You know, yeah. um, not, as in the English Spinners, not the Detroit. I don't know which one the Baxter one is, but I'll go through what they look like to me. The front man looks like James Whale, right? <laughs> yes. Um, there's, there's, there's another one, the one who goes, hey, are you ready? Let's go. Who looks like Bob mm. Carroll G's, but without Spit the Dog. Yeah. And he's yes, got, in a very shiny red mm. shirt. Yeah, red shirt, very high-waisted slacks and white yes. shoes, mm. right? Yes. There, there's a drummer who looks like a high-court artist's impression of Phil Collins, right? <laughs> yes. And there's a keyboardist who looks like what would happen if he dressed a turtle up as the Yorkshire Ripper. <laughs> but um, the, 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 the one the one who fascinated me the most though is this guy he's got very thick hair uh, he's, mm. he's the guy who does does the night fever bit of the medley uh, he, yes. he plays the bass and he's just got this yeah. expression he's got this thin-lipped expression oh, where God, he, yeah. he, he looks confused and faintly disgusted about being there like like there's a bad smell like like the James Whale when has farted or something and yeah. he, he looks to me he looks how Brian Wilson probably looked in 1981 um, mm. And there's a weird bit where he he's going into um, um, is it how deep is your love where it goes I see mm. your eyes in the morning sun yeah he does that line then he mouths ow like he's hurt his finger on the strings yes <laughs> it's like, what, what's he done has he been, has he got an electric shock probably not though the mining and, well quite and you look at the state of them and you think technically. These blokes were pop stars. They were pop stars. Um, yes. As you say in the intro, mm. they've been on top of the pops more than we have. Yes. And, and, and for once, that seems really wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If yeah. this bum were on Opportunity knocks, you'd be stroking your chin and going, oh, they don't belong there. Yeah. Mm. I mean, the bloke in the red shirt, you know who he looks like? You, you know Gunnar Parkin off um, yes. the 10 and a half hot mob. Yes, when he, he turned yeah. up, When he turned up in Only Fools and Horses as a copper <laughs> with that moustache, <laughs> looks just like... <laughs> I found that bass player incredibly disturbing. Yeah, uh, he's got cold, dead shark eyes. Yeah, um, and a really scary presence. I mean, God, how I wish this had been a Legs and Co thing. I mean, it's a terrible record that shouldn't be on there anyway. But it's awful. But it's a performance that goes from it's quite the, at the beginning. They're sort of smiling as they realise that the crowd recognise the tunes yeah. they're playing. Well, yeah, as seen as most of them are about three or four years. Well, old. yeah, exactly, and then. There's a slight sense of worry as they sense that the yeah. crowd realise that this is all they're going to do. Um, mm. And that's the act. Yes. And then they just start fronting it out like a shit seaside act. It, it's a really. That's exactly it, what they It's look a pretty like. bad start to the show and really should have been a legs and co number. It makes you hunger for the charismatic stage presence of Morris Gibb, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Only a few years after this, I, I was working in Butlins, Barry Island. And um, most of yes. the bands, there, there were bands that would just play in the bar doing covers. And this is exactly yes. what they look like. And I'm talking mm. about 1984, yeah. 85. They still look like that. So, yeah, this is totally oh, what they Oh, mate. I remember going to Butlins the year before, and there was a band who looked just like Star Treks. Yeah. And crowds full of skinheads and mods. So they're having to play the modern stuff, and they did <laughs> Rat Race. Oh my <laughs> God. And I'll never forget. Yeah, I'll never forget 
the uh the, the, the lead singer sang it instead of the promises you make tomorrow carry no guarantee he sang your mother says you'll make tomorrow carry no guarantee oh no I got it wrong Blimey. yeah Shit. yeah <laughs> that was me with my my freshly uh ironed on jam patch t-shirt with peanuts across the top um just just shaking my head going no mate you weren't like actually you know throwing yourself into it you were thinking this is my one moment of like music that talks to me and just like sort of go down the front and really you weren't like uh like 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 jimmy in quadrophenia you know in that dancing when i fell into that boating lake with my new t-shirt on my mum would have said that I make tomorrow carry no guarantee <laughs> while wagging a finger. So yeah, you know, I think I think he improved on Terry Hall's lyrics there. Sure enough. But I mean, we we have to bear in mind that the real life actual Bee Gees are about to release an LP that no one will buy next month. It True. only gets to number seventy three in the charts. Wow. So here they are being upstaged by these dads. And the weird thing is that they they throw Massachusetts in there. Yeah, That's what yes. That they got all the me. disco. Yeah, yeah. they got all the disco hits. And then in the middle, they've got one of the sort of 60s ballads like why is it just because it's a it's yeah. a fairly famous bg song it just doesn't mm. doesn't work at all we only get five of the seven so it's more than a woman night fever tragedy massachusetts and how deep yeah. is your love at least he didn't do anything out of cucumber castle <laughs> that'd be amazing like some some real deep cuts i mean we need to talk chaps about about the pickwick top of the pops albums did you ever have any oh yeah definitely and and yeah. you know my first introduction to death disco by pill was that was that yes. cover, which yes. is in some way superior to the original <laughs> um they, yeah. That, that, yeah they just t- they were the now of their day if you like um yes. you had to get them not only for the sexy stunners on the cover but Ooh, also yes. for the for the pickwick pops orchestra Butch, well, not they didn't butcher things. They gave things an interesting slant, I think, on some of those uh, on some of those albums. But I had yeah. pretty much all of them from about seventy nine till about eighty two. I would think. I I mm. did not um, have any of them, but um, I because I was a KTL kid, so uh, uh, uh. The, the first three KTL ones I had was Midnight Hustle, uh, which was a hand me down for my granddad, uh, and Night Moves, and then Video Stars. Uh, they, Night Moves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Night Moves, my favourite. That was brilliant. Um, but some of my friends had these Top of the Pops albums. I remember going around someone's house, um, and I, I guess I'll name and shame, Carl Humphreys, hey man. Um, so uh, <laughs> he insisted that it was the real versions. And I was trying to tell him, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, Carl. Yeah, yeah. And he was he was playing, uh, um, uh, I think it was like, it might have been Too Much Too Young by the Specials or something mad like that. Oh. And I, I actually went home and brought my single of it and said, no, 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 listen, it's not the same. He's going, yes, it is. And... People just, you know, just didn't didn't want to believe that they that they they've been conned. It's funny that. I'm assuming that would be the single version, which which was live. Well, well, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And did they say too much, too young at the beginning? Oh, I can't remember. But oh, um, I need to dig that out now. Of course, in my head, it's Elton John doing it because famously Elton John did loads of that. But I, th- I guess he had bigger fish to fry by 1980. I mean, what's the worst medley record you've heard? They're interchangeably awful for me. But I, I mean, honestly, I think it's this one. I think it's Star Tracks. Yeah. Um, because of the interpolation of Massachusetts in there, that really fucking angered me. Mm. Um, and the the sheer lazy implacability of the beat, and it just does nothing. The record yeah. does nothing. Goes nowhere. It's just. It could not be lazy. They've just cut their leg and, and pinched this one off. Yeah. It's it's just yeah. I think this is the pits actually. Star Tracks. There's actually um, a really ropey T Rex one called Mega Rex, um, no. which I, yeah, uh, it joins I think three songs together um, in a really kind of cut and shut way. Because um, mm. if ever a band's music doesn't lend itself to, 
It's T-Rex yeah, because yeah, it's yeah. all about boogie and, you know, feel. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. you just got somebody trying to jam it together like that. Really bad. With Hooked on Classics at number three, you've obviously heard Classical Mudley by the Portsmouth Symphonia, haven't you? No. That band, that 70s experimental band where no one oh, can yeah. actually no play the play, yeah, yeah. But uh, have you heard The Punks of 76 by Friendly <laughs> Hopefuls? No. No. Oh. Should I? I think you ought to go over to the video playlist now and have a listen to it. <laughs> it will rile you, Simon. Okay. I'm probably going to love it. You know, there's about 40 people behind the band and they've got, you know, they've got balloons on and everything. And uh, But there's two girls who haven't have thrown away their balloons because they're lost in the reverie of the clapping. Uh, but they're still clapping on the fucking on beat. <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with them? So, yeah, it was a contagion, granny claps. Yeah, this is it. This is where it came from. Yeah. yeah. This is what you do to music from here on in, kids. Wasn't it a shame that Pickwick didn't put out a Top of the Pops LP and have nothing but cover versions of all these medley records. <laughs> I think Pop would have disappeared up its own arse at that That's point. That's hurting my head just yeah. thinking yeah. about it. That'd be nuts. So the following week, Star Trek's Club Disco dropped six places to number 24. The follow-up, a medley called Reggae's Greatest Hits, Oof. featuring Young, Gifted and Black Wonderful world, beautiful people, Monkey Man, and Obladi Oblaba. How do you do the granny claps to Monkey Man? For fuck's sake. I I really do want to hear it. (laughs) I do. I can't find it anywhere, man. If anyone's got that, alert me to it, please. But that failed to chart and they were never heard from again in the UK. Although they put out the LP Rock and Dance on 45 in Yugoslavia, featuring the Bee Gees medley an Elvis medley, a Rod Stewart medley, a Credence Clearwater Revival medley, and a middle-of-the-road medley. That's the band, not the genre. And one month after this episode, the single was last seen being jumped on by two skinheads in Carnaby Street as part of a smash hits feature where they invited the general public to destroy medley records. And of course, what do we know about that, Simon? That feature? Sounds like a British version of Disco Demolition Night. Sounds faintly sinister. (laughs) It's also the first appearance in the British press of Boy George. Oh my God. Yeah, wow. he's holding up stars on 45 or one of their medley records and someone else is soaring through it. <laughs> we're living in a world of food, breaking us down when they are Pop Disco doing well in the charts at the moment. Also doing well in the charts is Mr Cliff Richard. He's wired for sound and vision. Surrounded by two Asian ladies of both persuasions, one oriental, one subcontinental, quickly hands off to the first video of the evening, Wired for Sound by Cliff Richard. 
We've discussed Cliff Richard all the fucking time on chart music, <laughs> not least in the last episode when he performed I Can't Ask for Anything More Than You, Babe, which got to number 17 in September of 1976. Since then, he's released five LPs, had a couple of flop singles, had a number one LP in 1977 with the compilation 40 Golden Greats, roared back in 1979 when We Don't Talk Anymore got to number one, received an OBE in 1980, duetted with Olivia Newton-John on the single Suddenly, and changed his name by D-Pol from Harry Webb to Cliff Richard. This single, the follow-up to A Little In Love, which got to number 15 in February of this year, is the first and title track from his forthcoming and 24th LP, which will be released in a fortnight. It was co-written by B.A. Cunterson, and it's accompanied (laughs) by the video, which was shot in and around the central Milton Keynes shopping centre, which was opened by Margaret Thatcher two years ago. And it's the second highest new entry this week at number 27. Oh, boys, boys, boys. Well. I get the image of your two like Babe Ruth lumbering up to the plate and <laughs> pointing your bat at the upper deck and calling your shots. A crack in my knuckles here, literally, yeah. Never had a chance to talk about Cliff. Um, oh. Actually, can, can, I, can I stop you there, Neil, right? Yeah. Because I, I, I think that we need to sort of properly let you off the leash with Cliff because you haven't done Cliff before. But just before yeah. we do, yeah, yeah. I just want to quickly rewind to the link that Skinner does there. Because you mentioned yes. how... That you know he is. I mean, he's flanked by, let's face it, two very foxy women. Um, yes. And uh, yeah, one uh, the Indian appearance, one a Far Eastern appearance. And I couldn't help yes. wondering what the latter is going to make, without spoiling anything. What's she yeah. going to make of the number one record? Yeah. So yes. I, I just want to leave that Fucking hanging. Hell, yes. Just going to leave yeah, that yeah. hanging there. Right, Neil, off you go. Yes. Well, the thing is with Cliff that even though there's plenty of pop stars who give us kind of a fantasy of what it might be like to be British and be from here. Um, artists as various as, I don't know, Bowie, Boland, the Stones are specials, bands that looked at how you can both avoid and disguise the fact that you're from here and also celebrate and explore being from here. Bands that kind of convince you that the establishment don't always win in this country. Cliff, for me, is proof of, of, of perhaps a deeper, more adult rather than adolescent truth, and that's that the establishment's always with us, will always win. And, and has the power to endure. And, it, and if I was being honest and I wanted to give someone an index of British pop, it would be it, horribly, it'd be Cliff that I'd send them to. Yeah. Um, it's telling that all those other bands had international appeal and Cliff never really did, unless you count Australia. Because anywhere else, I think his transparent, I'm going to say mediocrity, I think, would be exposed. Mm. Anywhere else, this kind of national curriculum hold he has over us just doesn't fly. He's just another singer with not a particularly great voice or a great stage presence. But you felt as a child throughout his films and his music that he was into it not really for reasons of pleasure or joy, but because he felt it was his calling. And and as time goes on, there was a great phrase that Pricey came up with a while back about the Beatles, about the fact that that, that kind of you have to listen to the Beatles. It's almost like part of the staple diet. And it was sit down and eat your Beatles. And I, I yes. use that phrase all the time. Um, there's a sense of that with Cliff. But of course, the further you dig with Cliff, and you yeah. do as time goes on, the more unpleasant he becomes. Mm. So you start finding out what he said about Bowie, for instance, um, in 1970. What? Well, in 73, he condemned Bowie completely. He said, here's a genuine married man dressing up as a woman. 
The impact is not on people like myself or those in my age group, but on the youngsters who'll become tomorrow's people. What will those 10 and 11 year olds think of someone who's a man dressing up as a woman at a pop show? He upsets me as a man. Um, You find out things like that. I recently, in a spirit of kind of stupidness, uh, picked up a book (laughs) from a charity shop called uh, Jesus... God and Me by Cliff Richard. And digging into it, there's, there was a very, very telling and convenient quote. Um, if you're at school and you've cheated your way through exams, God can forgive you. If you've lied or deceived or been unfaithful to someone you love, God can accept you as though you'd never done it. And this is the key bit. If there's something that has been on your conscience for years and it feels like some permanent stain on your life, God can wipe it clean completely and forever, yes, very convenient. Um, uh, what have you, you done, know, Cliff? What have yeah, you but done? one man's stain is another man's fertil sixty years ago with, with a consenting adult. Well, this is it. The thing is with Cliff. Hello, Cliff's lawyer. At the moment, we have to say innocent of all charges, and and we have to say that if he has done anything, I think it's so deep and so dark that it will never come out until after he's gone, and you know he has the ability to shut people up. Um, you know, politically as well with Cliff, he's he was an an unstinting supporter of Thatcher. I can't forget his demanding of an apology from the audience when Kenneth Baker got booed at the 89 Brits. I can't forget, really. I know he's not unique in that he played Sun City. An awful lot of people did, you know, taking advantage of that flimsy legality that, you know, it wasn't part of South Africa. Um, and, you know, Elton John and, and you know, Queen and, and uh, Rod Stewart. A lot of people played Sun City. But whereas when, when Sabbath or Quo's played Sun City, I can sort of see it as ignorance mainly. With Cliff, when he was questioned about it, about his incessant trips to perform in South Africa, he asserted that the wider politics of apartheid had, um, and this is the quote, nothing to do with me. That's got to do with economics or something. But why are we talking about politics? It's an abstract thing that hangs over countries and has no meaning. I'd rather talk about God. Um, And he he said, I go wherever Christians invite me to speak about Jesus. It's a platform I've been given by God. He's creepy to me in a way that reminds me massively of the school that I went to. Reminds me of those authority figures who used religion as a way of hiding um, a real darkness in what they were doing. And and for me, I, Cliff has that simultaneous kind of comedy feel almost. You can laugh at him, but there's also a deep, deep creepiness about him. But because he's part of your pop diet from a seriously young age, he's like, I don't know, he's like the Farley's Rusks or the Grightwater of pop. And he yeah. never loses that unpleasant taste for me. But by the time I was eight, I'd heard the hits and I'd seen the films. I was aware of them. I'd obviously seen and understood the fact that everyone could do an impression of him as well. It was like he had everyone fooled, just uh-huh. like my teachers did. And, and yeah. you know, it's not that I don't believe he's capable of horrible things. He's, it's just that I do think that he's... <laughs> I don't think that, um, I don't want to say anything libelous, obviously, but if there is a truth about Cliff that isn't the squeaky clean truth that he's presented to the world, mm. I think it's so contrastingly dark and so disturbing that we'll never learn it in his lifetime. So there's all that thing for the prosecution. For the defence, I would say perhaps this record, maybe, Wired for Sound. Perhaps. This is essentially Cliff's midlife crisis being played out. <laughs> 
here it is, is though. though. But you know what? He right, he was forty, and I yes. I, I am going to do that thing now. So that means he was the same age then as these people are now. Okay, mm. um, Robin, um, Sophie Ellis Baxter, Nelly mm. Furtado, Usher, Good Adam God. Levine from Maroon Five, and Julian Casablancas from The Strokes. Mm. Right. right, who are all people have been around a while, but we don't think of them as elderly. You know, yeah. if basically if Robin if Robin came out with a roller skating video now, we wouldn't be laughing at her. Do you mm. know what I mean? Mm. But this was, uh, it was quite a sight, wasn't it? <laughs> it was at the time. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, so a cliff. Obviously, uh, you know, as as Taylor and David said in the last episode, every now and again he he goes in for a, a bit of a retooling and a revamping to to look vaguely of the times. And it's mm. you know it's 1981, just turned 40. Uh, time to go in again, uh, but he's not—he's not wearing a blouse and pixie boots, nor is he singing songs about Rubik cubes or CB radio. He's gone—he's <laughs> gone for roller skating and hi-fi. <laughs> <laughs> I, I never got into skating myself. Um, I remember once uh, my cousin came round and she had some roller skates that were just those ones. It's literally just the skate bit, and you tie yes. it onto your shoe, right? Yeah. And mm. I tried it on, and instantly I went over backwards, cracked my head on the doorstep, and it's like, yes. oh, maybe yeah, this yeah. is not for me. And I remember um, one of my mates had a skateboard when that when that craze first came over, which would be about 1977, 78. Mm. And uh, again, I, I I managed to stay on it for about two seconds. I just thought, I'm not made for this at all. <laughs> so fair play to Cliff, age 40. He seems to have mastered the art of not just skating, but danger skating. Danger um, fairly, skating, fairly indeed, quickly. yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I mean this to me is what is is the landmark video of the early eighties, as far as I can see. <laughs> it is something that every time you go back, there's something new that just jumps out. Yeah, it's kind of amazing. Yeah, it is. It is. So the the video starts with Cliff trapped in a roller labyrinth with Marshall stacks piled up behind him, and I, I, I say, I'd say, you know, danger skating, yeah, danger rolling. Okay, all right. I mean, he manages to stand upright. We don't know how many takes it took, but you do get the feeling that 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 off to the side, there's a load of people just kind of like wanging him into shots, (laughs) and he's he's basically trying to stay upright. Yeah, and that danger skating is him just trying to get his balance. I think. Yeah, you you do get the sense that the other skaters are moderating their routine somewhat. Just yeah, because they they're good. And they going by good. this video, the only males who could actually roller skate in 1981 were all black. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And they're his friends. We're meant to believe that these are his friends. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's dark mates. He's dark <laughs> mates. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, we, we cut to Cliff in a black and gold jacket, black PVC trousers, yellow T-shirt and a Sony Walkman. But knowing Cliff and know how wide for sound he is, it could be a stowaway which was the Ooh. original title of the Walkman in the UK. Oh. And he, he's strutting past the Octo sculpture, which is a stainless steel figure eight, which resembles the infinity symbol, which is a, sounds like a different religion. I'm, I'm not sure Cliff <laughs> should be doing that. Know, did, you ever, did you ever go to Milton Keynes out of curiosity in the 80s? And, um, you know, Paul Weller tried to, uh, <laughs> he, he, you know, I, I actually did, yeah. In yeah, the late so did 80s, I. When I was into American football, my local team played the Milton Keynes Bucks. And so we went to the Milton Keynes Bowl. And I'd heard mm. of it before, of course, because that's where Status Quo played. And I turned up there and it was just a grass dip. I thought, <laughs> oh, this is shit. Yeah. But that's all I saw of it. I just saw a field. Didn't even see the concrete cows or anything. Oh, I seem to recall a family trip being organised to fucking go and see. Why? This. I don't. It might have been down to this video or something. But, but, <laughs> no. Uh, no, but the, the notion of a shopping centre 
was a new, thrilling, exciting thing. I mean, we yeah. had the boring, don't get me wrong, but yeah. um, this was this was different and glistening and new. But I remember getting there and being piss bored within about half an hour. Once you've seen lots of square panes of glass, you've, you've, you've seen it. I mean, this essentially is Cliff trying to do for Milton Keynes in the early 80s what he did for Birmingham in the early 70s, <laughs> isn't it? Do you want to explain that to everybody? Oh, they know. If they listen to the last chart music, they'll know what we're well, going They're all about, about Brumberger. Okay, yeah. Yes, yeah. And also... This is the equivalent of Stan Stennett doing that bye-bye meat and fish at the Bull Ring Shopping Centre. Oh, my God. You remember that, Neil, don't you? Vaguely, yeah, 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 vaguely. No, but um, the thing yeah. is, the, the reason that that's just given me all these kind of mad memories is because Stan Stennett, every year, uh, performed in Panto in Barry, where I'm from. And like wow. we were assured that oh he's he's a national figure he's famous but we hadn't heard of him from anything other than being in Panto in Barry and it was it's just this right. weird sort of closed loop of celebrity like how is he famous you're the first people I've ever heard mention the name Stan Stennett who didn't come from Barry well, Stan said he was in Crossroads was for fuck's sake oh I didn't watch yeah. that <laughs> Milton Keynes though right I mean. Um, it was always the the butt of very tired jokes by stand-up comedians mm. around that time, um, or just sort of people complaining about the, the modern age, like everything will be like Milton Keynes one day. I didn't really I d- yes. at the time. I don't think I had that much of a problem with it because, I mean, what was the alternative? They well, if Milton Keynes was this, then no, of course you wouldn't. The sort of people complained about Mil- the, the Milton Keynesization of Britain were the sort of people who wanted uh, town centres to be all kind of like half timbered Tudor pubs and stuff like that, and I, mm. I didn't want that. Mm. Either either so i kind of no, being yeah. a sort of contrarian teenager was like actually bring it on i want the future to look like this why not you know <laughs> um, but and and the, the fact that he's got a walkman was mind-blowingly futuristic yes. he does look yeah. like he's living the dream to some extent <laughs> you know in a previous chart music when we when we were talking about walkmans i managed to locate i was trying to price them up for the time mm. and the nearest i could get was a binatone one yeah it was a standard deliver video £50 a Binato one in Argos. I actually found the 1982 spring catalogue for Argos. Mm. Sony Walkman. Do you want to have a guess? Mm. Um, I remember them being prohibitively expensive. I reckon, what, mm. 79.99? Yeah, I was going to say something like that. Go on, what is it? £199. Pence. Allowing for inflation, that's about £416 Jesus. today. Jesus Christ. And there's Cliff with one on his sultry PVC clad hip. (laughs) (laughs) And also the the jacket, you know, the black and gold kind of thing going on. There's a logo of what I believe is Patch Records on the back. Well, it says Patch Records on the back. Right. And I've only been able to find two of their releases. An LP by Goth Hewitt, who was a folk and gospel singer, who did an LP with uh, Cliff on backing vocals. Right. And uh, in 1983, they put out the single Dusty Bin by Ted Rogers and the Young'uns. <laughs> yeah. A prestigious label, the Motown of its day. But this is it's like Cliff's new pop anthem in a way. It's an optimistic yes. record. And it's completely bereft of religious content or any of that. Um, it's just yeah. a hilarious, enjoyable record, especially in the video form that we see, in, see it in oh, here. Oh, it's amazing. I mean, it's not enough, it's to, it's not enough to deflect... Really, from the leathery turtlenecked horror that is Cliff, but it's but it's good, um, and it's kind of 
really, after this, he sort of disappears a little bit, I would say, Cliff. Mm. To, and, and it makes a reappearance towards the late 80s, I would say. But I would say yeah. this isn't... Although it's a reboot and a new start for him, I, I, I mentally put this at the tail end of his late 70s, early 80s revival. I put this yes. with records like We Don't Talk Anymore and Carry and, and things like that, yeah. um, which might be better records. Um, yeah, his, I, I, th- I think this is the last great Cliff single. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. His yeah. voice suits this sound, this kind of thick, glistening sound he gets on this record. And he can't mm. be didactic on this record. He can't be bo- God-bothering, basically. He's just part of the record. Wired for Christ. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a good song, despite B.A. Kunterson's uh, presence. And, and, and mm. even the fact that Shed 7 covered it can't spoil it. I think oh, we have to dear. sort of just man up and say and say because of B.A. Kunderson's presence, you know, you, you've got to yeah, give credit yeah, where it's yeah. due. Yeah, because yes. I know that in a previous episode, we've thoroughly done B.A. Kunderson to death to the extent that Taylor wanted to go and travel in a time machine, grab hold of him <laughs> as a baby and smash him against a sink. Um, yes. But had he done that, we wouldn't have got this we record. We wouldn't have this. No, no. Um, and yeah, I agree with Neil where he says it's... it's optimistic it's um it does have this weird utopianism to it which really really appeals to me it's the, the weird thing is though it's not pop what it is it sounds like advert music it sounds mm, like yeah. you expect mm. it to be talking about um Moulinex making things simple or cookability yes, the beauty of gas the price. yeah yeah it's, it's got that kind yeah. of advert feel to it, which is kind of weird um yeah milton it's Keynes. like a nicer clockwork orange isn't it <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> but the, the, the milton Keynes thing i, I wondered if it's it's, it, I mean, it is weird that it's his idea of a exotic location for for a pop yeah. video, and I wondered if, you know, by this point he's gone maybe a bit um, prematurely Brexit. Maybe af- after his uh, mm. his early years of, of bus holidays in France on camera yeah. and uh, and nuclear, he's having a staycation, yeah, nu- nuclear incidents in Spain. Let's not forget in another film. Mm. Um, but I wondered yes. whether he was burned by Eurovision failure, and never wanted to leave England again, and just you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the, the whole skating yeah. thing, I, I wonder how that came into his life. And I wondered, right, yeah. and I've got a theory about this. Um, I wonder if this was afters from Xanadu, right? Because mm. um, yes. Cliff uh, sang the love theme suddenly from Xanadu with Olivia Newton-John. Yes. And I, I like to imagine a scenario where one night in Munich, because this is where they recorded uh, that song, um, after a long and exhausting uh, recording session in Musicland uh, with John Farrer, uh, I'd, I'd like to imagine Cliff and Olivia had a bit of a heart to heart, and uh, and he goes, yeah. uh, "Do you ever do you ever feel like you you need something else in life?" And and uh, <laughs> and and you know, Olivia senses he's about to give her the God speech, so so mm. so she goes, mm. "Yes," and I know just the thing, and Cliff, <laughs> you know, Cliff Cliff recoils, thinking she's going to offer him some wacky backy uh, or worse, because mm. after all, she was in Nashville in the seventies, and you yeah. know. You, you can't tell me that ONJ hasn't parties, right? So, no. but instead, she reaches into her bag and says, "Here, try these," and she hands him a spare pair yeah. of roller skates from the film. <laughs> and then they both they both kind of zoom off into the night, swirling around a deserted Bogenhausen district, laughing and, and carefree, and you know, yeah. just 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 free spirits. And, and Cliff thinks, "I've been missing this all all these years. I must yeah. immediately on my next yeah. record uh, do something about this." That's all I can imagine. <laughs> The song's about him being mental about sound mm. and, you know, speaker systems and all this kind of shit. But, you know, you see him with a Walkman on and you just think, what the fuck would Cliff Richard listen to on a Walkman? And I can't think of anything else but Cliff Richard. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, or the, the output Billy of Patch Graham Records. inspirational speeches or something. The entire catalogue of Patch Records, you know, including Dusty Bear. Yes, yeah, yeah. there's many favourite bits to pull out of this, but I, I do like the one where he's, he's malevolently bowling along a darkened subway. 
because it reminds me of that scene in The Warriors where they meet up with the punks. You know that gang who are all dressed up like Rod, yeah, Jane yeah. and Freddie? Yeah, yeah. And there's a point man on roller skates. <laughs> I can imagine Cliff doing that. I like the bit when he he spins round with a, with, with a black girl, I think. and, and that's, His girlfriend, yeah. Yeah, and that's all he does for about 30 seconds because he can't do anything more complicated. I, th- I, Sex. <laughs> I think it accompanies that key line in the song, which is, um, uh, I said, you love me, then love means you must like what I like. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. What, what yeah, is he getting at? Get ready there? to spend loads of Saturday mornings at Lasky's and Richard Sarmstock looking at the separates. <laughs> He's that kind of person who would not walk into that not the nine o'clock news sketch and say, Yes, I want slimline salad dressing in my stereo. <laughs> he knows you you won't be able to fool Cliff. <laughs> Anything else? Yes, actually. Yes. Uh, being an old goth, recovering goth as I am, um, the thing that struck me about this video, the first few seconds when he, he looms into sight through a cloud of smoke in a black shiny jacket and mirrored sunglasses. To me, yeah. at that moment, he's indistinguishable from Andrew Eldritch of the Sisters of Mercy <laughs> circa, oh. circa this corrosion, right? Yeah. And there's also, there's also another bit just after the first chorus where Cliff is shadowed against a backlight. It's kind of vortex of light. And that's very yes. much like the Sisters video for Walk Away. And then... Um, oh. And what we're saying is... Well, um, Eldritch, right, used to pretend that the biggest influences on the sisters were, I don't know, like Leonard Cohen and Suicide yeah. and The Doors no, and Iggy Pop and all yeah. that. But he obviously had his chart pop side, as as proven by their cover of Hot Chocolate's Emma. Um, so I'm saying maybe that the secret uh, influence behind the Sisters of Mercy was Cliff all along. Yeah. Yeah. Wow! Yeah. Imagine Cliff doing this corrosion. Good lord! <laughs> <laughs> but the the, the 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 ending of this video is key as well. The way it loops, yes. the way it repeats, yes. is is properly yes. scary and terrifying. Uh, it gets a bit Starlight Express at the end, doesn't it? It does. That bit when he swoops into the camera, yeah. you know, crouching, and that woman's ass is behind his left ear. Um, yes, on a repetitive loop, and the, and they're pulling a train on him. Oh, is it the same bit over and over? I wasn't sure if they just reshot it slightly differently every time. You know, I, I think it's I the know. same bit over and over, which just accentuates Cliff's scariness. I think the only thing that is stopping this from being even more of the greatest video ever is they should have had a scene of Cliff dressed as a Rastafarian <laughs> on his roller skates with a ghetto blaster. <laughs> That's the one piece of the hi-fi jigsaw that was missing. <laughs> so the following week, Wired for Sound soared 16 places to number 11. And the week after that, it got to number four, its highest position. The follow-up, brace yourself, Neil. A live cover of the 1961 Shep and the Limelight song, Daddy's home. Jesus. (laughs) Spent four weeks at number two in December of this year, held off the top spot by Don't You Want Me. You could do a a really amazing mashup of Daddy's home with um, the scary choral music from The Omen. And just (laughs) really freaked me out. No, man, that is actually scaring me. Roller skates. Anyway, we're Wired for Sound too. Don't forget us. And Wired for Sound at number two in the charts. It's Soft Cell and Tainted Love. Here they go. 
founding Leeds Polytechnic in 1977 by Dave Ball and Mark Almond, an art student and a performance art student who used to smash things up, have it off with a mirror and smear himself with cat food, Soft Cell began their recording career by borrowing two grand off Ball's mam and putting out the independent EP Mutant Moments in October of 1980, which sold 2,000 copies. This brought them to the attention of Stephen Pearce, better known as Steve-O, a 17-year-old mobile DJ who put together the Futurist Charts for Sounds, who was so taken by Mutant Moments that he hitchhiked up to Leeds to see them in concert, after which he offered to manage them and put them on his compilation LP of unsigned synth bands entitled The Some Bizarre Album. After cutting a deal between Sun Bazaar and Phonogram Records, which involved Steve-O negotiating with the label via a tape recorder stuffed inside a teddy bear, which was dressed as Robin Hood, and Steve-O being put on a weekly retainer of some toughies, they put out the single Memorabilia in March of this year, but it failed to chart. This is the follow-up, a cover of the 1964 Gloria Jones B-side written by Ed Cobb of the Four Preps, which was salvaged in a Philadelphia record shop in 1973 by the Northern Soul DJ Richard Searling, who played it out in the Bolton Club Varvar. As it spread throughout Northern England, Jones saw fit to re-record it in 1976, but it didn't chart. But after this version entered the top 42 weeks ago and the subsequent Top of the Pops performance, it soared 17 places to number 9. And this week, it's up 7 places to number 2. And oh my God, what a one-two punch this is. Absolutely. And this. (laughs) Where do we start, chaps? Well, I believe the first thing we need to do is to run a finger along the chart music bookshelf and pick out Tainted Life. Mark Almond's first autobiography, which details this very performance. <laughs> Back in Leeds, I got a telephone call. They want you on Top of the Pops, the legendary Top of the Pops, where I had watched my childhood idols growing up. The programme that I had wished so many times to be on, but never thought I could be, not in a million years. Something like Top of the Pops seems so far away, so dreamlike and unreal. A land of starburst lights, chrome sets, luminescent pink smoke and dancers wearing fringes and lycra, sprinkling handfuls of bad taste everywhere. The land where it was always the 70s. (laughs) I was to stand on the stage of the most famous show in Britain, the marker of having made it. Everyone who had ever known me would see me, and all of those who would dismiss me, laugh at me, or been mean would, with luck, be sick to their stomachs. Yes. I was dazed as I arrived at the BBC that day and was shown to the studio. It was disappointingly small. Roger Ames, phonograms A&R, hovered around, concerned that we say the right things to the right people. It has always amused me to see powerful record company executives kowtow to the Top of the Pops producers. Nothing was as important as Top of the Pops, and Michael Hurl put the fear of God into them all. (laughs) Roger grew increasingly concerned with what I had chosen to wear, particularly my bracelets and thick eyeliner. He feared that I was going to blow it with a major display of campness. 
Those little demons on my shoulder encouraged me and I decided that I should do just what I wanted and be me. We'll come back to that later, but this is... This is pretty key, isn't it, this performance? It is. As I mentioned before, I, I did quite a lot of work with Soft Cell last year when they were doing their mm. sort of farewell yeah. gig and their um, their box set, Keychains and Snowstorms, uh, for which I wrote the big kind of booklet essay. And, um, and I, I interviewed them. And uh, so I can kind of um, corroborate um, what Mark said there from Dave Ball's side, because they were sharing a flat at that time yes. so he, he says he remembers the moment the phone rang um, and it was the, the place was very soft sell it was very sort of bed sitter video he said uh, uh, yeah. at one point it was so pest infested at one point he had to um, decapitate a scurrying mouse on the draining board uh, but anyway oh, nice. he goes so yeah he says uh, we were in a housing association building Mark had a room I had a room there was a pay phone in the hallway we were waiting for a phone call from Phonogram because the record was doing really well in the clubs and shops and they said make sure you're in because we might get top of the pops if you're lucky. Mark goes and answers right. it and I hear this screaming, oh my God, oh my God, ah! And he goes, it's number 26, we've got <laughs> top of the pops, fucking hell. So it's frantic yeah. calls to your mum. Mum, you'll never guess what, that three years at art college wasn't a total waste. <laughs> I quite like that. <laughs> and it also corroborates, um, my, my chat with him corroborates that bit about um, the p- people fretting about what Mark looked like because uh, he said to me, um, I had a big row with the boss of the record company before I went on. He said, you can't wear all those bangles. You've got to butch yourself up. Oh, man. And he goes, and I, oh. I don't know what you mean. I love that. Like, you know, yeah. What, yeah. What, what do you mean? What, what's not butch about me? I love that. It's amazing. But th- those performances, I mean, all three of them, they're totally burned into my memory. And the bangles yes. were absolutely key yeah. for me. As, a, as yeah. a little kid with girls' wrists, um, the fact that his bangles were too big for his skinny wrist, that, I'll never forget. It's the way, the, 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 way. The, the way he clanked them together when he clapped, like a clank, yeah, clank yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. It was yeah. so that that's such a that's the seared in my memory. Just that the banging together uh-huh. of the bangles, uh-huh. yeah. and it, it's odd because you know there's the there's the record company worried that he's going to intimidate and alienate people, but that mm. was why I immediately fell in love with Soft Cell because of mm. these appearances. Um, you know, because of Mark's face and his voice and his manner, it was clear from the off that here was an outsider and a geek mm. and the kind of kid who'd probably be picked on, but who could fight back with his yes. voice and perhaps with fists as well. Um, Soft Cell, I mean, it's first non-stop erotic cabaret is the first album I seriously got into. And there was just right. so much that set them apart from everyone. Mm. Um, their use of synths just seemed hooligan. It wasn't searching for a future. It was a way of making their music grimier and heavier and bassier. And unlike, say, the other synth-pop things that were being flung our way at the time, say Depeche and Spandau and Durant, they weren't good-looking boys. They were weird-looking, dark. And their music wasn't bright and shiny. It was dark and heavy and bassy. It was really, really telling how they... You know, what other synth-pop band would have covered Paranoid by Black Sabbath (laughs) early on? (laughs) You know, there's a few things about soft cell firstly no one in the early 80s i don't think produced music quite like dave ball he had an ear that was informed by just wider stuff than his contemporaries and when he gets mm. as frenzied in his production as allman gets in his voice um there's just this hitchcockian thing to their music that's just wonderful and next to soft cell 
to me, and not just now, but at the time, so much early 80s electropop sounds thin and weedy yes. compared to Soft Cell. Soft Cell just sounds confidently yeah. bizarre and street level and, and committed. And, and Ball's just a genius. He made Mark's fondness for things like suicide and his own fondness for, for pop and 60s pop come together. So when you listen to Tainted Love, even then, it didn't sound exactly like the future. It sounded like technology kind of cranking into action. Listen to the intro of Tainted Love. That doesn't mm. glisten and glide. It rattles and hisses. Yes. And it, it sounds potentially hazardous. It's not macho like Newman, but it's not polite like Depeche mm. Mode. He was so important, Dave Ball. And if anything else, his moustache was key <laughs> as well. Because it added yeah. it added to Soft Cell's seediness um, yes. enormously. Mm. That, that moustache. And, and like I say, Mark had a really kind face and a vulnerability. That's the key. The original of Tainted Love is is it, it, it is a, a kind of frantic record. It's a strong, amazing record. It's a you glorious never re- record. It's a wonderful record, but you don't ever feel really in that, that Gloria Jones is ever totally out of control. Whereas Mark... Yeah. He focuses on the taint of the love, if you like. Yes. He's totally wrapped yes. by it. And and these performances of Tainted Love, all three of them, like I say, they're, they're just burning my memory. Not just the bangles, but the way he clapped, you know, the hand claps. To see someone not invited to the pop party, starting their own party in their own <laughs> way, was just wonderful. So everything about this performance, including even the split screen at the end, I remember mm. it's burned in my memory. And of course it helps that Mark, I think, has one of the greatest voices in British pop history. He, mm. he can do everything. He can do pop hysteria. He can do sleaze. He can do snarliness. He, he can do everything. If you imagine anyone else from that generation of synth pop singers covering Tainted Love, and they'll probably smooth it out and calm it down mm. a little bit. Mark accentuates the yes. emotions, not just in his voice, but in the way he snaps his head back and the way he throws his arms about, much more confident than previ- the, the previous appearance. Um, and the way, you know, anyone, I think anyone listening to this record to this day, on the bit when he pushes his voice on the don't touch me please line, when you hear this record, it's so enjoyable shouting that line, singing that line, because it's yeah. a chance to inhabit the drama of, of the torment that he's going through. Um, yeah. Singing it, I, I instantly fell in love with Soft Cell and have stayed in love um, ever since. Probably my favourite of the early 80s acts. Um, the danger is for me is that Soft Cell are kind of, in the hands of compilation makers and rock historians, they might get bunched together with every other act combining electronics and pop in the early 80s. Yeah. But but to me, they're totally uniquely on their own tangent. This this is It's got a granite-hard toughness, this music. Um, I know they all did amazing things, all those other bands, Depeche, Duran, Spandau, ABC, Heaven 17. But if I had to salvage one single synth record from that era, it would definitely be... Uh, non-stop erotic cabaret always and just one more thing sorry a few years ago i wrote some pieces about mark bolan uh for the quietus and i think like one of the high points in my life let alone career was when mark allman read one of them and he said nice things about it on twitter Uh for me that was just validation i fucking love mark and i love sosa i i want to echo what neil said about um focusing on the taint rather than the love because um, mm. I really think that Mark managed to squeeze more out of those lyrics than than is there. Um, you know, Ed, Ed Cobb's song yeah. is just a fairly you know standard pop song, but but Mark se- seems to manage to um, infuse it with all kinds of um, dark hidden meaning that, that was never intended. I don't think, and and that that's a that mm. that's a brilliant way of, of doing a cover version, and. Um, 
there are so many things about how this came together um, that you know the, the the combination of um, Dave Ball and Mark Almond in the first place that rely on just chance and serendipity, like the way they met mm. in the first place, which is that um, Dave Ball was trying to you know register at Leeds Poly on the first day and he was lost, and he saw this guy with um, a leopard coat and bleached you know um bleached hair and thought well he must know where the art department is you know and <laughs> and, and, and you know that that was that and um that um it, it goes back even before they met with with this song um separately they were both in love with what was let's face it a fairly obscure record and what had happened uh, a b-side mm. well, what, what had happened mm. in uh in in dave's case is he was in blackpool and uh he he was um he was working for an ice cream company uh, and it, um, it, it was a rainy day uh, and uh, rather than take his ice cream van down the beach he just sat in the staff room and one of his colleagues was playing um, Autobahn by Kraftwerk and uh, uh, that, that blew his mind and he was like what the fuck is this and then not long after that at night time because he, he was always on the uh, Northern Soul scene he went to the Highland Room of the Blackpool Casino and, and a DJ played Tainted Love and he just had this kind of light bulb moment Shit. of what if I put mm. these two things together you know this Northern Soul yeah. song with that kind of Kraftwerk sound and meanwhile over in Leeds, Mark had heard um, Ian Dewhurst, who was the, the, the DJ from the Wigan Casino, uh, play Tainted Love um, at the, is it the Leeds Warehouse, where um, Mark used to hang out? And uh, he just went and said, you know, what's this song, what's this song? And, you know, and, and Dewhurst gave him a tape of it, which is quite cool, because Northern Soul mm. DJs were usually very, very yeah. protective. Yeah, 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 they did. So they? all these sort of chance things uh, kind of, came into this even existing in the first place and um, I also want to endorse what Neil said about um, the kind of passion that Mark puts into his vocals which is really important and um, for the booklet that I wrote I I interviewed uh, Mike Thorne who produced the record and uh, well for a start Mm. it was produced relatively cheaply Uh, it was um, the the budget for recording this and the uh, and the sort of b-side because it was originally sort of um, uh, Tainted Love, Where's Our Love Go, all recorded in one long sort of 10-minute take or something. Um, mm. The budget was 600 quid, which sounds like quite a lot of money, <laughs> for, uh, you know, maybe for 1981. But a big chunk of that included hi- hiring um, a, a synclavier, which they ended up not using, I think. It was just um, right. it's just uh, Dave Ball's Korg that gives that kind of thing going on. Um, mm. Anyway, uh, in, in the vocal booth, Mark was singing his heart out so much <laughs> that he was sending the needle into the red and it was over-compressed. Um, and the, the engineer um, reached for the off switch and, you know, wanted another take. But Mike Thorne stopped him and said, no, 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 this is great. And that, that ended up yeah. being the take that they used because he was just belting it out too much, which, yeah. which I love. Yeah, yeah. Um, so so that there's, there's, there's all that stuff, you know, quite kind of chancy things that, that made it the record it is. And the kind of dynamic between, uh, as Neil said, the kind of vulnerability of, of Mark and the kind of almost intimidating presence of, of Dave Ball was really yes. important. Yeah. D- yeah, Dave yeah. Ball described himself later on as looking like a minder. And, and uh, uh, <laughs> he, he actually had to play that role in real life um, on occasion because uh, as soon as this song took off, when they were out in Leeds, you can imagine the shit that, that they started getting. Yeah. He, he said yeah, that yeah. there were yeah. all these uh, National Front skinheads that, that, you know, went over and, you know, calling calling Mark a fucking puff and Dave always had to step in and sort of be his minder. Mm. But th- that is the thing. Mark looks so skinny and flimsy. He looks as if the weight of those bangles and the thing around his neck could actually <laughs> snap him. Oh, he's, he's 
dookie fat gold rope. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he looks like he could buckle under and under the weight of of his own jewelry, and I I love that. And um, it's it's interesting what a rage he sent people into. I mean, I'm sure there were televisions oh. kicked in around the country. We talk about Starman moments. This is the Starman moment of the early eighties. Isn't mm. it? This one mm. is, but even more so than Boy well, George. Um, this more than the previous appearance because uh, we've alluded to the fact that this is their second appearance with with Tainted Love. Um, yeah. The first time, and it's not really Mark's fault maybe maybe it's the um the cameramen or, or, or the producers on the day he doesn't he doesn't yeah. look down the barrel very much in that first yeah, performance. No, yeah, yeah. No, he doesn't, he, no you know he it's like he doesn't know where the camera is this performance he knows where the camera is he's totally yeah, yes. giving it loads he, and he's yes. somebody who would have grown up watching this you know actual star man um of, of, of bowie twiddling his finger down the camera and going uh, i wanted to call someone so i picked on you you know that whole thing mm, he knows mm, the power yeah. of that mark and he's just he, he's yes. going for that at any opportunity Tainted Love appeared on Top of the Pops four times, and this is the second version, as we as you yeah. pointed out. Um, and you can see him coming out of the fucking chrysalis. Yeah, you can every time. Yeah, completely. Yeah. By the third one, it's, it's it's like a victory lap, isn't it? It's like yeah, we're, we're top of the world. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. Well, yes, it is. Yeah, and and the the eyeliner yeah. <laughs> gets thicker and thicker and it thicker, does, and yeah. it's just like, oh, why did Adam and the Ants release a single? Why wasn't this song number one? For about five weeks, because I think in a month's time he would come on and it would be fucking Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> but it was the biggest selling single of 81, so, you know. I've had severe false memory about this because, you know, the way people go on about Mark Holman's performance of on top of the pops of Tate and Love, it's as if he crawls out of the fucking teller <laughs> and starts noshing your dad, <laughs> looking at you. <laughs> but this this is exactly it, right? I think um, that the rage that he instilled in, in dads around the country, kicking in their TV screens, it's almost because they didn't know what to do with him. It's it's not like he was mm. he wasn't a, a drag queen. He, he wasn't even a sort of nineteen seventies no. gay stereotype or any of that. It, it was yeah. They they couldn't quite put their finger on what they didn't like about him because yeah. he's a man. He's, you know, he's, he's yeah. not sort of presenting as a woman in any way. The, the, the weird thing is, no. um, obviously, only a year later, we'd have pop stars like Boy George and Marilyn, who literally look yeah. like women. And that, but that's yes. that's mm. a different thing. Um, Mark yeah. Almond doesn't look like a woman, although I think everyone knows a woman who looks like Mark Almond. So when I, yes. when, mm. when I was growing up, uh, my parents had, had a friend called Judy, and uh, she she really looked like Mark. Almond. She had the haircut and the nose and everything. So it was so weird seeing yeah. him on top of the uh, top of the pops. Um, uh, Bob Stanley in his book Yeah 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 Story of Pop um, describes. Uh, uh, Mark Almond is looking like a Jewish mother, um, and and obviously you know <laughs> uh, Bob's Bob coming from the background he comes from that's probably what was in his mind. Um, so 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 there is that, but he's not. They they can't say get this filth off our screens as a man in a dress. He's not wearing a dress. He's a man. Yeah. But, no. um, it's almost as if the gayness in him is is more real it's like when when he's singing about mm. doing um dastardly deeds he means it he's gonna do those things yeah you know what i mean what enrages people is confusion not sureness yeah. if they can be sure yeah. and safely took someone yeah, yeah, away yeah. then that's okay it, what enrages the mainstream audience is yeah that confusion and he was a confusing figure but- hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. 
Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. As a kid, he's an instantly likable figure. Um, mm. You know, there's nothing scary about Mark. If you you're say a kid, that, but I remember that I recall there being a lot of hostility against yeah. him. Yeah. Oh, certainly. It was. It was. It was. It, it, you. You chose your camp, as it <laughs> were. No pun intended. Mm. Um, mm. Immediately, almost the day after, in the playground, there would be oh, some. Yes. There'd be some people saying horrible shit about Mark Almond, and I'd just be there thinking he was fucking great and he looked amazing. <laughs> Thought that from the art. I, I I can totally imagine how people who felt kind of alienated or felt like outsiders um, would watch that performance. And yeah, um, it's not even in the lyrics, is it? That it's it's not it's not something like as obvious as a I don't know no. as, as a Smith song where where it's all there in the text. It's it's, yeah, it's not yeah. there in the text at all. It's all in just the the sort of hints and and the sy- symbolism that he's giving off, just the vibe he's giving off. Make, make, makes you click yes. with him and think he's he's one of me. I'm one of him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And they they were accidental pop stars. This is the thing. And uh, even though yes. I, it because this came out of nowhere. Yeah, because obviously they they mm. released memorabilia. It wasn't even reviewed in smash hits. Right, this single. Yeah, and, um, and it was a slow burner, wasn't it? It, t- it took six weeks. Yeah, in Melody Maker's singles column, Lyndon Barber called it one of the limpest, pathetic pop singles of all time. Twat. <laughs> <laughs> the older generation of music reviews would have known the original, whereas I didn't. It would have been about ten years before I actually heard the original version. Yeah, probably yeah. so. And yeah. you know, I've been I've been working in offices, and I've had a compilation tape of Soul. And this has come on, the, the, the Gloria Jones version. And people just sit bolt upright and just look at me going, fucking hell, I didn't know that was a cover version. Mm, mm. Yeah, but they, they totally made it their own to the extent that when anyone covers that, when, when anyone oh, totally. covers Tainted Love now, they're covering the soft cell version. So, for example, Marilyn Manson is totally just basically doing a slow down yes. version yeah. of, of yeah, yeah. soft cell. Yeah. I don't know if Marilyn Manson or his band or his people even bothered listening to the Gloria Jones. Do you know what I mean? So... So there is that. No. Um, but yeah, the, I, I, I love this idea of Soft Cell becoming pop stars by accident. It's a weird contradictory thing because he really rose to the occasion and he he's almost like yes. like a born pop star who didn't realise he was a born pop star until that moment where, where, he's, where he's on top of the pops. Yeah. It's, it's suddenly, yeah. oh my God, I'm this thing. Because obviously, as you mentioned in your preamble, they started off as this very kind of underground alternative performance art act. And... Even mm. at this point, they've still got a whiff of the cato meat about them, I think. You know what I mean? Yes, yes. <laughs> and and, and that, 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 that whiff of cato meat and wrongness, uh, it, it carries through into non-stop erotic cabaret. And just imagine how many millions yes. of people... Non-stop erotic cato meat. <laughs> <laughs> imagine how many millions of people bought non-stop erotic cabaret on the back of this single. And uh, and suddenly yes. they're in this whole world of... of, of BDSM and porno cinemas and all this Absolutely. kind of weird shit that's going on. In, yeah. um, and and that Absolutely. that's their mission statement. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I'm alluding to the song Sex Dwarf partly there, which is amazing. Yes. Um, and 
the the, yes. the um, refrain that uh, repeated in that song, um, isn't it nice sugar and spice luring disco dollies to a life of vice? That is what they're doing. That is what's happening in this exact moment on top of the pops. Soft Cell are luring disco dollies to a life of vice, and that is amazing. It is yes. amazing because this 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 is August, right? And in November, Nonstop Erotic Cabaret is going to come out, and it's going to arrive in my house, and and. There you go. By November, I'm listening to songs like Sex Dwarf and Frustration and Entertain Me. And, and, and you know... It, so how it, old are you again, Neil, this time? It, well, I'm nine. Fucking So up. not quite a disco dolly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I didn't, quite under, I didn't quite understand what was going on. It, it's, you know, this sleazy documentation of Soho's sordid corners. But, God, it was exciting. Mm. You know, exciting. Yeah. they made synth music exciting in a way that, to me, didn't happen again until Frankie. Um, they made yeah. since jizz. They made since, you know, you know what I mean, though. Yeah. They're, they're dirt, that's dirty sounding record, and and yet beautiful yes. as well at times. And you know, by the time things like Bedsitter and stuff are, are, are hitting the charts, I'm I'm completely wrapped up in them. I think Neil's right about the importance of Dave Ball's pop influences, as well as all that kind of, you know, arty sort of suicide mm. type stuff, um, and throbbing gristle, and all, all the things that Mark was into. Uh, when I when I interviewed Dave um, and asked him, you know, what his early kind of musical influences were, it was all stuff like um, James Bond themes, like John mm. Barry, and things like um, Born Free <laughs> theme and, and stuff like that, which uh, you can kind of hear actually, not on this record, but if you listen to something like Say Hello, Wave Goodbye, the sheer kind of cinematic sweep of that. So so that's all there, and that that was kind of. Um, it, it was uncool at the time. It was, it, it was certainly overlooked. Mm. It was a part of pop history that nobody really cared about. But um, he he grew up with that kind of Radio Two, yeah, um, yeah, in influence in his life. And and I I think that that's another thing that that it gave a certain kind of warmth to Soft Cell's music that that might not have been there if they were purely into Cabaret Voltaire and all of that. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. A similar sort of unfashionableness of influence as Jerry Dammers was having at the time. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 Neil, got to ask, what was your mum's opinion? Oh, I think she just. She, I mean, do you think you know, she detected? She'd have immediately <laughs> seen. She'd have detected immediately. She was the only person who knew that Freddie Mercury was gay. After mm. all, no, she liked. <laughs> she liked him straight off. I think just like mm. I did. We, we, we were definitely a soft sell house. <laughs> although that didn't. That, uh, all the things that could have meant it didn't mean any of that. But we we loved them immediately. I, I think there is something very Blackpool about um, Dave Ball synth sound. There, there is something pleasingly yes. kind of weirdly uh, cabaret and end of the pier about it at, at yeah. times not so much on on this yeah. track but um oh uh, by the way uh, um th- th- this shows how still sort of far behind we were uh, in top of the pops terms even if the orchestra had been abandoned uh, the um, the power of the musicians yeah. union was still such that when Dave Ball filled in the form he wasn't allowed to put that he was a synth player he had to write piano and bass even though there's, even though there's right. no piano and bass on the record, so yeah. that this shows that even even though they weren't futuristic in in a kind of Newmanesque sense, um, they mm. they were still way ahead of of what that sort of um, BBC establishment were willing to put up with. So it's it's kind of it's quite pleasing in a way that uh, they were on top of the pot so often, and I think maybe that was down to just their personal charm. That you you, you can imagine it's it's mm. impossible not to like Mark Almond. You know, yeah, and even yeah, even yeah. Dave Ball's a pussycat when you meet him. He's yeah. not that terrifying. He basically he's mm. just a sort of a really mm. nice northern guy with with a voice that sounds like Finchy from The Office when he talks. You say that everyone loves Mark Holman and everything, but let's let's go back to the text. Uh, and he describes 
uh, his performance, right. one of his performances uh-huh. on uh, on Top of the Pops. I frogged onto the TV screen and a nation's jaws dropped open. Immediately and from then on, it seemed girls wanted to marry me. Mothers wanted to mother me. Grandparents wanted to have me arrested. Oh, I can imagine seventh age jankers <laughs> having something to say about this. Lads wanted to smash my head in. Fathers buried their heads in their papers and many young teenage boys blushed and made an excuse to leave the room so they could go upstairs and write love notes to me. Just as with Bowie and Bolin in the 70s, war was declared in school playgrounds the <laughs> <Yeah>. day after. <laughs> no, it wasn't because it was school holidays. But <laughs> you get the idea, yeah. Maybe there should have been a big emergency playground meeting during the school holidays to discuss Mark Holman. <laughs> After that first Top of the Pops appearance, I was spat at in the street, punched in the face by strangers, insulted and ridiculed both in public places and on radio, on television and in the press in the most homophobic way imaginable. Simon, as you say, quite rightly, this was the the year that the freaks came out and dominated the charts. But the downside to that is... It's also the year that the freaks came out into the charts and became tabloid fodder. Yeah, I mean, we 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 don't have to talk about the uh, some some of the tabloid myths around Mark, but they were essentially um, well worn homophobic tropes that had been applied to previous gay singers. Yeah. So basically, they they hit him with with the usual weapons that they they hit all gay singers with. It certainly did in those days, um, but they. I think I think soft soft cell just handled it in a, in a brilliant way in, in that they were always living this this double life. I, I keep going back to this that that mm. they were accidental pop stars. So when you see them on the front of, for example, flexi pop with uh, balloons and streamers in sort of party mode, mm. yes. you know they they were happy to play that game. But at the same time, they were still that alternative grimy performance art act from Leeds. Who I mean, their, their early stuff is all sort of uh, dark satires of consumerism. They, they were writing songs about kind of uh, supermarket subliminal sales techniques. And and uh, and that, that stuff is still there on, on the album that became one of the biggest selling albums of, of the year. So, mm. yeah, I'm, I'm sure it was horrible for Mark. I, it must have been, I, I can't even imagine. It must have been just horrific, the, the amount of shit he got mm. from the Red Tops. But they... Shall I quote what he said in his book about the rumour? All right. Mm. And if you're having your tea and don't know this, uh, you might want to skip ahead. So, yeah, this is what he says in Tainted Life. The rumour, the most untrue urban myth of all time. The one according to which I'm supposed to have ingested between two and eight pints of semen, depending on your tabloid source, and as a consequence had to have my stomach pumped. In fact, the rumour wasn't even exclusively mine, for two superstars of the 70s had allegedly suffered the same smear too. Both of them are rich and extremely famous. One known to sue easily, and the other consistently heterosexual. It constantly surprises me that intelligent and liberal people feel the need to perpetrate the rumour without stopping to consider how deeply hurtful it might be. Because it's been around for so many years, many self-proclaimed liberally-minded people accept it as a matter of fact without having the intelligence or sensitivity to question it or to consider how deplorable or contemptible reiterating it is. 
Perhaps all those people should bear in mind that their remarks fuel the aggression and violence that homophobes need to express themselves. Every time a reference to the rumour appears in print or on TV means another day that I get insulted, shouted at or threatened. Those who perpetrate such rumours are themselves more distasteful than anything of which I have spoken, written or sung. Well, well said, Mark. And, 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 and also, mm. you wonder, talking earlier about Michael, uh, about Michael Hurl being the producer, you wonder if, say, if Sosel had appeared before Hurl became the producer, would they have made these repeated appearances? Would the response to those rumours to have actually got Sosel off the air, in a sense? Yeah, because I remember this rumour pitching up round our school around mm-hmm. about ooh, mid-1982, and yet it caused loads of people at my school to just stop being futurists. And, you know, I've got to admit, I was a right little homophobic comeback then, but, you know, a banter homophobe in any case. But I totally believed it because, you know, Mark Almond had immediately become that gay person. You know, he'd usurped uh, John Inman and uh, Larry Grayson. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, years later in 1990, I remember that like the first conversation I ever had with a load of people from around the country at the SU was about the rumour. And I was absolutely shocked that everyone knew about it and there were different variations on how much it was and and how it was ingested and all that kind of stuff. And a week later, uh, me and a couple of mates decided to go to London for the day and we end up in Soho and we walk into this cafe and as soon as we walk in, this bloke turns around from the counter to leave and it's Mark fucking Almond. Wow. And I'm just standing there in shock and he just looks through me as if, oh, here's another random cunt, what's he going to say to me now? And uh, I just wanted to drop to the floor onto my fucking knees and apologise to him for being such a cunt back then, because, yeah, I was definitely on the wrong side of history, and he must have gone through so much shit back in the early 80s. He did, but but I I come back to what Pricey said about Mark's likability. I think that's absolutely key. You know, um, Hurl, the producer, as, as somebody with an experience of light entertainment would have been dealing, I mean, not only being a producer and knowing all about filming, etc. He'd have basically been a psychologist. He'd have been dealing with monstrous egos all his life. And and I think, you know, with Soft Cell, I, I loved the passage you read about what Top of the Pops meant to Mark. That, that, that to me... That to me is completely the right way of of thinking about Top of the Pops. The fact that it was so exciting for him, and I think that probably just immediately endeared him, and and ensured that despite the homophobia that was going on in the press, and despite the homophobia that Mark was encountering out in the street as a result of these appearances, Sosel still had these three appearances that to this day are burned in so many of our memories. Yeah. It's interesting hearing you say that um, mates of yours stop being futurists. Um, yeah. Because that's kind of... Pixie boots lobbed in the bin. Yeah. Because I, I, I suppose to a lot of people, Soft Cell were connected to that futurist scene or the Blitz scene. And yeah. to some extent, that's fair enough because uh, Mark did come down to London to the Blitz and, and he had his own sort of neuromantic night up in Leeds. But, but on the other hand, Soft Cell was so different from those bands because... Um, it just and a lot of it is just down yeah. to his voice because if you contrast the way he sings with the kind of the sort of dispassionate and cold singers of the Blitz scene, you know, like Steve Strange or you know your man from Classics mm. Nouveau or whoever it may be, um, Tony Hadley, uh, you know, he Mark doesn't just emote; he over emotes, and to, to the extent that, that a lot of people yes. just think, oh, he can't sing; he's just, uh, but. 
again, I, I think that's the wrong question. The question should never be, can Mark Allman sing? But does he sing? And like, oh boy, he sings, you know. Oh yes. So yes. so um yeah, it's 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 weird that they that they they get lumped in with with all that stuff because they they kind of were and also weren't part of it. Yeah, they were. That's the weird thing about Soft Cell. They, in a sense, they they really genuinely captured their own time and place perfectly. But that's precisely what makes them timeless to me. Timeless in a way that some of the synth pop bands aren't. Uh, some of the synth pop bands are tied to that time, but because of Mark's emotion, these records speak to me today. And because of Dave Ball's production, these records are still heavy hitting songs that that sound fucking amazing coming out of big speakers. So the following week, Tainted Love rose to the very summit of Pop Mountain, deposing this week's number one. It stayed there for a mere two weeks, but managed to keep Prince Charming by Adam and the Ants at number two on its second week before being usurped by the dandy highwayman. Tainted Love finished the year as the biggest selling singer of 1981, selling to date 1,350,000 copies in the UK. The following year, it spent a record-breaking 43 weeks on the American charts, getting as high as number eight. However, due to them slapping another cover on the B-side, Where Did Our Love Go?, the duo received precisely nuppence in royalties. Yeah. Oh, Steve-o. Fucking hell. That bloke who did the fucking Star Trek song, he made more money out of that just by doing that six seconds of song at the beginning. Yeah, and they've, they've, they've tried to recoup by reissuing it several times with, with their own songs on the B-side. But mm. yeah, I mean, that, that, that has to go down um, as one of the biggest fuck-ups in music business history, <laughs> um, along with, yes. you know, supposedly, you know, Decker saying no to the Beatles. Yeah, uh, yeah, th- this, yeah. It's, it's way up there with that, isn't mm. it? The follow-up, Bedsitter, got to number four in December of this year and they'd have three more top five hits on the bounce before diminishing returns set in and they split up in Skinner tells us that now we know what Mark Holman looks like behind the glasses, even though he wasn't wearing them at any point during the performance. Or the previous performance. Mm. So what is he talking about? (laughs) Well, according to Tainted Life, Mark Holman had been wearing sunglasses in the studio all day in order to hide the eyeliner that he put on. And he whipped them off before taking the stage, causing Roger Ames and the phonograph staff to have kittens. Brilliant. So yeah, Skinner's obviously gone, oh, look at him pretending to be a pop star. (laughs) It's an odd shot as well, because it ends, the whole ending of the soft cell performance is a a relic from the pre-Hurl era. That weird shot that BBC Top of the Pops cameramen were unaccountably fond of. The shot Mm. of the band finishing with the presenter 
with its back with its back to the camera watching yes. like the artist is meant to doff their cap to them or something it was, yes. it was an it's a strange yeah. shot that isn't it it really is it's, it as, is. If, it's as if he's somehow kind of um he's some kind of loner some stranger who's wandered uh, and and mm. and come across this scene you know it's like um <laughs> that that yeah. that film the, the swimmer where somebody basically travels across los angeles from back garden to back garden yes. um or, or a bit like the silver surfer traveling through time on a surfboard skinner's just sort of <laughs> this, this this man in white or off-white just sort of appearing uh in the corner of the screen uh, and witnessing this these, these strange goings on but he's mm. he's both present and excluded it's it's a really odd shot <laughs> he then introduces us to one of the favorites of the staff at top of the pops the nolans with chemistry We've already discussed Maureen, Linda, Colleen and Bernie in Chart Music 34 and since December of 1980 they've released a single exclusive to Japan entitled Sexy Music. <laughs> in the UK this is the follow-up to Attention to Me which got to number 9 in May of this year and it's been written by Nicky Graham, a former member of Tucky Buzzard and the Spiders from Mars, and Robin Smith, the group's keyboard player. And it's up this week from number 29 to number 26. And, oh, here we are, chaps. Here are your disco dollies. <laughs> <laughs> this is the third act in a row to wear black and gold, isn't it? It is, yeah, yeah. Well yeah, black and gold's the... Uh, it's the, it's the motif of the era, I think. You know, looking like a, an expensive chocolate box. Well, knocking them is... cold in black and gold, to quote um, Sex Dwarf by Soft Cell. Oh, I, there you go. I, I love, there I love you to, fucking go. I love to imagine that, you know, uh, Mark literally lured them to a life of vice. And that, you know... Oh, <laughs> wouldn't it be great if he just appeared at the side, rubbing his hands with glee and then getting one of them big, long crooks? Dragging one of them off. I'm thinking beforehand, before they go on stage, they were probably um, going to wear some some nice kind of um, cotton slacks and and a, ni- yeah, a ni- nice flowery, dr- yeah, yeah. More Ashley dresses. But, but then yeah. then Mark says, "Now nah, what you want is some like skin tight yeah. PVC." Yeah, <laughs> and he sort of well, the the rubbery. They're wearing kind of like sort of rubber like. Yeah. Uh, black cat suits with ornate gold brocade. They look they look like Margot Ledbetter on a night out of the mine shaft. <laughs> <laughs> there is a touch of that. They sort of black patent leather body suits. They're great, but they're slightly flared, aren't they? In the leg, oh, yeah. Uh, I, I sort of well, thought, that's the only way you can get the fuckers on, I suppose. I guess, but surely by '81 they should have been perhaps tapered. But the flare mm. might be. An incredibly subtle way of putting them in with the country disco market, ah. kind of Doctor Hook. Thing. Oh yes, because their vocals yes. are very kind of Linda Ronstadt on this, but the flares yes. make them into yeah, it's kind of Kate O'Mara in Triangle, or, or mm. Stephanie Beecham in <laughs> Connie later on in the yes. Years. Um, yes. I mean, I only want to help you, Nolans, because this is probably <laughs> my my my. my it's probably my fave of theirs, actually. In a sense, really? it's, not great, it's not a great record. I know that, but I lyrics, thought it was a very poor follow-up to attention to me. The lyrics, the, the thing is, it the lyrics kind of, and I don't know why they remind me vaguely of Fern Kinney's "Together We're Beautiful" uh, yes. a little bit. I can um, hear that, which which sort of residually makes me slightly <laughs> fond of this. Um, and they look great, you know, as a as a, a nine-year-old prepubescent child. Um, yeah. I'd have been dimly aware of the um, the sexiness of what they're wearing, but this could perhaps have been a moment where I would have had to have stepped out of the room in oh. um, in shame. <laughs> Do you fancy him? <laughs> uh, we know the answer to that question for a certain Mr. Price, don't we? Yeah, I think we. Yeah, we've already talked about. Oh, oh Colleen, she's uh, she's taking uh, she's she's fronting up, isn't she? 
Yeah, well, you know, we, we've, we've talked about my monstrous and unholy <laughs> crush on Colleen Nolan previously. Um, but uh, yeah. we, we... we have to make mention that this is Colleen Nolan now, yeah. not then. Yeah, I mean, all right, uh, at, uh, at this point, uh, she's 16, only a few years older than I was at the time. But yeah, my... She's a bullet in your heart. My my crush... So watch out! <laughs> my, my Colleen Nolan crush... Uh, is and I know it's really wrong, um, but uh, it's it's very much from the present day. And yeah, I know she's compared gay rights to ISIS, right? And I, I know she's very socially conservative, <laughs> but the the heart wants what it and what it wants. In fact, other parts of the body want what they want. And um, I I just get the impression that despite her socially conservative views, she'd be a right laugh to get drunk with. I just don't know. So mm. she would. Um, I'm fascinated by her hair in this um, in this clip because yes. it's like the bob equivalent of a mullet, right? Um, so yes. at the front, it's like a bob, like Purdy, you know. Um, yeah. But it, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a mashup between Purdy and Trisha Yates. Yeah, it sort it? of carries on down the back with its bobness sort of curling in. I, I don't know how the hell that effect was achieved. That, that's it's quite impressive. But um, mm. th- this is not my favourite Nolan. Um, uh, single by far. I mentioned before the Don't Make Waves is an absolute banger. That's the one for me. Yeah. Chart Music 34, mm. I think we last talked about them when I said that. Um, yes. But um, the, yeah, there, there's always something very end of the pier about their take on disco. Um, it is very Dooley's and it's probably not a coincidence because Robin Smith, one of the songwriters who you mentioned, uh, did write for the Dooley's um, among other yes. people. Um, and uh, in terms of uh, sexiness. I mean, I, I, I probably would. I don't think I perceived this at the time. It, it wasn't my agenda watching them. I would have thought they they were awful. Um, mm. But the thing with with Colleen and Bernie and Linda and Ken is that um, they they all do the same move at all times. If you notice that when they're dancing, mm. there's no mm. variation. They could have done with a bit of Flip Colby in there. To be honest, they they they're literally four identical little sort of puppets moving the same move. It's kind of odd in itself yeah. but um no I, yeah. i'm not i'm not having this i'll, I'll be honest and I, i'm not one of these people who sort of like, oh the nolan's uh, pop trash or whatever not now anyway but um mm. th- this song's not doing it for me that line uh it's a mystery like ancient history well mm. ancient history's not ri- i mean you, you can study <laughs> you can study it you know we we have uh, yeah. we, there's such a thing as archaeology and there's you know there's all kinds of Anyway, I'm, I'm, yeah. I am the guy who pedantically takes pop songs too literally and picks them up. <laughs> no, you're, and you're right too, yeah. Simon. You're right too. Anything else to say about this? I, th- I feel the well's running dry on this one already. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Skinner likes it, doesn't he? Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, the, the, the top of the pop staff seem to like uh, the Nolans. Yeah, because they're always on. Nice, mm. nice young girls. Probably, you know, help move a camera or two if needs be. Skinner goes... They've certainly got their chemistry right, and it's. Oh, yes. I mean, it's not great, is it? It's just a bit. No. And, and coming from anyone, it's not great. But coming from a man whose shirt looks like graph paper, as I previously yeah. established, it's yeah. It just seems a bit wrong. It seems it seems mm. off brand for Skinner. Yes. And it's not not the only time does, he says yeah. something a bit weird. But like it's that. a bit it's a bit better than what Simon Bates said, which was when what? he slurred an entire religion. Oh yeah, that whole thing about <laughs> there's so many of them. It was all about birth yeah. control, wasn't it? Like <laughs> rabbits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Terrible. Terrible. So the following week, chemistry jumped up 11 places to number 15, its highest position. The follow-up, Don't Love Me Too Hard, got to number 14 for two weeks in April of 1982 (laughs) and would be the last dent the Nolans put in the top 40. 
Nicky Graham, of course, went on to write I owe you nothing for Bross and let's get ready to rumble for PJ and Duncan, while Robin Smith became Colleen Nolan's first serious boyfriend until she caught him knocking off a backing singer. Wow. Right, that's the Nolans, and congratulations to Linda and Brian on their forthcoming marriage. It's the Rolling Stones next on Top of the Pops, as they say, stop me up. Skinner congratulates Linda Nolan for getting engaged to Brian Hudson, the Nolan's manager, and then introduces the video of Start Me Up by the Rolling Stones. Formed in London in 1962, the Rolling Stones are the fucking Rolling Stones. (laughs) This is the lead-off single from the LP Tattoo You, which was released earlier this week, and saw the Stones digging in the crates for outtakes of material recorded throughout the 70s and finishing them off in time for their latest world tour. It was originally recorded in 1978 as a cod reggae song during the sessions for the Some Girls LP. It was overdubbed and rocked up in the Power Station studio in New York and is accompanied by a video directed by Michael Lindsay Hogg, who directed the Rolling Stones' Rock and Roll Circus in 1968 and was their go-to film bloke throughout the 70s. It's a follow-up to She's So Cold, which only got to number 33 in October of 1980, and it's a new entry this week at number 28. Well, Neil, in the uh, Mm -hmm. Q&A session you did with Sarah not too long ago, this was the band you wanted to talk about. Well, yeah, because I never have. and and They're my favourite band ever. Mm. They would have meant nothing to me at the time of this Top of the Pops video showing, Mm. bar kind of Kenny Everett impressions of Mick Jagger, you know. Yes. Um, But in 83, Formula 30, aforementioned Rock LP came out, and on the first track on side one was Honky Tonk Woman. Mm. whose drum sound, I don't particularly like that song much anymore, but the drum sound was just instantaneously uh, just this contact high that I had to come back to. Mm. And side Mm. three of that compilation started with Let's Spend the Night Together, where again the drums and everything else just grabbed me. And like any 11-year-old really in 83 with a with a library ticket, I could explore everything. So I started reading and listening and becoming obsessed. And when I ran out of books from the library to read about the Stones, I'd stand in bookshops reading about the Stones. They became and sort of remain my favourite band ever. And yet I've never spoken or written a word about them. Basically because I suspect if I start, I won't stop. For me... Uh, If you you start him up... Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) For me, they get to the heart of everything and they foreshadow everything that interests me in pop. I mean... the thing is with favourite bands, for anyone asked to name their favourite band, it's kind of never just down to the music. It, no. It's almost like a faith. It's part of your heart and soul. Yes. and they, they kind of shape who you are and your attitudes towards life. So if I can state it simply why they're my favourite, I'd say that the party I want to be at, in a sense, is the party that the Stones make with their music. And sure, I'll go to people's houses who play the Beatles, but it's the parties where the Stones are being played that mm. I want to be at. And it's it's Rolling Stones people who I end up loving and not just liking, which becomes difficult to defend given the likes of um, 
Well, take your pick fucking Primal Scream, for instance. Yes. You know, the thing is with the Stones, they're so canonical. I've heard plenty of people say that they don't like the Stones, like that earns them a medal in sort of contrarianism. How can you say that? Well, I think if you don't like the Stones, and I think I might be quoting a pricey review here, um, if you don't like the Stones, you don't like rock and roll. You don't like pop. Mm. You You don't like the darker turns that the entire culture took, which you could say led indirectly to the Velvets and Bowie and the rest, just as much as they led to the kind of lame copyists like Primal Scream who yeah. who caught the licks and the looks and missed the spirit. I think the Stones started it all. In my head, anyway, they started it all. The idea of pop and rock as being transgressive forms. And key to that is Mick and Keith. But where the normal formulation is that Keith is the heart and Mick is the head of the band, Mm. I see that in total reverse. What keeps me captivated by the Stones is Mick's lyrics. The way he Mm. skewers his own class in a very Jerry Dammers way, I have to say, Mm. by exaggerating middle-class cruelty and and world wariness. And the way he avoids all the pitfalls that could be there of being a skinny white middle-class boy singing black music by basically being unapologetic about who he is, about his own intelligence, about his own impotence as well as his horniness. For me, Keith... Mm is the surface of the stones, the look, the thing that the likes of Primal Scream latch onto. Mm. Mixed lyrics are things that these bands can't do. They're unlike anyone else's. And their stance, that kind of self-deprecatory, but also capable of selfishness, that kind of open-hearted, but also vindictive, that hard-boiled, but also hopeful, gritty and committed, but also superficial uh, sense in their lyrics that's who I have become they mm. have shaped me this band so you know those nights where you need to just put on music that celebrates you in a sense and makes you feel better mm. that's the stones for me and they've followed me everywhere in my whole life and and these you know teenage investigations backwards made me realize that between 63 and 65 they were just the greatest garage rock band about mm. rock music would have just been Beatles copyists and suits and harmonies and cuteness and totally unthreatening without them um they, they were tough as fuck and ragged as fuck there's a punk aggression to those early records mm. and the darkness of things like play with fire and 19th nervous breakdown in contrast to the Beatles these records were a mess they were a thrilling mess and it really helped that they were produced by Andrew Lou Golden because he was their image manager, he was always going to be more interested in sound and flair and excitement than actual good recording. So when Jagger and Richard start writing together and writing things like Paint It Black, it to me, it's just the opening up of pop to, to these darker possibilities and a bit of chaos where the Beatles offered nothing but good craft, I guess. Mm. Now, between 66 and 67, I think they were a better psychedelic band than the Beatles, doing things on Aftermath and Between the Be- uh, between the Buttons that the Beatles couldn't dream of and making singles like We Love You that, that piss over everything being made in the UK at the time. Brian, really important. Yeah. And not you shouldn't just be denigrated as just this... this Horrible figure. Um, Between 68 and 72, I'm sorry to say, from Jumping Jack Flash through to Exile and Main Street, I am completely doctrinaire and ordinaire about this. They were the greatest rock and roll band in the world. I'm a total traditionalist on that. Mm -hmm. And some of the stuff on Sticky Fingers is, you know, that's my funeral music. Between 73 and 76, they were a great, coked-out, wasteful mess of a band. And between 78 and 83, where we find them here, 
I think they provided among the best responses to, to sort of punk and new wave and disco of any band of their vintage, not just on Some Girls, which is the album everyone goes on about, but also Emotional Rescue. Mm. This is perhaps yes, starting up, perhaps their yes. last great single, although I would still give a shout out to uh, Undercover of the Night and Too Much Blood yes. off the next album. I think they're tunes, man, and they sound great in a club. It, You know... It, this kind of period, I guess, is the last time you really get to hear what's important in the band musically. And that is, it's Bill, unfortunately, yes. and Charlie and Keith. It's the wobble between those three guys. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that, that's what, you know, excites me about this band. And it, it, even though this song came out of a riff from, I mean, from way back, it's possibly been despoiled by its use since, start me up as some kind of presidential <laughs> sports anthem almost. Yes. But... Um, I don't begrudge the Stones a damn thing since. I mean, I lost interest with them as soon as Bill went, really, and probably before Bill went, because musically what was interesting about them had then gone. Mm. Um, but but long may their bank raid continue, to be honest with you. They've helped me through so many moments in my life. And, and they're just... They're, 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 I don't want to say spiritual. I don't want to say like Cliff Richard, but they're yeah. so close to my heart and soul. That, you know, the Stones... It's not cut my arm and the stones are running through them, but, you know, they're, they're, they're so close to my heart and soul. This video yeah. that we get on Top of the Pops is a hoot. Yes. Um, sloppy everyone, as fuck, isn't it? Sloppy as fuck. But every, <laughs> everyone playing their part, just like the stones always did. Yeah. You know, Charlie, just this slack-jawed but total authority. We're Keith, giving a lot of side-eye. Like, oh, yeah, fuck, yeah. you know, what they're doing now. Those boys. <laughs> Keith the shape and the sort of stagger and the kind of wastedness of the stones. Mm. Ronnie, his perfect twin. Bill, as ever, the creepy not right fucker who shouldn't yeah. have been in the band in a sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But know, that was precisely what was right about him as a bassist. Yeah, it needs pointing out that um, CC Je Suis and Rockstar, Bill Wyman's paedophile single, is at number 17 <laughs> this week, down is, from number yes. 14. We missed it again. Damn, I can't wait we'll to get, get to that. But Mick, by this time, I mean, he knows he's kind of laughable. There is this kind of playing with, with, with his past stance. Yeah, but sense. he also looks like he doesn't give a fuck. And he is. Yeah. He's a scary motherfucker in this. If I'd have been your age, Neil, I'd have been terrified. <laughs> well, he looks, he's like, this... he looks, he's got this kind of like mauve stripy tank top on and some white jogging mm. bottoms. So it looks like he's just been out just doing his car. Yeah, <laughs> and he's the kind of person that you really don't want to knock on your door when your parents are out. Well, this is it. But I mean, he looks like he's been prodded awake at the beginning of the mm. video, and he's kind of, you know what I mean. And, and it, yeah. it, he's always at times lurid, but he's always just compelling and watchable. And and it's notable as well in this particular showing of the video that where radio would fade out the last line about uh, you'd make a dead man come. Oh yes, yes, from that, it's there. Yeah, it's yes, there from that old so. shave and dry tune by Lucy yes. Bogan. Yes, you know I got nipples on my titties as big as my thumb. I've got something between my legs. Make a dead man come. They they leave that uh, dead man come line yeah. in, which is which is quite Brilliant. shocking. Yeah, this, this, thanks for ruining I, my uh, sign off line for this episode. Oh shit, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, <you laughs> never mind. But but, but um, do it anyway. You know. Uh, 81, yeah, we were probably approaching the tail end. I should probably say that they're a, a, a horrific band with all kinds of damaging impacts on rock. But you, I will never say that. They're, I fucking love this band. And, and I can't really get close to the heart of it. But what I can say is that they're, they're not authentic, but I feel them deeply. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They're, 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 I don't feel them because they, they are gritty or, or sort of they, they they know their music or they're rootsy or any of that. They... Mm. they 
to me, capture precisely the, the, the way that you can be honest but also dishonest in the second half of the 20th century about pop culture. Yeah. For me, they, they foreshadow so, so much and not just the lame kind of way that they've become this kind of... Um, I don't mean what the band have become, but the way they have become interpreted yeah. is, yeah, tune your guitar this way, play a sort of keyfish riff, and that's what the Stones are all about. No, no, no. I, I would strongly suggest that people really properly listen to the Stones and don't just listen to the comps. Dig into albums like Aftermath and Between the Buttons. And, and you know, the, the way they wrote songs was unlike anyone else. And mm. it's something that everyone who's copied them since doesn't quite get. If I was mm. going to draw a line on from the Stones, it wouldn't be to any of those copyists. It would be to just just bands where songs don't go from A to B and they go interesting places. And, yeah. and that's why I, I would just always love them. And I would always return to them. Um, over and over again, they were touchstone for me yeah. completely. I mean, the Stones—they're they're in a, a weird position in the early '80s because I think they were the only British band from the '60s who didn't get tainted by the mod revival, in in a way that even the Beatles yeah. did, uh, because they were still number one. They were still going, and they were a rock band. You know, if you were a greb, you could get away with the Rolling Stones patch on your uh, denim jacket. Yeah, in a way yeah, that you, you still... couldn't really wear a, a little Rolling Stones badge on your Arrington. Yeah, and 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 and, but crucially, as I, I mean, I I think throughout their career, they were re- they were modish in a sense in that their music was always a response to black music, quite mm. often a response to black music. Mm. So you but know, they're too even loose, this... weren't they? They were too loose. Yeah. yeah, mod 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 abhors looseness. Yes, yes. And the Stones had too much looseness in their music. But yeah. think about what they're doing in just the two three years before this. You know, miss you, yeah. and emotional rescue. These are yeah. these are high points in a career. These are not yes. sort of like tail end stuff. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, but yeah. they're also in the stage of their career where a big hit isn't guaranteed. Mm. Mm. You yeah, know, they've got to earn their they've got to earn their spot in the charts. I think left to Keith, the Stones would have disappeared into just kind of being a blues rocky kind of thing, mm. and and they, they 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 would have been respected but incredibly boring. Mick always bought the pop; he always bought the mm. the the kind of interesting song structures and just the great lyrics. I, I can't stress this enough. I think he's majorly underrated as a lyricist, Mick Jagger. Mm. Um, the, you know, if you wrote a parody of a of a Stone song, it won't be like a Stone song. It will be sort of it won't quite hit the precise balance between like believability and ridiculousness mm. that makes so many stone songs so good yeah. and, and nobody ever know. did a, a stones version of the ruckles did they <laughs> no it no. would be it would be quite hard to do it would be quite hard to do and and i have to say you know here and there they provided just absolute high points of rock and roll jumping jack flash it's just one of the greatest songs ever fucking made and these things are mainstays for djs you know like i used to play the stones a lot when i dj'd and i barely ever played the beatles right. i played the stones because that's the party i want to be at i, I can't put it any I, I i know i've got loads more to say and i'm not going to say it i'll probably save it for the bloody book or something mm. but um it's the party i want to be at they, they they make me feel good and they remind me of good people Good people that I've loved uh, are associated with the Stones for me throughout my whole life. Simon, I've got this idea about lead singers being twats. Okay, yeah. they have to be. That is their job, yeah. and it all comes back to Mick Jagger. He invented yes. that. Um, and you you see it everywhere. You see it, for example, 
in uh, in, in Blur. So Damon Albarn, mm. pretty boy, but he dicks about. He does the jazz hands and the big eyes, and you know, basically makes makes himself into into the fool. And that gives uh, a license to the guitarist to be the 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 cool, moody, interesting mm. one. Well, Mick Jagger invented that yeah. in his dynamic with Keith Richards. Yeah, um, Mick Mick Jagger. Uh, Mick, Mick Jagger's twattishness as a lead singer yeah. uh, is is basically um, it, it gives it hands the freedom to Keith to to be the cool one, yeah. right? Um, and this video is the epitome of Jagger as twat lead singer. Yes, he's brilliant at yes. it. He is so fucking good at it, and he's enjoying it as well, isn't he? Yes, he is. He's there in his purple V-neck top and his white jogging bottoms, and he is giving it loads. He's the, this uh, my, my my whole theory about about the lead singer being a twat. I, I might as well just show people this video here. Just here it is. Just watch. Yeah. There it is. That's the that's that's the whole theory. Yeah. And um, you're right. It is a very weird um, directing by Michael Lindsay Hogg. Well, I can't here. imagine there being the way... too many takes for this. Hmm. Well, it's the way that um, I mean, how many cameras did they have? It's the way Ronnie and Keith keep kind of looming up yes. uh, in, fr- in front of Jagger. Like, they, it's like he doesn't know about zooming out with yes. the camera. They, they they loom up like like gonks to, yes. to, to have a throwback to a previous <laughs> yeah. episode like of Or like in the Muppet show, where uh, just all the, yeah, yeah, all the yeah. Muppets just, just jump into shot. Yeah. Yes, yeah. that's exactly what it's like. Um, I, I, I share uh, Neil's love of this relatively late period of, of the Stones' work. Uh, you know, for me, some of my favourite Stones singles are Miss You and uh, Undercover the Night that we yes. just mentioned and um, Emotional Rescue, which I, is a phenomenal track. Yes, it for is. me, Emotional Rescue invents Kiss by Prince. Uh, <laughs> and I know that um, Taylor in a previous episode broke down exactly where yes. uh, Prince nicked Kiss from. But I'm saying the feel of it is from Emotional Rescue by the Stones. So, yeah, for me, my favourite phase of the Stones is when they're a bit too old to be doing this and they're these sort of silk-shirted, sleazy old pervs, you know, (laughs) doing their thing. And, you know, the the, the tarts, the male tarts, really. And I I love that face. And I get as much from uh, some girls as I get from uh, Let It Bleed or something Mm, like that, you know. So, um, I and, yeah, obviously you, you can't argue with some of the 60s, Hits like, you know, Gimme Shelter, Sympathy for the Devil, Paint It Black, all of that stuff. All of which Neil quite correctly points out was pivotal in bringing about the dark stuff into modern music. Yeah. But in terms of enjoyment, just sheer enjoyment, it's it's this era, really, yeah. that does it for me more than anything. And Start Me Up is is a great single. It might not be my favourite from from this era, and it, it is overplayed. And yes, it is, yeah. It, it's almost as if it was written to be the opening song at gigs, which many, many, many times they have used yes. it as their opener mm. at, at a gig. Um, but it's still a cracking song. Um, in my role as goth police, um, I will uh, um, quickly uh, point out that the cult completely ripped it off for Love Removal Machine. <laughs> uh, and good for them, you know. Um, but uh, also in this video, we all right, already in this episode of, of uh, Top of the Pops, we've had one Starman moment where uh, Mark Almond uh, stares down the barrel of the camera. 
there's a re- there's a much creepier one in this video. It's every time Bill Wyman stares down the camera. He's st- and and like like Mark and, and like Bowie before him, he is staring down the camera yeah. through the television and into the living room of thirteen year olds. Yeah. Um, not thirteen year olds like me, of course, no. but thirteen year olds <laughs> like Mandy Smith. And uh, yeah, um, CC Shuizen Rockstar. He is hiding in plain yes. sight. That's the yeah, bizarre yeah. thing about it all. But my very favourite thing about this video, and you've already mentioned it, is Charlie Watts. Yes. He's totally... In, in, in any Rolling Stones clip, he's just such good value. Yes. You only ever see a few seconds of yeah. him. But he, there, there are about three good shots of him in this video. And it's the smirk. It's that look of... <laughs> it's that look of, fuck me, these idiots. Yeah. You know, yeah, he's, yeah. <laughs> he's always got that. And it, it's, it's, a, it's this affectionate smirk, but also like, yeah. fucking hell. Basically, the look that says... I could be doing jazz, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know. Ronnie and, Scott's and, right and, now. Yeah, yeah. He could be a Ronnie Scott, exactly. <laughs> and he's always got that look. If you go back to something like uh, the video for It's Only Rock and Roll, mm. uh, where they're in that tent, they're wearing sailor suits, and they're in that tent yeah. that gets filled up with foam. And, of course, he's the first one to drown because he's sitting down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, um, up until the point that he disappears behind the foam, he's just got this kind of resigned look of, oh, well, you know, this is what I signed up for. Yeah. This is what pays the it's mortgage. It's only rock and roll. But, <laughs> yeah, it's only rock and roll. But, uh, yeah, I, I would love to... Just his inner monologue must be amazing because yeah. it is totally... <laughs> it's, it's just these fucking guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love him. I love him. I love him. I love him. By this time... People were thinking, oh, well, this is it. This is like the last hurrah for the Rolling Stones. They can't be going on much longer. Well, in a way, they were right. Because as, as a recording act, yeah. you know, they brought out an album every few years. But they've mostly been dog shit, you know. Yeah. yeah. But, as yeah, as, uh, it, they, they were entering. Because I, I seem to remember that, all right, after Undercover, the next really big hit, and this is off the top of my head, was a cover of um, Harlem Ooh, Shuffle. Yeah, it was, yeah. Uh, oh, dear. So... You know, so basically, they've already become a variety turn, an entertainment turn, yeah, yeah. by by the mid eighties. Yeah. So in in a way, this is a bit of a sort of watershed. Yeah. They stopped mattering. I mean, in as much as they mattered, they stopped mattering pretty quickly after this. Yes. Um. You know, and become what they are now, which is a, a rotating circus that goes around the world, hoovering up money. Yes. Um. But I don't begrudge them a bit. No. No. I mean, I remember going to see them at Main Road in nineteen ninety with my mate. Because I thought, oh shit! Well, you know, when, fucking when else, hell, Al, I, I was there. The I chance? was there. No, yes, I was exactly the same gig. Good lord, awesome. Ships in the night. Yes, and the reason I wait is because, well, what, when am I going to get the chance to see the Rolling Stones again? Yeah, yeah. they might die. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly why I, why I went as well. Yeah, yeah. And here we are, thirty years later. Yeah. I'll tell you an interesting thing about this tour because it's the the Tattoo You album, yes. Tattoo You tour. Um, Prince supported them yes. on uh, um, at some of the stadium dates in the states, and uh, um, Prince and his band came out wearing um, stockings and suspenders yes. and corsets. Uh, this would have been the Dirty Mind era uh, for Prince, um, and and um, so incidentally, that that's how the Stones themselves are depicted in the brilliant book Rock Dreams yes. by Nick Cohn yeah. and Guy Palat. Yes, um, but. Um, they, Prince and his band were pelted with bottles mm. by Rolling Stones fans, which is fascinating to me because yes. Stones fans were okay with a white man stealing black music yeah, and yeah. acting a bit gay, but not with actual black men yeah. playing black and white music and acting a bit gay. Yeah. I'm disappointed with Stones fans for doing that, but it's... Uh, it's only American Stones it is fans, American. <laughs> so the following week, Start Me Up leapt 15 places to number 13 and would go as high as number 7. 
Over in America, it got to number two, held off the top spot by Arthur's Theme by Christopher Cross and <laughs> Private Eyes by Hall and Oates. The follow-up, Waiting on a Friend, only got to number 50 in December of this year and Start Me Up remains the last stone single to make the UK top 10. It became their go-to opening song on every tour since, has featured in every Stones compilation since, and in 1995, Microsoft lobbed $3 million at Jagger and Richards to use the song in their ad campaign for Windows 95. <laughs> yeah, if you start me up, it'll be a fucking miracle without three updates. <laughs> <laughs> Stones and start me up. Okay, we're going to dance around now with some of the most beautiful sets of legs in town. It's Legs and Co. ELO, and let's get going right now. Hold on tight. <laughs> Skinner, surrounded by a trailer load, a trailer load, a trailer load of gal, <laughs> ignores them completely. He only has eyes for Legs and Co, who are about to cavort to Hold On Tight by ELO. We've discussed the Electric Light Orchestra many a time and oft, and this is the first cut from their ninth LP, Time, which came out early last month and is the current number one LP in the UK. It's the follow-up to Don't Walk Away, which got to number 21 in December of 1980 and has nipped up one place from number 6 to number 5 and has been accompanied by one of the most expensive videos ever recorded at the time, costing 40 grand. But we're getting legs and co, like we did with All Over the World a year ago. Why are Legs & Co. always put together with ELO round about this time? It's odd, because you wouldn't all... Did them. I mean, ELO don't leap out as a band suitable for Legs & Co. routines, necessarily. Which no! Is, no. There is much dadisfaction in this, though. In, in, in the utterly yes. inappropriate dancing, in a sense. It's a difficult song to dance it, to. Yeah, very much so. I mean, and the video would have served the band and as pop-crazed youngsters a lot better because, you know, it's a pastiche of old movie trailers and we get to see what Jeff Lynne looks like if you get rid of about two stone of hair <laughs> from his from his head and face. He looks odd, man. I mean, Neil says dadisfaction, but I'm saying not mm, kiddisfaction, mm. right? No. Because, I mean, all right, I mean, uh, apologies to um, pop-crazed youngsters. Why does anyone care about the sexual thoughts of a 13-year-old boy in 1981, as remembered by a 51-year-old man in 20, wow. 2019. But with that caveat, I'm going to say, right, Legs & Co's appearances, and I guess Pants people before them, but I was a child at that time, but Legs & Co's and Zoo's appearances were a pointless lull in the show for me. I never got anything oh. from them, certainly not anything in terms of them being sexy. I never understood why they were meant to be sexy because they all had you know sort of like long blonde hair or permed and frizzy mm. and in this one they're wearing 
dresses that would probably have been called gypsy dresses, mm. probably made of cheesecloth. It's a very seventies mm. mm. aesthetic. Yes, sexually, very much so. right? Um, you know, they had you know that that phrase "legs up to their armpits," which sounded hideous. <laughs> yes. You know, it was like, gro- yeah, grotesque. Yeah. They look like they're wearing a collection image. of habitat throws, don't they? They basically with they are. I mean, me- they might as well have been wearing macrame <laughs> earrings to go with as well. Well, very it's, whiff of the late seventies about it. I, I remember um, a, a friend of mine um, had access to a pornographic magazine, uh, which was um, hidden in a hole in a patch of waste mm. ground uh, near his house. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, uh, he, he took a bunch of us around there and uh, rummaged around and found this oh. magazine and showed it to us. And I, I didn't get any stirrings from it at all because it was all women with like long legs, suntans and blonde hair, which... To me, to yeah. basically Rod Stewart yeah. girlfriends. You know yeah. that. That's what, and this is what Legs and Co. looked like to me. If Legs and Co. had looked like, because uh, there's five of them, right? In this, yes. Clip, if if they if they had looked like Joanne Catherall, <laughs> Tracy Ullman, oh. Claire Grogan, Annabella Lewin, and Tegan from Doctor <laughs> Who, right? <laughs> so basically, like modern women with short hair, cool hairstyles. Yeah. Maybe I'd have been triggered. Mm. But um, as it is, there are these sort of seventies women in seventies clothes with seventies hair yeah. prancing about in a really seventies way. It did nothing for me. Whether it did anything for for, for dads, I, I can't say. But just that whole aspect of enjoyment at the top of the bus. I used to sort of mentally switch off for, for four minutes mm. when they were on every time. Yeah, girls. <laughs> <laughs> no, girls, great. But these like seventies women, yeah. you know. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. they are, legs, as you pointed out, Simon, Legs and Co. are down to five at this point because Pauline Peters, the one who was born in Burma, had left in the spring to pursue an acting career. And she's about to appear in the first two episodes of Tenko Ooh. as a servant. Mm-hmm. And she rounds off the year dressed as a geisha, sitting on a beanbag and having to go on a Matchbox race chase set in the Woolworths Have a Cracking Christmas advert. Oh, my God. Along with Anita Harris, Don Estelle, Windsor Davis and two of the goodies. Because, you know, fucking Billy already ain't getting involved in that shit. <laughs> I can't believe I've left it this long. But I'm about to relate to you my most pathetic brag ever. Right, my mate, Jiggy G, who listens, hey up, Jiggy, he told me once that his mum worked with Pauline out of Legs & Co. in a department store in Richmond. And for years afterwards, I used to brag on in the pub about that. This, this fourth hand claim to lame. And it wasn't even fucking true. I said to him, I said to him one time, ask your mum a bit more, get a bit more information out of her. And he came back to me and says, oh, no, she, it was a dancer from something else that wasn't Legs & Co. <laughs> if you've ever sat in a pub with me and I have bragged on to you that my mate's mum worked with Pauline out of Legs & Co. in a department store in Richmond, I apologise for bullshitting to you. The other thing that needs to be mentioned about Legs & Co. is that they are two months away from being thrown on the scrap heap in Thatcher's Britain. And they don't know yet. Mm, they must have had an inkling. There's been so many changes in Top of the Pops, they must wonder. Mm. Because they are starting to be relegated, as we're going to see later on, to being the, the, the side piece in uh, other bands' acts. Perhaps being deliberately given songs that are inappropriate for them to make them look outdated. Oh, you know, you're saying they've been uh-huh. nobbled perhaps. by ELO. <laughs> well, not by ELO, by Hurl, perhaps. Yeah. Who knows? But but good lord, this song, if we mm. to me, it's not a great song. I don't think it gets bored with itself. No. It doesn't really have enough ideas. The yes. production, as ever from Lynn, is is really ear catching. But for me, it's like a one minute song that 
can only extend itself by going into French um, <laughs> to kind of yes. kind of make itself longer. I, th- I think I was I think I was anti not, not anti ELO as such at this age, but anti beard. <laughs> so at a young age, that would have put yeah. me off this and many ELO songs. I only grew to like them later. For me, of course, yeah. Living Thing is the uh, one. Um, yes, the, yes, my yes. favourite ELO. I, I'm wondering. I know Price is a big ELO fan. Where this stands in the pantheon, as it were, very low, very, very yeah, low indeed. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this was a huge hit. This was uh, a number four hit single. Yes. Um, and if you exclude Xanadu, which was their only number one, but it was a duet. Uh, so yeah. then, basically, you've got "Don't Bring Me Down" got to number three. Living Thing yeah. got to number four, and this got to number four. So this song, and this this depresses me, this was their equal second biggest hit, and it just doesn't deserve yeah. to be. Uh, and, I, yeah, I, I absolutely adore ELO, and I can't begrudge Jeff Lynne having a hit record, but this this uh-huh. is very, very weak, isn't it? There, there's a thing, right, there's, there's yeah. a difference in music between emotion and sentiment, and this is sentimental. A lot of ELO stuff is very emotional. Listen to something like... Telephone line or um, showdown or something, it it, it really mm. it, it it can tear you apart. But this is this is sentimental, mm. which is a whole different thing, and just not not very pleasant. Um, yeah, I, I hated it then. I don't like it much more in hindsight. It's got that. There's also a thing in some ELO records, which most of their stuff was really futuristic sounding. It you know it, they, it, in a way mm. I, I always think of Daft Punk. Or I think of ELO when I think of Daft Punk, put it that way, because they had this mm. kind of utopianism mm. about them. And um, I guess it's partly the imagery of a lot of their record sleeves, you know, that kind of spaceship thing and all of that. But they, they seem very forward-looking sonically and in just the spirit of it. <clears throat> but they also had this tendency sometimes with things like, uh, I don't know, Roll Over Beethoven or Rock Aria, something like that, to be, to be quite backward-looking and a, bit, and a bit cheesy. And and this is probably why, unfortunately, um, it's easy for some people to dismiss them as kind of Alan Partridge mm. fodder. <laughs> Records like this by ELO, I think they enable people to say they were, they were Beatles copyists or something like that. So in the novel Paperback Writer by Mark Shipper, which, which comes out in 1976, in which the, the author imagines the Beatles reforming, um, sorry, not in 1976, later on, but um, in the novel paper writer, this is one of the songs that right. the reformed Beatles record, um, this ELO song, um, because the Beatles in this novel can't come up with any <laughs> decent songs by themselves. Um, and, and it's got that little touch to it, definitely one of their weakest songs, but, but a yeah. lucrative one for them is a big hit. And then, of course, used the following year in the Join the Coffee Achievers advertising <laughs> campaign in America. Oh, my so, God. How do you achieve in coffee? Oh, you'll have to watch the adverts. Uh. It's Cicely, Cicely Tyson in it, and it's, right. uh, it, uh, it's a mad advert. And, and, uh, and again, a completely inappropriate use of this song. And uh, it was also around yeah. this time, wasn't it? They had that hit with Rock and Roll is King. Which, which again yeah. is another sort of um, throwback record, and it's basically as if Jeff Lynne's abandoned any idea of pushing things forward, uh, yeah. and, and mm. yeah, it, it is it is just about good old day, good good old times music, you know, and uh, that's that's all he wants to do from this point onwards, which is fine. And uh, I've I've been to see um, the you know, revived Yellow. Uh, I saw them at Hyde Park on their big comeback and wrote a huge review for. The Quietus, which is out there if anyone wants to read it, where I, I really go into it about how much they mean to me and uh, what a place they have in my life is this kind of epitome of my kind of um, pre-awakening pop innocence. You know, that, that moment mm. just before 
I discovered the cool stuff, you know, the moment before I, yeah. I discovered mm. like specials mm. and, you know, a kind of alternative music and stuff with a bit of an edge. And um, I, I ended that review by saying that I want all my clever records to leave me alone. I want Metal Box by Pill, just go somewhere else. I, I don't want to know. All I want for a fortnight is just to wallow in ELO. And sometimes I just love to do that. They, they are yeah. they are that kind of band that I I can kind of totally lose myself in, and you know, I don't I don't care if people find them naff. It's just you know I could not give less of a shit. And I'm not I'm not even doing it in a kind of contrarian way of you know picking a band that everyone thinks is naff and sort of making a stance of like well actually I think they're great. I just genuinely adore them, and uh, mm. um, this song could be wiped out the history without me shedding a tear but like i said yeah. i can't begrudge jeff for having a hit those elo albums they were in everybody's yeah. house i just remember them being there you know that and the saturday night fever mm. soundtrack was just it was like it was issued to every single member of the population out of the blue and discovery and also the um that greatest hits one with a medal on the front you'd see those everywhere yeah yes so the following week hold on tight slithered up to number four its highest position the follow-up Twilight would only get to number 30 for two weeks in November of this year and like the Stones, they'd never get a sniff of the top 10 arse again. and curl from one great set of figures to another as we look at the top 30 charts and at number 30 it's the specials ghost town 29 everybody salsa modern romance it's new at 28 for the rolling stones start me up wired for sound at number 27 cliff richard the nolan's chemistry is number 26 at 25 i love music from enigma the jacksons walk right now that's number 24 Sheena Easton is 23 with For Your Eyes Only. And it's a rainy night in Georgia at 22 for Randy Crawford. Ario Speedwagon take it on the run at number 21. And chart number one is number 20 for Spandau Ballet. And at number 19, here's Ultravox and The Thin Wall. to the first third of the top 30 rundown or, as Skinner puts it, from one great set of figures to another. He doesn't wear it well, does he, that sexism? No, this is, no. This is what gets me. I'm not saying sexism is ideal from anyone, but no. if it was, I don't know, if it was Tommy Vance, right, you, you'd yeah. buy it a bit more, wouldn't you think, okay, well, you know, he is that guy. With Skinner, I don't buy that he is that guy, which <laughs> yes. just makes it that bit weirder. He then announces... The Thin Wall by Ultravox. We've already covered Ultravox in Chart Music's 2 and 5, and this single is the lead cut for their fifth LP, Rage in Eden, which was recorded in Cologne and co-produced once again by Connie Plank and is out in a fortnight. It's the follow-up to All Stood Still, which got to number 8 in June of this year. And this week, it soared 18 places from number 37 to number 19. 
Despite having an expensive video, which involves Midge dressed up like a 30s type while sitting in an old car full of water and having all hands coming out of the wall and trying to grab his bollocks while he's ambling down a corridor, here they are in the studio. Where do we start with this, dear boys? Ultravox, how did you feel about them at the time, Simon? Ultravox were, were a weird one, really, because um, mm. even though I, I I did sort of cross over a little bit with uh, uh, the Neuromantic stuff, they seemed both of that scene and not of it in a different way to Soft Cell. Mm. Because to mm. me, Ultravox were the synth band for prog boys. Yeah. Right? right. Uh, there were older boys at my school who... Um, they were into, you know, kind of, I don't know, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, all that kind of stuff. Um, mm. And their only concessions to the new wave, there were two bands that they, they uh, accepted as being okay from the new wave. One of them was XTC, strangely, yeah. and the other one was Ultravox. Mm. And um, I I try not to sort of let that put me off Ultravox. I try not to sort of judge them <laughs> on, on, on who some of their fans were. But I think there's certainly an element that one of them has facial hair. They aren't gaying you, you know? They yes. aren't gaying yeah, at yeah. you with Ultravox. <laughs> um, but, you know, leaving that aside, um, I do like this single. Um, I think it's their second best single after Sleepwalk. Mm. I really like the keyboard bits um, by... Uh, Billy Curry, which I, I don't mean the kind of chords. I mean the sort of monophonic uh, single notes that he plays uh, yeah. on on every beat, and it's it's a lovely thing actually. Um, and and the lyrics are kind of interesting. Supposedly it's about the man and being controlled by the establishment, but there are lines like they shuffle with a bovine grace and glide in syncopation. Mm, the and, image dance starts once again. <laughs> yeah, uh, they drive by night and act as if they're moved by unheard music. Which I think is really good, I've got to say. Who's he having a go at there? Well, it's there, isn't it? Didn't get into the Blitz Club that night, <laughs> did you, it's, Midge? It's, 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 the, it's, it's the traditional um, uh, rock song, They, the, the ever-unnamed They. It's the man, mm, isn't it? Mm. You know? I, I often wonder about Midge Ewer's place in uh, Ultravox and, and you know, is, is it them doing a bit of a deal with the devil? In that he he had a track record of you know of some success in the past yes. before being in Ultravox, and I often liken it in my mind to uh, when Liverpool signed Paul Ince, and uh, I just remember thinking, I remember thinking it's all wrong. It doesn't feel right. He's not a Liverpool person. He's a Man United oh, person. You say that Midgeo's the governor of synthpop. He is the governor of the gov apostrophe nor of synthpop. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so. I, I think he, yeah, he, he sort of he, he turns up in 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 the band at a point where they are weak. They've lost their uh, former lead singer John Fox, and uh, in 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 the way that I, you know, I thought, okay, okay, it's fine. Liverpool can sign Paul Ince. Uh, he's horrible. He's from Man United, who are completely against everything that we stand for. But he's a winner, and he might help us win the league. He didn't even help us win the bloody league. No. But mm. but I I often wonder if if like you know, Ultravox had a bit of that about them of. of yeah, this, yeah. This, this 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 mid-year guy, he's a journeyman, he's a hack, he's sung for loads of different bands already, uh, he's not really an Ultravox person, but he's had, he's, success. Got, he's had success and he's got that kind of quite operatic, powerful voice, he can he can mm. belt it out, He he's in, in the same way that Tony Hadley is not really a Spandau Ballet guy, but yeah. he was the, 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 the vehicle for it all. Yeah. So I and, and in the meantime, everybody else watching this is going, oh, that's Midge's band there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly right. 
Uh, um, I'm, I'm quite intrigued by by his his look uh, in, Ooh, in this performance. Very peaky blinders. Isn't peaky it? blinders with a flat cap, but also uh, he's he's got the, uh, these zoot suits uh, pants with his tie oh, tucked the wow. tie tucked into the waistband. Yeah. I, 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 I believe there are Oxford bags he's got on. Oh there, so. right, okay. Yeah, I suppose they yes. are. Yeah, yeah, I suppose they are. Yeah, it's proper but, northern soul jobos, and you know <laughs> already 1981, Mitch is trying to get flares back. But they make sure there's enough smoke around his feet. Yes, you can't, there's plenty you, of dry ice. I bet the band you insisted on that. You can't see his lack of dancing skills. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. Leave it. Leave the Saxons out. I, I've actually warmed a bit to, to Midyear lately, uh, and mm. you probably know why. Uh, mm. It's yeah, basically tell the pop crazy youngsters. Yeah, yeah. Simon. Uh, I mean, even though I've, I, I think I may have, have, have slagged him off on previous chart music, so or, you know, um, maybe maybe a tiny bit. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah, a, a, a weird things happened. I keep getting bombarded with notifications, with emails from LinkedIn, um, mm. everybody's favourite completely useless job search website, yes. uh, saying, "Do you know Midyear?" <laughs> <laughs> and I, I don't know why they're picking on him and picking on me, but I asked around, and other people are also getting bombarded uh, with this question: "Do you know Midyear?" It's, <laughs> it's like wow. it's like that half man, half biscuit song. Do you ken Ted Malt? Um, yeah. uh, uh, it's it's really odd, and um, maybe it's him wreaking a revenge on all ex Melody Maker writers for what Carol. Do you know Clark what? It could be from what Carol Clark did. Yeah, yeah. Yes, uh, it could be that. Yeah, because for those who haven't heard this bit before, Carol used to uh, um, ring him up and prank. Carol's our news editor. She used to ring him up and prank call him all the time. And uh, he used to uh, um, basically, he'd answer the phone, sometimes pretending to be his own PA. And he'd say, uh, he's not in, he's not in. (laughs) But yeah, um, it was really, really unfair. But the thing is, uh, I I mentioned on Twitter that I'm getting these these notifications. Do you know Midyear? And uh, um, I didn't tag him in it. So... Uh, evidently, he's one of those people who searches for their own name. But yeah. leave it, leaving that aside, he was kind of cool and funny about it. And he's like, oh, sorry, Simon. And I just thought, oh, you bastard. You've won me over by being kind of cool and nice and funny about it. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. There See you how are. easy it is to turn Simon Price. Yeah, basically, <laughs> yes. Yeah, uh, fucking, we, we, we think we're tigers, but we're pussycats. We roll on our backs yeah. and have our tummy scratched. So anyway, yeah, your turn, Neil. Off you well, go. Well, I mean, to me, this is... It's like in the context of this show, this is a perfect illustration of why things like Soft Cell were so special. Um, don't get me wrong. I mean, look, as a kid, I loved Vienna, for God's sake. But then mm-hmm. as a kid, I used to think the 1812 Overture was a great piece of music. And I thought Gandhi was a great film. I grew the fuck out of it. It's so composite, this. The look, right, the band looks like Kraftwerk. Midjor yeah. looks like I think he's trying to. I think he's aiming for actually a Bowie circa Young Americans look. Yes, um, you're right. In a big yes. way. Um, and look yes. how shittily kind of unseedy his uh, tash looks. Um, yes, but, um, uh, because I just get this. Like, like Simon said about that, you know, them being a, a, a band that prog fans could dig. It's kind of these are people who you feel are still sort of residually touched by a slight musicians' union shame about since to a certain extent um, that they're a bit puffy. And so they have to play them aggressively in a way that Ball didn't. But this would... Yeah, pro- and have fucking loads of them as well. Yeah, absolutely. Tons yeah. of them. An absolute bank of them. Um, you know, these are, the, these are the people who would end up perhaps spawning Howard Jones more than, more than Soft Cell did. But, but this would actually... This song would probably be a, a, a mid-your era uh, Ultravox song. I would save. Because it, it, I mean, it works like a brochure of Connie Plank's studio. 
It's like a demo no. of the state of the art. And, and and the sound is similarly brittle and funky as a song that we've looked at, uh, Robert Palmer's Looking for Clues. It, it, it ah, reminded yes. me of that a little bit. Yes, I, I didn't get on with the lyrics, to be honest with you. And, and I kind of thought to myself, if these were on a Bowie song, would I like them? And I wouldn't. And I think that Bowie didn't write them. I, I think they're a tad forced and a bit over the top. And um, it's yeah. just a shame they've out of this amazing kind of studio sound they've got that they've attempted to make a song out of it in a way. Um, not only for us at home, but also for the audience who seem a bit nonplussed. Um, but what yes. what's good about this is that Hurl has basically, obviously, said to the backroom boys go absolutely batshit with the effects. Yes, so <laughs> they, they do. They do. This is like an Asian wedding video on heavy, heavy opiates. It's <laughs> it's <laughs> like they've got the FX machine and they're just going mad on it. Better than, any, oh, yeah. better than anything more measured and considered would be. But unfortunately, it's only the ugly mugs of Ultravox that, that this is being applied yeah. to. Imagine if they'd applied these kind of effects to soft cell. Probably something would have been lost. You need to focus on Mark and his eyes. But, yes. um, but yeah, the, the effects are nuts on this and they kept me yes. absorbed enough as did the sheer sound of the the, the quote-unquote song it's barely a song to me it's kind of like mm. a, a series of good sonic ideas looking for a hook but um yeah, yeah out of all of that era of ultravox it's probably uh, one of the songs that i'd salvage yeah i didn't mind this song at all when it was out because it just sounded weird mm. and yeah visually yeah it's uh it's it's a, it's a treat isn't it <laughs> It's extremely Doctor Who. Yeah, uh, but look at how what the look at what the Ultravox keyboard players are doing to their keyboards. It's mm. so unlike uh, David Bulford Soft Cell it, that that they yeah. are completely being. No, they're not being Rick Waitman exactly, but 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 they're throwing in that sort of yeah. floridness of touch that is more yes. conventional. Well, the, the thing is with Dave Bull, whenever I watch Soft Cell on Top of the Pops or anything else, he barely seemed to do anything he barely seemed to move yeah. Yeah, and that was what was amazing this this sound was coming out and you couldn't quite connect it with a human touch with this it's all mm. quite musicianly um yes. which it, which is different but also um the the, the way they set up their synths and uh, their little drum pads and all that kind of stuff it's it's like a lab you know it's mm. all it's all on some kind of um sort of scaffolding it's as if you know they're saying this isn't pop this is science that we're doing here <laughs> yeah, do you know what yeah. I mean? yeah and the, and the visual effects bear that out because there's a lot of like phasing yes on the fringes and uh, some mad fucking blobby laser orbs it's like the orbs that Derek and Yvette are looking <laughs> for on most haunted aren't they <laughs> but I wish kind of those effects. I mean, it, it, perhaps not so subtle, but I would have liked to have seen these effects applied to the associates or somebody like that. Or, or, yeah, know. or Zig Zig Sputnik. That would have been something. <laughs> so the following week, the Thin Wall jumped five places to number fourteen, but could only hold its place the next week and slid out of the charts. The follow-up, The Voice, got to number 16 in December of this year and they'd have to wait two years for their next and final top 10 hit, Dancing With Tears In My Eyes, which got to number three in June of Thank you, guys. 
the thin wall. And no, don't worry, Midgier is not joining the Ryder Cup golf team. What we're going to do now, though, is dip back into the hit parade and look at the places in the middle range of the charts. Number 18 this week is the Star Tracks Club Disco. At 17, CC is your sweeter rock star, Bill Wyman. Tempo Tudor, Wunderbar at number 16. It's new at 15, Gary Newman, She's Got Claws. Beach Boy Gold, Gidea Park at number 14. At 13, Water on Glass from Kim Wilde. And at number 12, here they are, it's Genesis, Abaca. <laughs> throws some golfy shade upon Midjor, then breaks down the chart from 18 to 12, leading us nicely into Abacab by Genesis. Formed in Charterhouse School in Godalming, Surrey in 1967, the original lineup of Genesis, led by Peter Gabriel, were immediately picked up on by Charterhouse old boy Jonathan King, who signed them to a one-year deal with Decca Records while the band was still at school. After two flop singles and an LP, from Genesis to Revelation, which only sold 649 copies in its first year because record shops kept putting it in the religious section, they took a year off to finish their education and reformed in 1969. After struggling along with a flop second LP and losing original band members, they were supplemented by the guitarist Steve Hackett and... After their original choice for new drummer, a pre-Queen Roger Taylor turned them down, Phil Collins, who had failed to get into Vinegar Joe and Manfred Mann Chapter 3. Although they went on to become the darlings of the heavyweight music press, it wouldn't be until 1974 when their seventh single, You Know What I Like, In Your Wardrobe, broke the top 40, getting to number 21 for two weeks in April of that year. And it would have gone higher had they not turned down a Top of the Pops invitation as they felt it didn't fit in with their image. Yeah. In 1975, Gabriel left the band, claiming he'd had enough of the music biz and wanted to doss about with his family. And after the band tried to find a new singer by placing an advert in Melody Maker for a Genesis-type group, <laughs> failed to attract anyone suitable, Colin stepped in. Despite releasing two successful LPs, they'd have to wait two more years until their next chart single, The Spot the Pigeon EP, which got to number 14 in July of 1977, by which time Hackett had left and the group were reduced to three. However, their next single, Follow You, Follow Me, got them to number seven for two weeks in April of 1978, establishing them as a regular-ish chart singles act. This is the lead cut from the LP of the same name, which is due out in three weeks, and it's the follow-up to Misunderstanding, which got to number 42 for two weeks in September of 1980. It's also the first airing of Genesis since Phil Collins launched a solo career and took In the Air Tonight, which was an off-cut from recording sessions for their previous LP, Duke, all the way to number two in February of this year, held off number one by Woman by John Lennon and followed it up with I Missed Again and If Leaving Me Is Easy, which got to number 14 and 17 respectively. 
After entering the chart on number 27 last week, it's leapt up 15 places to number 12. And oh man, they are not cocking their nose up at top of the pops now, are they? Not at all. Not at all. Do you notice in the um, uh, preamble to this that uh, Skinner unironically talks about the hit parade? Yes. Yes. He's, he's, yes. Not, he's, not, doing it, he's not doing it with a wink or anything. He actually no. calls it the hit parade. So yeah. Genesis are in the hit parade. Now Genesis, they were in 1981. Someone of my age, Genesis, they were your teacher's band, weren't they? Yeah, they were. Yeah. But they're also starting to become Phil Collins' side project. Well, it, it, it's like Phil Collins had some hits and Genesis mm. kind of said, can we do that too? So, yes. so they're sort of doing songs with Earth, Wind and & Fire and, and we're, we're now on a road with that band, with Genesis, uh, that would eventually yeah. lead to horrors like the video for I Can't Dance. But... You know, yes. let's not think of that horror now. Let's just... Uh, I quite enjoy this, to be honest with you. I don't hate yes. this now. I would have then. It sounds pretty dated. Yeah. It's got a pure, pure 70s prog keyboard sound, but like everyone of their age yeah. at the time, they're trying to adjust to new waves, so they've knocked all the florid long sections out of their songs. And uh, This episode is all about bands from the 70s trying to adapt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And, and let's just appreciate, you know, Phil's great kit work. And, um, yes. and also note that the rugby top that the keyboard player yes. is wearing it is one of the worst garments ever to be worn on top of the pops. I, yeah. I, See, this is just another, another example of anti-Welsh racism. Do you realise who that <laughs> club is? It's Cardiff. Oh, is it? It's Cardiff. Yes, it is. And I'm, I should just walk out of here right now. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, actually, to, to be fair, to be fair, that kit, that uh, colour scheme was probably used by other teams as well, but it was definitely Cardiff. Well, I just can't. Oh, wow. I just can't stand seeing rugby shirts and things like that on top of the pops because because. No. Brings back memories of Noel Edmonds in uh, Brown Sauce. I just want to be a winner, doesn't it? Yeah. It, it kind of says something about their attitude towards Top of the Pops, I think. It's kind of... Because, hey, he just happens to be a guy. He happens to be a musician, right? And he just wants to play his song. And this is Top yeah. of the Pops. You know, this is Top of the Pops. You decided to be on national telly and kids will be watching. Yeah. And they want excitement. Something to lift yes. them out of their drab every day. And you turn up looking like that. I mean, I'm not saying yeah. they have to turn up wearing, a, I don't know, a, a Diamante Dunce. Roller skating. Yeah, or a Diamante Dunce's cap or anything. Just wear a fucking suit or something. But see, bands mm. like Genesis at that point, they don't need to wear a suit. Because a rugby top, far more than the suits that actually younger, poorer bands are wearing on Top of the Pops. A rugby top says, um, I just finished the sheep dip and I hopped in the Ferrari and I drove to the top of the pop <laughs> studios and, and you know yeah. afterwards hey I'll be heading back to lay down some tracks with Dave Gilmore and we'll both be fucking wearing rugby yeah, shirts it, it is born um, yeah. I went to school with cunts like that and I'm glad I'm not invited to their weddings and I, I don't like that yeah. seeing that kind of shit on on top of the pops but Genesis yeah. are one of those bands that for me they're put on that ever expanding list of bands that I probably should have listened to have never got around to because people I trust and like recommend Genesis like Taylor basically and, and also the drummer in my band they both swear down mm. by early Genesis but then again they both also swear down that Marillion are great so it's a slippery yes. slope it's a slippery yes. slope never, I feel. never let that be forgotten yes it's a slippery sh- slope so but but, yeah. I, 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 so, but also I, remember Neil you only wear a suit for two reasons getting married and dying which are both the same thing <laughs> that's one of the best Needham quotes I think but um, yeah yes. no um, I do actually I quite enjoyed this I don't hate this now might have done then it's probably probably would have been a bit too sophisticated for me at that age but now yeah. I quite enjoy it precisely because it does sound a little bit dated it sounds like a sort of old Pink Floyd song or something but yeah I mean we're going on about the uh, the, the, the style 
of uh, Genesis. Let's bear in mind that Phil Collins is wearing a granddad shirt, which would catch on amongst the youth in a year or so's time. True. Mm. Yeah. yeah. But they, they look scruffy. Yeah. They, and they don't look... Yeah, they do. They don't they look do. like they're washed. I mean, if to, to, yeah. to, to, to disinter an old trope, I wouldn't eat a sandwich made by these people. No, <laughs> no. The weird thing about this performance, um, that well, there's only three of them. There's no bassist. Um, mm. uh, and yet you're hearing a bass line. The bass line is this, that kind of ostinato bass line. That just doesn't change regardless of the underlying chords. Um it's on the keyboards. It's Tony Banks uh, yes. in, in the rugby shirt. They're doing that. Um, and when you look at the whole setup, um, it's almost as synthetic as Ultravox mm, in a way. Mm. Um, and, well, um, you know, as... notice how the supposed old fart prog band have got four left synthesizers on stage in Ultravox. <laughs> no. Well, they're, they're, there's not not much of a difference between in the combat. fan bases in a way. Yeah, as I say. Um, and this is why, um, uh, similar to Neil, I would have hated this at the time because I would have perceived them as the enemy, definitely. Yes. You know, Genesis, uh, as much as Pink Floyd, would have been a byword for everything that we young people hate. Yes. But, um, you know, uh, I, th- this record caught me unawares a little while ago. I was, I was in a pub somewhere and it came on. And I just started thinking, this is actually great. Mm. <laughs> you know, it just yeah. sounds really good. Yeah. It's just got a real kind of propulsive power to it. Mm. And, that, and actually, um, turn it on again. By, by them is another one great song from, from, mm. yeah yeah from around that time that mm. if you play it now it's better than you remember it being yes. yeah, yeah. They, they don't make it easy for themselves there's so much about them to hate even Mike Rutherford's hair I hate <laughs> yeah. right he, he's got that particular he's got that particular kind of long hair that rebels from getting any longer it doesn't matter how how much he grows it it won't get it won't go past his shoulders <laughs> it just sort of bunches up do you know what I mean yeah it, it refuses yeah. To, to go any longer than that it's very sheepy and um, mm. you know, so so yeah, I just I, I think they they look awful, uh, but it's it, it's just one of those things of um, a, a good record by a maybe a mostly bad band. Mm. Uh, I I can't I can't really um, slag this off. It's 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 decent. I mm. I I enjoyed I enjoyed sitting there for three and a half minutes and listening to it. Yeah, I did. Yeah. And uh, before we before we move away, I just want to give a big shout out to uh, Prog Teachers. Sounded like I was slagging them off at the beginning, but it was really handy to have a prog teacher in the early 80s because they would always help you with that one clue you couldn't get in the Smash It's Crossword, which usually was Jethro Tull. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Barker yeah. James Harvest. Yeah. yeah. Just, want yeah. To, just want to give a big shout out to Mr. Hill. Yeah. We need to talk about the title, uh, Abacab, A B A C A B, which I interpret as meaning all bastards, all cops are bastards. Yeah. So. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a song structure, isn't it? No, no, no. It's 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 completely they they they're completely doing a kind of hip hop thing there. Yeah, yeah. But just getting it slightly wrong. Uh, I might save this for an episode where we do Phil Collins solo. But um, Janie's mum went out with him when they were teenagers. No. Oh, yeah. wow. Maybe I need to get her on. Get Ooh, her on. Oh, yes. <laughs> so the following week, Abacab nipped up three more places to number nine, its highest position. The follow-up, Keep It Dark, would only get to number 33 in November of this year, but they'd go on to score eight more top 40 hits throughout the 80s and keep going all the way to 1998.
always good to have Genesis on the show. ABA, CAB, Abacab. That is number 12. We move on now from some letters, musical letters, to musical numbers. Numbers 11 to 1. And at number 11, the message is Happy Birthday from Stevie Wonder. UB40, 1 in 10 at number 10. At number 9, it's back to the 60s with tight fit. Lobo's Caribbean Disco Show is number 8 this week. Duran Duran Girls on Film at number 7. Some love action from the Human League at number 6. At 5, it's Hold On Tight, ELO. Shaken Stevens Green Door, that's down to 4. At number 3, Hooked On Classics, Louis Clark and the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. Soft Cell, Tainted Love at number 2. And at number 1, it's Anika singing all about her Japanese boy. Here she is. Drops the top 11 upon the youth of Britain before unleashing the number one, Japanese Boy by Annika. Born in Edinburgh in 1947, Mary Sanderman made a living in the 70s as a folk singer until she was approached by a local songwriter called Bob Heatley to record this song on the condition that she change her name and get all nipponized. One riffle through the Edinburgh phone book later, she was renamed Annika. This is her debut single under the Annika name, and while she's continued to hold down a career singing about dead fishermen in Orkney, it got picked up by commercial radio and was played to death. It entered the charts as the highest new entry at number 19 a fortnight ago. A Top of the Pops appearance kicked it up 15 places to number 4 last week. And this week, it's knocked Green Door by Chicken Stephen off the top of the charts. And she's had to cancel a folk gig at the Edinburgh Festival to don the geisha outfit and emote to the pop craze youngsters. Oh, here's your blistering future. Isn't it Anika, by the way? I thought it was Anika, not not Annika. Yeah, sorry, Simon, you're right, Anika. See, I reckon there were two different strands that led to this record happening in culture. Right. right? First of all, you've got Orientalism, which was a mm. thing that began yes. in the 18th century, really. You had people like the Prince Regent, who uh, had Brighton Pavilion built in a kind of Far Eastern style. And if you uh, go around the interior of that building, you can see all kinds of examples of things that were either brought back from the Far East or were sort of mimicking the, the mm. um, patterns and designs of, of the Far East. It was a very fashionable thing in, in that era. And there was a real revival of that in in pop uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, um, mm. obviously with a band Japan, but all kinds of other people. Yes. Susie Sue uh, using yes. the, um, the, the the rising sun as a... Um, as a backdrop yes. and, and sort of wearing wearing kimonos and that kind Uncle of stuff. Uncle Gordon. Yeah. And even, uh, you could even go as far as uh, Level 42's The Chinese Way. Who knows what they know? Mm. They know how to make shit we used to make. Wow, yeah. A uh, bit, bit of politics there. Um, <laughs> but there's also the strand of yellow face, yellow face humour, okay? Mm. Uh, which uh, you, you can look at something like uh, uh, Mickey Rooney in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Or um, any, pretty much any sort of um, TV comedy show of the 70s and even 80s with, I guess, people like uh, the two Ronnies um, or, or uh, you know... Uh, Benny Hill. Can- Benny Hill, Cannon and Ball, yes. put, in, um, 
putting ping pong balls in their eyes and pretending to be like you know the the, the guy from Kung Fu. Um, Flied lice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. Lots of kind of are so based humour. Of course, um, yes. pe- People wearing those big round um, uh, cone hats and all of that. So, so you've got that kind of very lowbrow mockery of, of the Far East um, and also that, that kind of um, almost uh, awestruck respect for it uh, in pop. Mm. Uh, all of these things converging at this moment where suddenly yes. Anika is number one in the charts with her racist classic, um, <laughs> Jap- <laughs> Japanese boy. And and it really is extraordinary, isn't it? Uh, um, for a start... Uh, I think she, neither she nor the producers of Top of the Pops are particularly bothered here about what is Chinese or Japanese. Yeah, right? oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, all the same, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's all the same to them because uh, I noticed people in the background are waving uh, placards uh, of one of those um, th- those horrifically unflattering portraits by um, uh, Toshusa Shiraku of uh, Otani Eniji. You know the ones that that mm, that, yes. that guy. It's, it's those sort of demonic-looking faces, but they uh, they're waving those around. But hanging from those portraits, they've got paper lanterns and paper fish, which. I mean, maybe I'm ignorant here, but to me, that's totally a Chinese thing. At least you're not waving packets of Vesta sweet and sour about. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, exactly. So basically, the thinking is samurai swords. So it's all the same. Is basically the, the yeah. thinking here, and um, so you know, she she's uh, um, oh Mary Sanderson there wearing wearing the wig. She's taking the the the, the dollar or, or or the yen or whatever it may yeah. be, and 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 to happily playing this character, this this racist character, which apart from you know she's got chopsticks in her hair and all of that, but apart yeah. from, apart from anything else, it doesn't make any sense. Right? Mm. Hang on a minute, right? Yeah, she isn't Japanese. The yeah. boy is the boy. The, the whole conceit of it. Why is she dressed up Japanese? Yeah, but you, you. What one thing? Another thing we also know about the Japanese at this time, Simon, is that they are very cruel, and so the <laughs> you know Tenko about to come on. What? So you think uh, her Japanese boy made her dress it's up? It's subverting her to his will. Maybe, well, but yeah. what, what I reckon is, it's like that. There's that bit in Friends, and I know you're going to hate me for quoting Friends here, but there's <laughs> no, a no, bit no, where go ahead. Phoebe's temporary, very you know, short-lived boyfriend is going to go away and, and and live in China, and there's a bit of an emotional moment, but she sort of gives him the permission and says, uh, "Go, go live in China, eat Chinese food," and then there's a pause, and Chandler says. Of course, over there they just call it food, right? So that—that's that—that's what the song should be. It shouldn't if if she's a Japanese woman, which she's presenting as, it shouldn't be, uh, Mister. Will you tell me where where my lover's gone? He's my Japanese boy. It just be like he's my boy. So if she's living in Scotland, there ain't gonna be many Japanese boys knocking about. True enough. True maybe enough. That's so, what she's saying. Yeah, maybe to, to help sort of you know police maybe missing mm. persons to find him. Yeah. But that's the weird thing. It, it's in this odd place. It's not that I can't tell if it's racist or not. It pretty much is. It's the white and yellow minstrel show, isn't it? But she <laughs> she adopts, I think, in her manners and her accent, she adopts a slight Japanese accent, I guess, um, which well, is she, odd. Yeah, immediately very shrill, struck, isn't she? Yeah, immediately struck me as odd. Why would somebody Japanese sing He's My Japanese Boy? Um, I think it's stemming from, yeah, that if you write a song on a piano and only play the black notes, you will think it ends up sounding Japanese. Yes. Actually, of course, of course, this song failed in Japan because it sounds Chinese um, and it Uh has Chinese scales. But 
I mean, it's akin to the way Sting would reggae up his accent for police songs to a certain extent. So it's yes. not quite blackface or yellowface, rather, but it's getting there. The way she puts her hands together, the way she tilts her head. Oh, God, the hands thing. It's yeah, she... very, very close to that Orientalist thing that, that Simon was mentioning. And um, she, she, you know... she, Yeah, she, she kind of steeples her fingers, doesn't she, in a yes. sort of praying position and holds the microphone between those hands in that position the whole time. Yeah, I, I, I'm charitable enough to think I'm not saying it's harmless. I don't think she was necessarily aware of exactly how racist this is. And like Simon said, we've got turning Japanese, we've got Hong Kong Garden, we've got China Girl in a few years' time. This, this actually echoes. Um, this actually echoes turning Japanese because it's got that da 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 thing in the, in the back. Ah, uh, the the Oriental riff. Do you mean Simon? Yeah. yeah. If you play those black notes, if you yeah. play those, yeah. If you play those black notes, you will get that kind of yeah. vibe to it. But, the um, Oriental riff was written for the stage show The Grand Chinese Spectacle of Aladdin in 1847. Nothing to do with Japan or China or anything, but by this time, it is the law that you have <laughs> to work it into any Oriental sounding <laughs> song. So it was last heard in Kung Fu fighting and, of course, turning Japanese. Mm. And, you know, I think that the band Japan should have been forced to work the Oriental riff <laughs> into all of their songs. <laughs> when my chance came to be king, the ghosts in my life blow wilder than the wind. <laughs> Instantly That was better. a great David Sylvian impression, man. That was Thank fantastic. you. It's a crap Brian Ferry impression. <laughs> uh, we do have Japanese listeners, you know. Chaps, yeah, and if if any of them listening, uh, hello, uh, by the way, um, if any any of our Japanese listeners are members of the Olympic Committee, I just want to say, do please do not use turning Japanese in your opening or closing <laughs> ceremony because it doesn't mean what you think it does. I, be, I believe that the BBC music for the 1964 Tokyo Olympics also got in the charts, and that had a vaguely Japanese yes. theme to it. But but yes. this, I mean, the thing is, you use those black notes, it does end up sounding either Chinese or, oddly enough, Scottish, which is, you know, where the singer's from. Yeah. This doesn't particularly sound Japanese. Written by the same guy who did the theme tune to Funhouse with Pat Sharp. Who'd have thunk it? Oh, yes. Wow. Um, yes. But yeah, would I want to hear this again? Probably not. It has. No, I've ha- totally forgotten that this existed. But have I been whistling it all fucking day? Yes. yes. <laughs> you know, it does get in your head. No, the thing is, the thing is, chaps, that a mere two weeks after this episode went out, I would be uh, decamping to my summer residence, where, which was my Auntie May's caravan on the Summerlands uh, site in Inglemills. And uh, along with my family, uh, me, me non or my grandpa and her best mate, Auntie Gert, uh, came along, and every time this song came on the radio, me nonna and auntie Gert would sing along to it. <laughs> and it's like, how the fuck do you know this song? It's because it was played on Radio Two as radio, as well as Radio One, and and Radio Nottingham and everything. But well, there you go. That's who's buying it. That's who's yeah, buying it. Yeah, because yeah. it's a musical song, isn't it? It I, I could quite easily imagine Danny LaRue belting this out at the Leeds City Varieties Hall. Well, it's got that Mikado kind of Gilbert and Sullivan thing to it, hasn't it? Yeah. But I, I heard that when Tony Blackburn played this on the radio, it might have been on the radio when he introduced it on Top of the Pops, he, he right. said, uh, well, that certainly puts a different slant on things. Oh, oh no, Tony. Oh, yes. Tony. Yeah, I mean, um, the dancers. Um, is that Legs & Co, by the way? That the- is Legs & Co, mm. because they're doing what they're doing at this stage in the twilight part of their career, which is backing up anything that needs backing up. 
So they've got long black wigs. Um, their makeup's yeah. done a bit kind of Japanese. They've got shorty kimonos. Uh, yeah, kimono mini dresses. Yeah, and um, yes. they, they've got paper parasols. They're twirling around yes and right here's the thing um in a lot of ways i i don't agree with the rhetoric of cultural appropriation um mm. you know I, I i tend to sort of think that the more that we share um things amongst different cultures the better and that the uh, logical end result of uh banning cultural appropriation is that British people have to basically dress up as Morris dancers or wear bowler hats, <laughs> right? Um, and fuck that. Um, obviously, I realise it's not as simple as that and there are power imbalances involved, etc. Mm. But mm. just parking that for a moment, I, you know, this, if ever something, is an example <laughs> of insulting cultural appropriation. It really has to be this. And I do wonder, you mentioned that um, I'm sure we have some Japanese listeners uh, um, and I, I do wonder what they and indeed um, the lady who was stood next to uh, uh, Richard Skinner early in this yes. episode make of this. Um, mm, yeah. I mean, because mm. you're saying, uh, Neil, Neil said that uh, the, um, the the fact that they, they, they got it wrong and, and uh, uh, with, with the kind of black notes bit and it actually yeah. sounds more Chinese than Japanese. I don't think that's necessarily the only reason it wasn't a hit in Japan. Well, <laughs> you no, know perhaps I mean? not. Perhaps not. The no. title character doesn't get put over very well, does he? He's been, he's been acting very dishonourable. Well, yeah, but but <laughs> no, but this is it honor honor inscrutability. Yes, the all of these things were mashed up together so that so yeah. that basically the Far East was one place to most British culture, yes. Chinese, yeah. Chinese and Japanese, you know, interchangeable. So it, it's really revealing of the way that we looked upon that culture. I mean, especially when you consider that the music that was actually being made in Japan at the time by Yellow yeah. Magic Orchestra and others. Oh was yeah, of a completely different ilk, you know, than than this. So yeah, yeah. I wonder if, if she'd done the song, Mister. Can you tell me where my lover's gone? He's a black man. <laughs> well, exactly. I don't think it would have exactly. charted. It's it's funny how it was okay to do this kind of stuff about the Far East yes. at this yes. point, yes. Uh, but yeah, possibly not about other ethnicities. Yeah. It, it wouldn't have gone yeah. over so well. And there is a danger of being too po-faced about it and taking it all too seriously. But there is a certain thing where you look back and you flinch a little bit. You, you flinch while, while laughing at it and say, well, different times. Mm. But even at the yeah. time, it felt a bit, I don't know, this is a bit wrong. But at least the hands were used to um, to do some weirdo miming as opposed to pulling at the eyes. God, yeah. Well, well, Bowie does it in the China Girl video. He does, yeah. But that kind of racism, it was... I'm not saying it was the last acceptable racism, because there was tons of racism yeah. that was totally There's plenty of it left to go. Yeah, but for a long, yeah. long time, that racism towards the Far East and, and, you know, a load of diverse cultures just mashed together as this Far Eastern Oriental thing. That was acceptable yeah. for the longest time. Yes, it was. And it's possibly it because we didn't have a, a huge immigrant population from that, that part of the that, world. That's so, absolutely yes. why. Yeah. So it's kind of like, oh, well, they're not going to see it. Who cares? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, there's not going to be an internet or anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and of course, you know, if you're, uh, if, you're, if you're seven days jankers or someone from that generation, you know, oh, it's been a bad half an hour, hasn't it? You've, you've, you've had to watch Mark Almond and now you've got this woman going on about having a sexual relationship with, with someone who, who quite easily put the whip on your back for not building a bridge properly as soon as look at you. Yeah, they're probably the bad guy in Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, or Tenko, yes. or something like that. Yeah, yeah. The following week, Japanese Boy was relieved of the number one spot by Tainted Love. 
The follow-up, Little Lady, failed to chart, and after a flop LP, Sanderman discarded the kimono, went back to singing about old Scottish stuff, and was last spotted working as a tour guide in Edinburgh. Japanese Boy eventually sold 5 million copies worldwide. Jesus. It also became a massive hit across South America when it was recorded by Zaki Ashiro, and it was even dubbed into French by the singer Marion under the title Sayonara Monsieur Kung Fu. Wow. Yes. Yes. And it doesn't even mention the fucking song title in the song. That's stupid. <laughs> But as Niels pointed out, it was not released in Japan after they were told that it sounded too Chinese. And songwriter Bob Heatley went on to write Cry Just a Little Bit and Merry Christmas Everyone for Shaking Stevens and the theme tunes to Funhouse, Wheel of Fortune and Trapdoor. Japanese boy. Don't forget your number one pop show back the same time next week. In the meantime, it's goodbye and everybody, Seltzer. Now what's that crazy rhythm coming from the street? Formed in London in 1980 by the core members of the Leighton Buzzards, Jeffrey Dean and David James, Modern Romance started their career as a piss-taking new romantic band. But after two flop singles, they ditched the blouses, linked up with the trumpet player John Deprez and went all Latin American. This is a follow-up to Tonight, which failed to chart, and it's jumped nine places from number 38 to number 29 this week. And, well, this is the signpost for where Top of the Pops is going, isn't it? Mm. It's office party time. Yes. It's kind of one of my favourite bits of the show for some reason. Well, for a few (laughs) reasons. I mean, this is clearly one of her's ideas, but it's not yet reached the stage of organisation whereby the best dancers are at the front. Yes. So you do, for a glorious minute, basically watch mm. British people dance, which is always a yes. joy. Um, yes. Plus, it really blew my Everybody mind. Everybody lumber, I think <laughs> the song should have been called. It really blew my mind to see an Asian kid on there with a tash. Did you notice Yes. It? Yeah, I would have noticed that at yes. the time, and I would have felt simultaneous yeah. kind of pride and shame in his presence. But I, <laughs> I like the essential confusion of it. it, it they're, they're getting their salsa mixed up with their conga. It's it is very yes. office partyish, but but it's yeah. a it's a joyful moment because the cameraman doesn't quite know how to do it, and and they haven't no. shoved a load of fucking well the zoo wankers aren't there yet, but they no. haven't shoved a load of pro dancers at the front. You do essentially get to see some great shit British dancing for, yes. for a good long while. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's, it's it's very New Year's Eve party. It's very Butlins. Um, but yeah, you notice um, Anika is in there as well. So yes, not only yeah. have they got they they've got their salsa and their conga mixed up, but they've got that Oriental uh, element <laughs> thrown in there. So basically, Latin, and they're still waving all the Oriental ramen about, aren't they? They are. Mm. So it's Latin plus Oriental, which I guess equals the Philippines oh, f- or something. Fusion. <laughs> It's like fusion cuisine, isn't it? I, I'm, I'm kind of interested in um, modern romance as, as to what their intentions were, apart from making a fuckload of money. Mm, because yes. it's almost a kind of art project. 
um, because they, they were coming from a kind of new wave background. But basically, it's almost a, an experiment to see how long they can get away with releasing the same song over mm. and over yes. and over. Because yes. we've got Everybody Salsa. You've also got uh, Bestias of Our Lives. Yes. And I, 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 Moosey. Yes. Which are, it's all, they're all the same song. Mm. Yes. Uh, and... Uh, at, at the time, I, I I hated them. They were. It wasn't just them. It was the people who were into them. The people who were doing that kind of dancing that we're seeing in this clip. Yeah. It was everyone I hated. They were. I would have thought they're mindless, and I do think they're mindless. <laughs> um, I, I'm not. I don't even know. No, I said that in a sort of distancing, sarcastic voice. Um, but that said, they they did have a couple of good songs. Um, I loved Queen of the Rapping Scene. Say, <laughs> Queen of the Rapping Scene, oh. uh, which I thought was uh, was amazing. And also, um, they they did a ballad uh, called Walking in the Rain. Which yes. uh, I think, if it had been sung by somebody like Smokey Robinson, people would recognise as being a real classic. Mm. Um, but other than that, you know, they're 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 pretty appalling, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, Anika's still there. It's you know, essentially they haven't got time to get her off. Yeah, and they just want the fucking show over. So she she's <laughs> stuck there. But you know, you have to say she's enjoying herself. She's come all the way down from Edinburgh. She might as well, you know. And she knows. I think I feel she knows that this is her last stand on the top of the pop stage. Yeah. So she's yeah. making the most of it. And and yeah, one of, one of Legs & Co. starts a conga. And it's amazing just to watch people just immediately latching onto it. You don't need to ask British people to join a conga line, mate. They just do it. <laughs> if only they'd have done it at the job centres around the country at this time, there wouldn't have been any riots whatsoever. <laughs> Oh, Queen of the Rapping City. I've completely forgotten that. No. But it's got that line in it, hasn't it? Uh, don't kid yourself, you waste the space. You're a super, super slob, slob with, with an ugly, ugly face. face. I love that line. <laughs> Next time you try to make a pass, just stick to women in your class. It's a great record. Yeah. It's what the Style Council could have been. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, it's, it's party time at Top of the Pops. Yeah. And it will be for many years to come. It will, but it's it's refreshingly innocent at this stage. Yes. It's amazing how it all works without Zoo, you know? They, they, they introduce so yeah. many problems into this. Yes, they do, yeah. They're still in their crates at the moment, aren't they? Yeah, doubtless gyrating in objectionable ways. I haven't been captured in the wild and tranquilised. <laughs> Anything <laughs> to stop their foul gyrations. So the following week, Everybody Salsa jumped 13 places to number 16 and will get as high as number 12. The follow-up, I, 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 Moose, Got to number 10 in December of this year and they go on to notch up six more top 40 hits, three of which went top 10 before splitting up in 1985. Jeff Dean went on to become a scriptwriter for Birds of a Feather, Babes in the Wood, Friday Night with Jonathan Ross and Chef and is currently writing the screenplay for the official biopic of Amy Winehouse. While David James became the manager of Sinead O'Connor, The Wonder Stuff, and Republica. And that, me dears, closes the book on this episode of Top of the Pops. What's on telly afterwards? Well, BBC One continues the evening with a repeat of the last ever episode of Citizen Smith, and then it's the second to last episode of It Ain't Half Hot Mum, where the concert party finally head for home. Oh, fucking hell, that, that episode ruins me. Oh. It's the one right at the end where the Charwall has caught them up on the docks while they're departing, and he's bought all them presents for them. And they realise that he's actually been a really good mate to them. Oh, oh it breaks your heart, man. Oh, I've not seen it. Oh. I can hear you tearing up now, Al. 
After the nine o'clock news, it's the third part of the documentary series, The Four Seasons, where people in their 80s who are still busy are featured. After the TV play Kate, The Good Neighbour, they round off the night with Spike Milligan in Q9. BBC Two is 10 minutes into a talk by the director Roger Corman at the National Film Theatre. Then it's the documentary series Fame, about people who become dead famous all of a sudden and have to deal with it. This week, Trevor Locke, the hero of the Iranian embassy siege. Then it's Folk, a series of highlights from the Cambridge Folk Festival (laughs) featuring Donovan and the Roachers, followed by part two of the Eugene O'Neill drama Morning Becomes Electra. Then it's Festival 81, the magazine show about the Edinburgh Festival, and they finish off with News Night and highlights from the cricket. ITV finish off Ski Lift to Death. Then it's the final episode of the documentary series Rule Britannia, where the author James Bellini predicts the state of the UK over the 80s and asks his civil strife is round the corner. Then it's the first part of a doubleheader of episodes of Spearhead in Hong Kong, the Michael Billingham drama series about some British soldiers. Then the news at 10, the other episode of Spearhead in Hong Kong, holiday snapshot tips in me and my camera, and they end the night with what the papers say. So, dear boys, what are we talking about in, well, it won't be the playground, but wherever we're dossing about tomorrow. Up the park, playing football. Mm. Um, Yeah, yeah. um... Soft sell, probably, although, um, you know, they'd already been on once. So, failing that, probably cliff roller skating. Cliff Richard roller skating. That's got to be it. Yeah. Like, did you see that? Basically, yeah, absolutely. Did you see that granddad trying to roller skate? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I I think, yeah, soft sell, I would have been talking about. They're the dark little heart of this show, soft sell. Uh, And even though I'm a Stones fan, soft sell are the big, big highlight of this show. And what are we buying on Saturday? Wired, uh, Tainted and start I'd already bought um, a couple of records that are in the top 40 uh, but not on the show so I'd bought Love Action by the Human League and uh, Ghost Town by the Specials so that's probably my pocket money accounted for but um, if I did have a record token or two to spend then yeah Soft Cell um, or The Stones maybe and what does this episode tell us about August of 1981 fuck all except people love medleys um, yes Racism is fine as long as it's the Japanese mm. Mm. and Richard Skinner is surprisingly sleazy. It, yeah, it doesn't really tell us that much about what's about to happen to Pop or anything, but it does give us a big hint as to what's exactly going to happen to Top of the Pops. And that, me dears, is the end of this episode of Chart Music. You know what I do now? I go www.chart-music.co.uk, facebook.com slash chartmusic. You can reach us on Twitter, chartmusic at TOTP. You can thrust money down our G-string at patreon.com slash chartmusic. Thank you ever so, Simon Price. You're welcome. Ta very much, Neil Kulkarne. Cheers, Chucky Egg. My name's Al Needham, and all I'm going to say is the average male ejaculation is 0.9 mil, which means the number of ejaculations in a pint is 631.4. So for two pints, we're talking 1,263 people, and for eight, it's 5,051, which is comparable to the average attendance of Northampton Town FC last season. (laughs) Simple mathematics, pop craze youngsters, it didn't fucking happen (laughs) chart music
Listening to Richard Skinner on Radio One. I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.